Stuff podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here as always to talk about stuff. This week on the show, it is a busy episode. It is probably the busiest episode ever. <laughs> and we are going to jump into it as, as soon as we can. Um, the basics, we are going to do our normal discussions on this week's Doctor Who. Yes. We're going to talk about this week's Twin Peaks. Yes, we are. We have thoughts on both. We have uh, some spoiler topics on that. They'll be at the end of the show. Show notes if you want to watch, listen to them. Just go look at the time charts. Um, we're going to do a couple quick pieces of news. But the majority of today's show, our main topic, is going to be coverage of this week's E3 conference. Yes, E3 2017. It's here. Yeah. It was long. It was long. If you have not listened to the Weekly Stuff podcast, or if you're, I mean, if you're like a newish listener to the show, yeah. you might not know that the way we do E3 on this show is we generally wait until the pressers are all over. Yeah. And then we do kind of a roundup. And this is mostly because, Sean, you have a sick fascination with this show. Yeah, this is, we've done this quite a few times now because it, I always forget how long our podcast has been running, but it's like we have done this, this for is, several years. This is our sixth year, and in our first year, we did not do a big formal mm-hmm. thing on it, but this is our fifth annual E3 episode. Yeah, so we do big E3 episodes. I've always been utterly fascinated by E3 yeah. since I was a kid because it's, I mean, for those who don't, super are not super into sort of like the video game news cycle and that kind of stuff, you might not be 100% aware. E3 is the Entertainment Electronic Expo. It is, or the Electronic Entertainment Expo, whatever the fuck E3 is. It does not matter. It doesn't matter. It is the biggest video game conference where all the big players in the video game industry get together, put on a big show, and sort of show off whatever their lineup is for like this year and for the next couple of years usually, and sort of make a statement for what they are and sort of like what platform they're working in. And this is a very interesting E3. It feels like a very sort of transitional E3 of that there's not anywhere near the same like sort of magnitude of new announcements. A lot of the games that were announced were known quantities that everyone were either like deliberately announced beforehand or were leaked well, well beforehand. And so this is an interesting E3 where there's still a huge amount to talk about, but it's also not exactly the same exciting kind of tone that E3 usually has. Yeah, I think there's a couple pockets of excitement. Definitely. Overall, this was a fairly dull E3. I thought some of the shows were awful. Some of them were quite exciting. Yeah. But I think all of it is fascinating if you find this interesting. Yeah, I think it is the most exciting time of the year for video game people because it's just... It's a big, stupid spectacle. You just get a... You know, talk about 500 fucking trailers and talk about like weird like, oh, this is how Microsoft is positioning themselves and, and blah, blah, and so on and so forth. And I think you get a sense of where the industry is heading. Yeah. And, and where, or where it is, you know, and I think that's all interesting. But um, the way we do these topics also is, you know, generally, uh, I mean, obviously Sean and I pretty equally co-host yeah. this, but most of the time I do have like the outline on my laptop and I'm kind of, you know, moving us along just from signpost to signpost. Yeah. In these episodes, we call them a two-laptop podcast, because that's when Sean pulls out his laptop and has taken a truly obscene number of notes on E3, which is actually very useful if we're going to talk about it in depth. Because there's way... Because it used to be before last year, because last year was the first time I took live notes during watching all the press conferences. Before that, it was like this mad scramble of, like, loading up every video game website on the planet and, like, trying to find the best, like... 
concise organization of the information. And then eventually I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to do that on my own. Yes. Because I have nothing better to do. So we basically hit it all beat by beat. Like, we don't do the live blogs or anything. And honestly, we're probably going to have a talk about next year doing, like, daily things or something and splitting this up. Because I think there's going to come a point where this becomes untenable, Sean. But I I still like the way we're doing it. I think before this becomes untenable, E3 will stop being a thing. So That's probably true. That's my bet. But anyway, uh, we're going to talk all about that in a minute. Uh, like I said, we're skipping stuff and all that other, you know, we'll, you'll hear about our normal random stuff in other weeks. Yeah. For now, we're going to jump into two pieces of news and then into E3. Uh, sad piece of news first. Yeah. Really sad. Uh, this week saw the passing of the great Adam West, who lived to the ripe old age of 88 and was awesome and active right up to the end. Yeah. I mean, he just starred in a Batman movie that came out last year. I haven't seen it yet. Have you seen that one? No, I haven't. It makes me... I feel slightly guilty that I haven't watched that one yet. Yeah. But the animated Return of the Cape Crusaders was still doing voice acting for Family Guy and everything. So, you know, it was... I think, to me, it was a little bit of a shock because he just... He's an 88-year-old guy, so it can happen. But then you're like, he's, he's so omnipresent in so many yeah. ways still. Uh, Adam West, of course, best known for playing Batman in the 1960s TV series and the 1966 movie. Um, but had a just a cool career, you know, playing off that persona and being at conventions and stuff and... Yeah. and parodying himself and uh i think we are big fans of adam west here at the podcast absolutely like he was obviously a great guy with an unbelievable sense of humor and and i think it's something that a lot of batman fans like modern batman fans don't necessarily appreciate what it is he brought to batman like if it wasn't for adam west we would never have had all the reactions to the adam west batman which is like the grim dark bullshit batman stuff we get today and like a lot of that stuff can be fantastic but it's also like there is this core hope and optimism and humor to the Adam West TV show that, like, obviously a lot of that is the other writers and the directors and stuff like that, but a big part of it is the persona he brought to the show of playing Bruce Wayne as this, like, amazing billionaire philanthropist that went around and, you know, like, donated charities and then also, you know, at night went around as Batman to, like, solve the seedier problems that the city had, but not in the, like, I'm going to smash everything and, like, er, dark way. It's like... He is actively 100% committing everything of his human person to be the absolute best person he can be and help as many people as possible at any given second. It really, I, I think, you know, you said something there about the reactionary nature of Batman today, and it's so true. The, the critic Matt Zollerside wrote a piece on this, and I agree 100% with his assessment, which is that whatever later takes on Batman post-60s, whether you love them or you hate them or you're in the middle on them, Every one of them is a reaction yeah. to Adam West Batman. Everyone in some way or another because that became what Adam West did with the character and what that show did with the character became the dominant interpretation of that character in pop culture. And so when you had Frank Miller do Dark Knight Returns, that was, we need to make Batman cool again or yeah. whatever. And when you had Tim Burton do that, well, he was piggybacking off Frank Miller. And when you had the animated TV series, it's phenomenal, but it's also, I mean, it uses the Danny Elfman theme yeah. song. You know, and, and the Dark Knight was like, a re, or Batman Begins was a reaction to Batman and Robin, which people criticize for being too Adam Westy yeah. and stuff like that. So it's like it's so it's such a big figure in pop culture, and yet I think a lot of modern Batman fans sometimes not it's their fault because it's kind of a it's not like the show is out there on Netflix or something. Yeah. Don't really understand, I think, what exactly Adam West brought to that, and that it's not just a joke and it's not just a parody. That is a significant and legitimate interpretation of Batman. I think one of the best. To me, Adam West 
is the live action Batman. He just yeah. he's the best one. He's the most interesting one, I think, as a take on that character. It's the most developed take on that character. You know, just down to I love all the little details like, you know, the bat phone in this is something he uses to call or Commissioner Gordon uses to call him and, and get help and, and Batman will always work within the boundaries of the law. Yeah. He's sort of a vigilante, but it's almost more like you can think of him as he's like a deputy. Like he's been deputized by the sheriff's department and he's out there helping yeah, people. It's like it's a weird combination of Batman and like McCruff the crime dog. Yeah. Yes. Like, he shows up at, like, events or something to, like, help, like, oh, we're going to pick up the city or whatever. And I love, like, Adam West's Batman is so... It's one of my favorite details about that show is that he's not the head of, like, Wayne Core. He's the head of the Wayne Foundation. Yeah. And he's taken all his parents' money and is using it to do good. So in every facet of his life, he's just trying to make the world a little bit better. Down to, you know, adopting his young ward, Dick Grayson, and just, like, teaching him different languages. And, you know, there's that episode where he says something about how... You know, culture is the greatest weapon we have in the fight for peace. And he like he really believes all these things, and it's so much in West's performance because there is this earnestness and seriousness to it, uh, belying a true madman underneath. Yeah. Because he's also insane in that show, and it's wonderful. Yes, yeah. So for people who don't have a lot of familiarity with it, I think like the 1966 Batman movie is absolutely necessary viewing yeah. if you are a Batman fan at all. Like, and it's it's a just incredible encapsulation of what that show is and it's easily viewable you have all the four kind of biggest villains yeah so definitely check that out that movie I rewatched that movie about a year ago now and it's so unbelievably funny I also after the news of his death I rewatched the Grey Ghost episode from the Batman animated series where he sort of does a special guest star role in that episode as the voice of the Grey Ghost which is a sort of like movie serial character that in that universe Bruce Wayne saw as a kid as sort of like as a replacement of Zorro or Zorro that is usually like sort of what people sort of regard as the canonical what Bruce Wayne was seeing and how he was like sort of obsessed with vigilante heroes and said it was this gray ghost almost like the shadow-esque figure and Adam West voices the character who played that the gray ghost in like the in fiction movies and tv shows and that's a just fantastic episode of that uh animated series Great episode, and if I were to recommend... I, and I have not seen all of the 66 series. I have the box set, but they made a lot of episodes of yeah, that. Yeah, And uh, You always my, forget how, like, just how many episodes they used to make of TV shows. Yeah. Until you go back and try to watch an old one. And it is amazing for that show how many of them are good. Mm-hmm. Like, they... Especially the first season, which is, I believe, the longest... Uh, season two is also pretty long. But, like, th- they're mostly really good. My favorite is an early two-parter... The first one with the penguin, played by Burgess Meredith, the great Burgess Meredith, where the penguin gets out of jail and his entire evil plan is he's just going to do suspicious things with no plan and wait until Batman deduces something and then use whatever plan Batman comes up with because he knows Batman is smarter than him. Perfect episode. They're all two-parters. Perfect two-parter. That's the one that sticks out strongest in my memory. But you really can't go wrong, especially if you're drawing from that that initial season, uh, which is just hit after hit after hit. Yeah. Yeah, so Adam West, we love you. Rest yeah, in peace. Rest in peace. And um, yeah, and I, you know, I think there is some mainstream acceptance. And I think he, it's so great he got to live to the point where I think people were out there saying, no, this was great art. Yeah, yeah, because you have stuff like, you know, that animated movie being made that he got to be in. And they did a, and I think that, that animated movie is partially based off of 
a sort of limited comic book series run that I've always meant to get, and now I'm going to definitely have to go get it. That is sort of based on that the yeah. '60s Batman cartoon, the Lego the Batman movie, yeah, came out Lego this Batman year movie. and hugely influenced yeah. by Adam West. So Batman: The Brave and the Bold is another uh, Batman cartoon from a couple of years. I guess it's about ten years ago now or so. But that is also very inspired by that take on Batman. We approve of silly Batman because absolutely because really no Batman is actually sillier than like. The current live-action Batman. Exactly. The so, darker Batman gets, the more ridiculous, ridiculous he is. It is far more believable that you have the Adam West Batman than the fucking whatever Batman, Ben Affleck Batman we have now. Yeah, when when he goes, you know, I'm the goddamn Batman. Exactly. Yeah, I know. I know Ben Affleck hasn't done that yet. We're only he one will. Deep. Yeah, yeah, we're yeah. we will get there. Yeah. All right, let's go ahead and move on. Uh, one other piece of news: transitioning from one generation of superheroes to another. Yeah. We got the trailer this week for Black Panther. Yes. Which is um, a couple Marvel movies away because they've got a lot coming out at this point. But it's their February 2018 movie. Um, it'll be our last one before Avengers: Infinity War, directed by Ryan Coogler, starring Chadwick Boseman as Black Panther to. Chala. Yeah, who we saw in Captain America Civil War. Mm-hmm. It was great in that movie. That's a good trailer. It is a fucking amazing trailer. <laughs> it's Ryan Coogler made a movie. Yeah, no, yeah. And I, 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 I'm not trying to say that to like diminish it. I'm saying that to build it up like I don't think that's a assembly line superhero movie. No. I think Ryan Coogler went and made a fucking movie. Yeah, it's a really great trailer. I love the glimpses we get of Wakanda, the like the yeah. sort of ancient African civilization that is hidden away in the hearts of Africa and has become like incredibly technologically advanced and hidden away from like Western society's eyes. And so you get these like brief glimpses of that in the trailer and the like, designs they have gone for are just incredible. The Black Panther costume. We have another costume to put in the roundup of like what's the best live action superhero costume. Yeah. It's definitely up there just from that trailer. Like the way he moves in that, there's really only one scene with him in the costume in this trailer, but the way he moves is awesome. Chadwick Boseman seems... He, I, I've been following his career. You know, He broke out with that Jackie Robinson movie, 42, and then he right. did that James Brown biopic. And he's so good in both of those, even though the movies are subpar. And it's just like, this guy was born to be a movie star. And you can just see it in the Black Panther trailer. Like, yeah, he's a movie star. Yeah. And it's great. And yeah, I was looking up the cast of this movie... It's insane. Yeah. You have Chadwick Boseman. You have Michael B. Jordan, who is right, playing yeah. um, one of who is in Creed. He's playing one of the, the villains, I guess. Or, I don't know, antagonistic, but we'll see where that goes. He was also Johnny Storm in the last Fantastic Four movie. So they are well, taking... Marvel is just taking all the retired yeah. Johnny Storm actors and saying, we've got a place for you here. We will rehabilitate yep. you as another superhero. Don't worry. Yeah, and and... I'm forgetting them now. I'd have to look it up. It's it's just a, a laundry list of great actors. Martin Freeman's Freeman character from Civil War is like yeah. weirdly heavily featured in the trailer in a way. I yeah. didn't think that he was going to be in another Marvel movie, but I'm cool with that. Yeah, well, apparently they ca- he was also one really cast for Black Panther more than yeah. Civil War, which I, I guess we didn't know as much as the time. Um, we got Andy Serkis in there. Right, yeah. And then just, just a, again, I'm forgetting exactly. Um, God, Lupita Nyong'o is in there. Like a great lineup of, of current like African-American stars. Like yeah. the number of people on there who have like Oscars and Emmy Awards is great. Uh, and then, you know, the great, Ryan Coogler has done such great work in his, his film career so far. And he brought a lot of his people on board. Like people he's done cinematography with and editing. And it's just, it is a very striking trailer. I've loved online this week. You know, I follow, you know, various African-American like critics and, and activists on Twitter. And to see them like get excited about the trailer and break it down of like various pieces of African American and African imagery that that trailer yeah. is like specifically quoting. I don't know if you've seen any of those like comparisons. Mm-hmm. They're really fascinating to me because I love that in like a two minute trailer you can tell those things. Yeah, you can tell you know 
Coogler is, is going for something with this, and that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Great trailer. Great trailer. Looks good. Black, I love that we're getting Black Panther. We, yeah. got, we got Wonder Woman. We're getting Black Panther. We're getting Captain Marvel. Uh, it's good to be excited about superhero movies that don't star white guys. Yes, because it, it has been a pretty long run. <laughs> yes, it has. Yeah. Captain Marvel will be Marvel's like 21st movie. So, you know. Anyway, uh, that's cool. Why don't we go ahead and talk about E3? Let's talk about E3 2017. So how do you want to do this, Sean? Do you want to just dive in or do you want to do some overall thoughts at the top? Um, let's do a little bit of overall thoughts. Like first, let's just, so I have taken notes painstakingly that where I took live, I watched every single press conference, basically live. The only one I wasn't able to watch live was Ubisoft because that was in the middle of the day on Monday. So I was doing other stuff, but then I managed to sort of sneak that in right before I went to the Sony one live. So how many of the press conferences did you watch, Jonathan? Everything but EA. Okay. Uh, and, and so I did more this year than I usually have, and I watched Nintendo for a while into the Treehouse stuff. Yeah, I sort of um, dove in and out of the, yeah. the Treehouse stuff after the Nintendo Direct. Yeah, um, but EA, the only reason I didn't see EA was I was helping my brother move some furniture in Fort Collins, and I, I was in the car on the way back home when it was playing, and so I followed a live blog, so I know everything that happened. And that was a hilarious conference to follow via live blog because you could tell people just wanted to kill themselves. Uh-huh. Yeah. So we'll get there. Yeah. So I have taken 3,632 words of notes. And I will say one thing. Yeah. I, I did like on Twitter a ranking of the conferences earlier and we can yeah. talk about that later. It's not exact, but it was hilarious to me. Overall, like I thought the conferences got better as the week went along. Like we, more or less, we yeah. started at the bottom and I thought we crawled our way to the top. Overall, EA was definitely the worst conference. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't think, like, before we dive into them, I think it is important to sort of note that one of the reasons why at the top of the show I said this feels like a transitionary E3 is that I feel like there was a pretty even split where we had six press conferences. Three of them were way more traditional kind of E3 press conferences, the kind of E3 press conferences we've been getting for like four or five years now since like around the time the console generation came over. And that was like EA, Microsoft, and Ubisoft had very normal kind of E3 press conferences that you'd kind of come to expect. And then we had Sony, Bethesda, and Nintendo all basically showed video reels with like Sony and Bethesda just happened to have a theater and some like extra spectacle from that but in general they just showed like trailer reels yeah. with like a little bit of sort of context around them and like were really tight showings and it's really interesting to see that that split is right basically right down the middle and I, I'm going to guess that hopefully yeah, Microsoft and Ubisoft sort of because I think Ubisoft was the only one that kind of I think still worked in that format okay yeah. but EA and Microsoft I don't think managed to make their, that format work very well and I think it's uh, it, we need to move away from it. Yeah, I thought EA and Microsoft were interminable. Ubisoft was okay. Like it was Ubisoft you know, had shit to show this yes, year in they, a way I was not expecting. Yeah, I you know, it was Ubisoft was the way I usually watch E3 conferences was like half bored but half engaged and so it was totally fine. I thought Microsoft and EA mostly bored, but then you got to like, you know, Sony and Bethesda didn't even have a lot to show, but it was a fun little 30-minute yeah. show. Sony's was a lot of fun. Nintendo's was fun and surprising. <laughs> we'll get to that because something you and I both said would never happen happened. Yeah. So there's that. But yeah, um, no, I think you can split right down the middle of like the traditional just seems like it's not of the moment right now. Yeah. So so, so without further ado, let's start with Electronic Arts who, who opened up the show on Saturday with like an event that I guess is technically outside of the scope of E3 because typically E3... E3 used to start on Monday, 
And then two years ago, Bethesda was like, yo, dog, what if E3 started on Sunday? And they had a, like a late night Sunday event when that's where, that's where they announced Fallout 4. So that was the first time Bethesda did one. And now I guess this year EA is like, yo, dog, what if we had one on Saturday now? And so fucking E3 has been going. E3 started early today. We're recording this on Tuesday. It started this morning technically. But E3 has actually been happening since Saturday, and that is a weird, stressful state to be in. So soon it'll be starting a full week ahead of time. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's how that's how EA started up, and so EA third party, big third party publisher. And what did they have to show this year? A lot of EA Sports stuff. They opened up the show with a weird random drumline of football players, or I guess people dressed up like football players. I assume they probably were not actual football players. They're probably actually just drummers. EA likes to blow money. Who knows? Yeah, they, they just like to sort of start it off with a big Madden trailer, and I guess the big thing they're doing, and this, to their credit, this sounds like an interesting thing to do with their sports games. It's something they started last year with FIFA is putting in big story modes into their their uh, football, or, or I guess, I mean, it is their football games because they haven't put one in live yet, their NBA game. So they did one with FIFA last year. They're doing another story mode with FIFA this year that I guess is a sequel because it's the same character. And now they're doing a story mode in Madden where basically the story mode trailer looked like about the most generic football movie story you could put together of like, oh, like young black kid in America who's like from a kind of troubled family, like, at high school is like, oh, he gets noticed by some, like, agent or something and, like, starts rising up in the ranks, but there's all this tension about, like, oh, like, you forgot where you came from, man. It's like, I'm going to the top. It's that kind of story, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so if you're way into Madden, that's, like, to be, again, that sounds way more interesting than what they've been doing with sports games for, like, fucking 15 years now. Yeah. So at least they're doing something with it. Then Andrew Wilson, CEO of EA, stepped out, who is... Every single year looks more and more like a villain from a cyberpunk movie. He's got, like, the most fucking, like, just this, like, really stiff suit, really nice haircut. He, he's, like, looks like he's, like, 35 years old. He has probably been 35 years old his entire life. And it's just, like, such a stark contrast to most of the other conferences we're showcasing people. And, like, even EA showcases other people that's, like, not just, like... 30-year-old white dude with, like, really nice, like, $2,000 suit and, like, $300 haircut. But Andrew Wilson, yeah, he scares me every time he comes out on stage. And so they, they just sort of talked about how they're making the most innovative Madden in over a decade, whatever the fuck that means. And then they talked about how this is EA Play, their E3 event. They're not calling it an EA press conference. It's EA Play. And they're having eight new experiences and they sort of started talking a little bit about Star Wars Battlefront at the top. And we'll go into that more because they sort of ended the show with it proper. But I thought it was interesting. From the, what I could tell online uh, from the live blog, they ended with a roughly four-hour presentation of Battlefront 2. Is that right? Yes, it was fucking interminable. But they sort of set it up at the top of their show with this really weird bit where uh, Andrew Wilson basically said... Oh, we've had, we've gotten lots of feedback about Battlefront, some of it positive, some of it constructive. It is like paused for like people laughing, but nobody could laugh at this robot man on stage. And he said, <laughs> that's just another word for the feedback that isn't quite as positive. And then still nobody laughed. And then he just moved on. It was like a weird sort of them trying to seem human but utterly failing this like yeah i mean your battlefront game was a sad shell of a proper video game that you should have probably should have been free to play or something because of how empty it was 
But so I guess that at least they acknowledge it. it. They just acknowledge it in the most awkward way possible. It was practically free to play like a month after release for how they were point. what they were selling it yeah. for. I feel like every time I've like been on the PlayStation Store, that game is on sale for like five dollars. Yes, whatever. So yep. Then moving on, uh, the the first like proper video game thing they showed was uh, Battlefield One. Which was they showed basically, I guess, an expansion for it called "In the Name of the Czar" expansion, and there's going to be some sort of death squad of women. Which they just said death squad of women, and that sounds cool, I guess. Uh, that sounds like a parody exploitation trailer Quentin Tarantino would direct. Sure, yeah. I mean, it didn't have any of the actual fun of that in the proper trailer, yeah. but it, death squad of women, death squad of women in the name of the czar. Um, <laughs> that would be the sequel. <laughs> yeah. This is also where um, the first sign of something that was a bit of a, a small trend at this E3, which is uh, when talking about Battlefield 1, they first started, started talking about the Creator Cave, which then transitioned into a long montage trailer that I, I'm just going to read what I wrote in my notes while I was watching this. Oh, God, it's like a YouTuber trailer thing. Oh, no. It's already started. The fucking influencers. They are using the fucking influencers to market the fucking video games. Man, this sure is the most respectful way to treat World War One. when you really think about it. YouTubers screaming, I'll kill them all. Oh, God, kill me now. Yeah, we got it a couple of times. I didn't find any of the influencer bits as annoying as the Sea of Thieves thing from last year. No. But... And here's the thing, look, I, I get it's an important part of the gaming industry. We're not saying it's annoying to nullify that part of it. We're saying maybe it's not the best way to market it, especially when you seemingly find the most annoying ones. Yeah, and it's something where it, if, you know, I'm someone who I watch Let's Plays occasionally on YouTube. Like, I'm not completely divorced from right. that community. But, you know, people like Twitch stream communities are so tight-knit and so closed off. You know, there's a fucking million Twitch streamers, and all of them have, like, a thousand fans. And there's something weird about putting together this big video package where it's like, there is not one single human being on the fucking planet, not even the people who put this trailer together, that knows who every single one of these YouTube, like, yes. Twitch people is in this video. And so it's just, like, a weird... To me, it always feels really isolating when they do something like that with their, like, influencer Twitch stream communities. Because it's like... Even if I, because I think I recognize, like, one dude kind of vaguely from, like, seeing some, like, fucking random clip on YouTube, a YouTube video at some point. I was like, oh, I think I saw a video of that guy playing a video game once. And, but other than that, I was like, I have no idea who any of these people are. They're there's just all- shouting and screaming while playing a video game. Yeah, there's also the problem that statistically, we know that at least one of the people in every one of those previews is some kind of neo-Nazi. Yeah, it, that it, it does come, come up a lot. Yeah, it comes up a lot. Yeah, it's... It's just weird. I like. I totally get why the you know it's a big part of video game culture right now. But I think there's better ways to d- sort of interact with that than just putting together this weird video package and trying to like sell yourself. It like very much sells like you're trying to be hip for the kids, and it's like EA, you are not hip. <laughs> like that's the last thing you need to do. Like just let those Twitch communities be what they are. You don't need to feed them. You don't need that's to my- be a part of that. Like you just make the games, and those communities will make themselves. And E3 is being siphoned through a million Twitch channels yeah. at that moment, right? Yeah. If people want that, they're getting it. Exactly. So, yep, so that's that's Battlefield 1, which is a game that came out last year, but they, they, I mean, it was a pretty big part of the beginning of the show, and it was pretty fucking boring. Then moving on, uh, they just, they talked a lot about esports, which was another theme from a number of press conferences this year, which is another thing that's like, I get it, esports is a big deal, you do not need to highlight it at E3, because, like, like with Twitch streams, it, like, because they're similar communities... 
esports is like this weird own separate thing. You don't need to feed into that. Esports is its own community, its own life thing. You don't need to touch that. It will thrive on its own at its own kinds of events. And I feel like when you try to make it like force an esports thing at your event, it just comes across as awkward. And like, again, you're trying to be hip or something and trying to sell to a market that doesn't need you to sell to them. Yeah. So that's random esports stuff. Then they did a FIFA trailer, which was a very uh, disappointing FIFA trailer because they did not have any dramatic voiceover by a famous British actor, which is how the only way I can enjoy a FIFA trailer. And it was just none of that stuff. Um, then they had two, I guess, improv comedians or something called the Men in Blazers that are soccer comedians. I don't know. They came out on stage. That sounds like an oxymoron. It was. It was really awkward because they were just trying to make jokes about FIFA and they they was all tied into the Alex Hunter character from the FIFA story mode that's coming back and it was just like don't have people on your stage at E3 that are not either like the master ceremony person or someone who's directly involved in the making of the game if they are not one of those two things do not put them on stage I don't know who Alex Hunter is. I know nothing about the FIFA game. He sounds like the guy who, in the like movie made about FIFA in this era, would be the character investigating corruption in FIFA. Sure, yes. Alex Hunter. He's yeah. like the guy who goes undercover with Seth Blatter and like investigates all the corruption at the heart of FIFA. Yeah, it, it, it is a good name. It does not strike to me as a stalker name. It does sound like a like third-rate like spy novel yeah. character. Um, so moving on from that, they had... Uh, oh, this was a like, really awkward... Bit where they sort of introduced Need for Speed Payback, and they had another YouTube influencer person there. And I, from what I can understand, his uh, teleprompter malfunctioned or something. So in the middle of him talking, all of a sudden it was just like dead. It's like, oh no! It's just like that instant moment of like you're. Wa- I'm watching this stream, and I just see in his eyes this moment of sheer panic, where it's like, and everyone in the world at that moment just like is like. Oh no! Yeah. Oh no! <laughs> he pulled it out. Okay, it's just one of those. It's just one of those weird things. Um, so he introduced Need for Speed Payback, which is the new Need for Speed game. They showed a trailer for this a couple of weeks ago. Um, I thought the the demo thing they showed because it was sort of a trailer that had some gameplay stuff in it, but it was also very cinematic. It was kind of hard to get a sense of how much of this is like played up for a trailer and how much of this is like what playing the actual game is like because there was a lot of transitioning between cutscenes and in the driving and there's like this very heavy narrative sort of focus on it it seems okay like it seems like they're learning or leaning into kind of a burnout thing with how much of there was like a lot of car takedowns that did a very burnout style like slow motion camera like pan over to see the car flip away after you sort of take it out of the race I I want a good arcade racer car game. I feel like they have been trying that with Need for Speed for a long time now and have like have totally lost their way for the past couple of games. But maybe this one will be good. I don't know. It's, it's the one thing Xbox is good for these days. Yeah. Force is great. Yeah. It's exactly. So I I really hope this Need for Speed is good. It looks gorgeous. That is the one thing that I'll say about it. Like the the graphics were really stunning. So that's cool. Car games look good. Need for Speed looked good. Also, another thing is it is so painfully obvious how much they are just pulling from Fast and Furious stylistically for their trailers. Like, yeah. it is... Well, they even did that like, they even did that movie a couple of years ago that was basically just a Fast and right. Furious movie, yeah. both Aaron Paul. Yeah. yeah. I mean... It's, it's one of the many uh, video game movie adaptations that people just forget happened, like the Max Payne movie and the Hitman movies. Yeah. It's just like, oh, right, they did make a Need for Speed movie, huh? Yeah, that just disappeared. 
Uh, moving on, they talked about their EA Originals program a little bit. And this is like the one bright spot of the whole EA uh, press conference is they brought out, uh, I don't think I wrote down his name, uh, uh, Joseph Ferres, who was a uh, sort of one of the main sort of creative leads on the game Brothers, A Tale of Two Sons that came out, I think, in like 2012 around there. It was a really good game. Like, I didn't like it as much as a lot of people did because it, it got like a huge amount of critical acclaim. But it was like a really, it had a really good core mechanic and a really good idea. It just went on too long and kind of sort of kept on repeating a lot of the same ideas instead of evolving on it, but really good core concept. And so he's sort of uh, spearheading a new team and a sort of new studio called Hazelight. Um, and he's part of this EA Originals program, which basically is just EA making, like EA funding and publishing what would otherwise be an indie game with a smaller budget. And so he's making this game called A Way Out, which is a co-op game that is basically like a prison break into almost like Shawshank Redemption style. Like, like most of it seemed like it was a prison break, but there's also stuff like once you break out, you still need to get somewhere. And it's, he really heavily emphasized that this is a co-op game. It is only playable in co-op. It is designed specifically for couch co-op because the whole thing is in split screen. And so like what they showed at the gameplay was like, you know, you're playing as one of the characters on the left. Your friend is playing as one of the characters on the right. And it's always split screen. And sometimes, like, where the screen is split will move or adjust based on if there's a bunch of action going on with one of the characters. Their screen will get bigger or something. And the other one is maybe moving towards another story point. And so it seemed really interesting. It was a very strong pitch. Joseph Forrest was really good on stage at pitching his idea for the game. Like, very passionate, very sort of direct about, uh, like very like I think he said something about like oh this is going to be like one of the best co-op games ever I know that sounds totally egotistical but it's true and so it had this very charming fun presence on stage and that game looks really awesome it looks really yeah that sounds like a cool idea and it's those moments where you're like EA you know you make a lot of crap but yeah. it at least funds these little weird experiments and I will take that yeah exactly if that means the game like a way out is going to exist that's cool because yeah that game looks really awesome yeah. um then they moved into talking about, this is so inexplicable, a thing called SEED, which stands for Search for Extraordinary Experiences Division, which does not sound real. Wow, they got that out of a JRPG. Yeah, it, it, I guess it's basically EA's uh, R&D division, and they, I, they, I have no idea why they started talking about it. There was just a guy on stage talking about fucking nothing for like three minutes that then transitioned into him sort of briefly name-dropping Project Scorpio. And uh, then sort of transitioning into, hey, we're making a Bioware game. There's going to be more uh, Microsoft. And they showed a couple of, like, screenshots and then said the name was Anthem. And there was, like, there we go. And it was, like, that was a very long lead-up to you just saying we're debuting, like, the most, like, the biggest, most important EA game we have at the show at another person's press conference. That was one of the weirdest. We'll talk about the Anthem trailer proper when we yeah. get to it. Why, I mean, when it actually showed up at Microsoft, there was nothing about how it ties into Xbox. They had no exclusivity no. agreement. It was the most, and it was like the finale of that show. It was the weirdest thing, even though it was a very good trailer. Why that was not the centerpiece, why that was not the opening of the EA show, I have no idea. Yeah, it was very weird. And then also just like, maybe Microsoft was like, our show is seven hours long. It could be seven and a half. Yeah. Who can give us a trailer? Yeah, I don't really understand why that choice was made, but, you know, I guess maybe EA was like, you know what, we can't possibly have an E3 press conference that is actually good, 
And it would be kind of a little bit good if we showed this Anthem thing here. So let's not show that. Let's, like, make our E3 press conference about as bad as possible. Because, man, are they on a real low streak. This is, like, three years running where they've shown almost nothing. Uh, They moved into talking about NBA Live 2018, which was a game that I thought was supposed to have come out in March. At, like, the beginning of basketball season. It did not come out in March. And so they talked about it kind of vaguely here. For people who don't know, NBA Live is, like... Uh, like EA, you know, has their big EA sports division where Madden and FIFA and sometimes an NHL game that they make every once in a while are very successful, but they've never really been very good at making basketball games. And so 2K has the NBA 2K franchise that has been really popular and very successful for years and years and years now. And EA has been desperately trying to get their fucking basketball thing off the ground. It has been a flaming wreckage constantly. The only reason people might know about NBA Live is that the past two games that came out uh, when they came out, you probably saw a lot of funny, weird gifs and like glitch videos and stuff like that from the player creator stuff because that was always fucked up. And so they kind of talked about how there was some sort of system called the One. I have no idea what the One system does. I don't know what that was supposed to mean. But apparently, you can play street basketball and you can play NBA basketball in NBA Live 2018. They're they're so different. Yeah, it's it really is. I mean, it is. It's either you're playing on a court outside or you're playing on a court inside. It was about as much as it seemed they were distinguishing between street ball and like professional proper basketball. I just want the NBA game where one of the courts you can play on is at the White House with Obama. Yeah, and it's like he's just inviting you in because apparently Obama did that. Yeah. Oh man, that they missed. That was such a missed opportunity because because. EA used to make a really great basketball game that I loved called NBA Street that was like a very arcade style sports game. And if they stopped making it with NBA Street Home Court that came out in like 2006 or something, it was the only one that made it to the 360 era. If they had kept making those after Obama was elected, they would have totally had a fucking amazing level set. And that would be like the end of the story mode. It's like you rose from nothing to the absolute top of fucking basketball in the world. And then the president fucking calls you. And you like Air Force One fucking takes you to the White House. And you have a one-on-one pickup match with fucking Barack Obama. That would have been the dopest shit. I think Obama would have done it if they'd asked him. Oh, yeah. And then you would have the... They could have had a whole level about him like community organizing in Chicago playing b-ball with the kids. Yeah, and then imagine the great behind-the-scenes videos that EA could put up on their YouTube of them, like, scanning Barack Obama into the game with, like, and have him with all the dots on his face and shit. Secret Service agent standing right there, like, what is this? Yeah, that would have been amazing. Yeah, EA we're way off track. That. Yeah, uh, then they talked about, this This is a cool thing, that they've done this for the past couple of years. The EA has this sort of program called Play to Give, where they donate to a variety of different charities, so... You know, shout out. That's cool that that they do that. Using their powers for good. Yes. Using their powers to both donate to charity and then also fund cool indie games. That is the proper thing that EA can do if if they're going to keep on putting out fucking sports games every single year till the day we are all dead. (laughs) Uh, Then moving on, this is basically the end of the show. Uh, Star Wars Battlefront 2. This is a... I have a question about this. Okay. Let me sort of set up how they introduced it because this was... The best part of the EA press conference, just in terms of, like, the production of it, was fun and weird and kind of cool. So they had, at the beginning of the show, when they first did that thing of, like, oh, we've heard your feedback, they showed on screen a tweet by John Boyega, who plays Finn in the, the uh, you know, most recent Star Wars movies. 
and who's a big fan of Star Wars and is a big, plays video games, and so he made some tweet that was basically to the effect of like, "Hey EA, when are you going to put a star or a fucking story mode in your goddamn video game?" And they're like, "I guess we're going to do that now," because they brought the John Boyega tweet back on screen and made it huge, and then it started like slowly blowing up as like the the retweets and the likes just started tallying up, and then they had all these other tweets go on stage. It was like. Oh, like, it's like, when are you going to have a story mode in Battlefront 2? Which is like, I played the story mode in Battlefront 2 in fucking 2005. It was okay. There's already a fucking video game called Battlefront 2. There was already a video game called Battlefront 1. Guess what? That also had a fucking story mode. But so they had the John Boyega tweet blowing up on stage. And then it like, I think the, the screen cut out. And then the Imperial March started playing. And a bunch of stormtroopers came on stage. And then an actress named Janina... Gavin Carr came out, who I guess is like the playing the main character in the story mode, which they had a trailer for the story mode a couple of, like a month ago or so. And so she came out on stage, and she's playing a character called Ivan Versio. And I legitimately, okay. I could not tell looking at my outline at first which one of those was the Star That's Wars my name. Because Gavin Carr is the most Star Wars last name yes, in the world. I said that. I made. I and it was people thought it was a joke. It wasn't a joke. I legitimately didn't know is Janina Gavankar her name or the character's name. And you know what? The real. I only know it's her real name because the real Janina Gavankar liked my tweet. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so she came out on stage, and I have to give props to her. She was really good as a presenter. She like her dress was also fucking awesome. She had this dope, like really minimalistic Star Wars dress. She had a really good presence. She was really enthusiastic. She was very funny. Um, but what was really weird is so they did all of this and setting all this up about like we're going to we're putting a sto- a fucking story mode into Star Wars Battlefront Two. Finally, it's like the number one complaint and criticism about Star Wars Battlefront One. And do you know what they did? Well, I can tell you what they didn't. They didn't show their fucking story mode at all. All they did was have her sort of say it's set between Return of the Jedi and Force Awakens. She said it has three times the content as Battlefront One. That's three times the content. Wow. Which I don't know what the fuck that means, but it has. Th- I don't know how you judge. What means three times the content when you're like adding story modes and shit? How does that like compare to like adding multiplayer maps? What is the value of that? I have no idea, but there's three times the content of Battlefront 1. Uh, really weird. If you're going to hype up and say like, oh, we listened to your criticism and and one of the main things you wanted was a cool big story mode in our cool big Star Wars game, show something about your fucking story mode on your fucking E3 press conference. That makes no goddamn sense. Instead, what they did is they sort of did what they did last year with Battlefield 1. After the end of their press conference, they had a big, extended, like, full-on multiplayer match. Only this time, instead of getting fucking Snoop Dogg and Wiz Khalifa and just a bunch of people who were high as fuck show up and play one match of Battlefield 1. Also, a bunch of people who were high as fuck who obviously had never played a Battlefield game in their life. And so, again... I just love the fact that Stoop Dog ended that game with zero kills and zero deaths because I still don't know how the fuck that's possible. It's so great. Instead, they had like a bunch of sort of YouTuber people and influencers and, and I guess probably people who worked at EA do a story or a, a multiplayer match on Theed. So it was all prequel stuff because that was another c- uh, criticism about the first Battlefront. By the first Battlefront by EA because the first original Battlefront, that had fucking original trilogy stuff and it had prequel stuff way back then. So did Battlefront 2. Yeah. It's old Battlefront 2. But this Battlefront 2, finally, Battlefront 2-2 showed up. There's a, you're on Naboo. There's a battle at Thede. There's battle droids. There's, you know, clone troopers. There's Darth Maul. All that kind of stuff. Like, and 
so far my opinions on Battlefront 2 by watching this stuff are about my uh, Battlefront 2 2 are my same opinions that I have about original Battlefront 2 or, or EA's original Battlefront not the old Battlefront the new Battlefront because fuck it's hard to talk about these games is that it looks really pretty it's like great sound design all the production stuff is great but looking at the gameplay just like it looks like a very dull first-person shooter to me. It seems like a step up from the first one, but yeah. not to the degree where I would want to drop 60 bucks on it. Yeah. It, and it's also something where I think they just... The way they handled it of, of showing it off on stage, which is you don't have any real context. It's not a nice, like nicely produced, edited video of a multiplayer match. It's just a bunch of people, some of whom have clearly not really played this game much at all, playing multiplayer together and then having like three random people... Like like I Justine or some shit sort of shoutcast over the game and try to be like again kind of echo this sort of esports feel for a game that like they don't know anything about this game the people playing the game don't know anything about the game and the people having it's... to switch feeds live they don't know what's going to happen so it's like you can't put together this cohesive argument for this is why a multi a big multiplayer match on feed in Battlefront Two is amazing in a way that if you cut together a video. That would give you that perspective on it in a way that I don't think is like necessarily dishonest because I think this is probably like the way they showed it off makes it look worse than it probably actually is. Yeah, no, totally. I, you know, because I heard from some journalists playing it who thought it was a step up and all this. Yeah. And I found that a lot more valuable as like a, you know, just one person talking about it a little calmer. It's kind of like why I love what Nintendo does when they do their longer things is they have a couple of developers in the room, they play the game, they talk through it, and you just get a nice, relaxed feeling for the game. There's nothing relaxed about the way EA does it, at least not in the right way. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's EA. Uh, the other quick thing to sort of show off, uh, they did, right before they went into the Assault on Feed thing, they had another quick video of John Boega, and this time, but they had a video of him, it was just his tweet, and so he was talking, and then I remembered, oh right, he's British. That's really weird, because I always forget that he's British, like all those fucking actors that... That dude does a great accent. Yeah, he's really good at, at doing an American accent, and... It's very shocking when you hear him speak in his normal British accent. And then apparently Finn is going to be in the the first sort of DLC pack. They did sort of clarify that it seems like they're going with a free DLC model, which means that secretly they're just going with a microtransaction model. But you don't have to tell people that on your E3 press conference. Yes. You just get to say, and our DLC is going to be free because we're going to fucking get our money out of you in a much sin and more sinister way. Yeah, I mean, end of the day, the free DLC is a better idea in some ways. Yeah. But, and, you know, you don't have to spend money on the microtransactions, no. but it is still sinister. Yeah, but it's still <laughs> We've like... we talked it, about that before. It just comes across as feeling gross at some point. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So... I also think it's slightly weird that Finn, the main character of the movie coming out in the same window, is in DLC, not in the game. I don't yeah. know. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like... I mean, Ray is in the game this okay. time with her lightsaber now, so I guess... Well, that's good enough, I guess. That. Yeah. Just to be fair, it's not like... I mean, this is how I felt about sometimes they put like the hero characters into these games. Where it's like, now Han Solo is a good shot. And like Finn can shoot a person with a rifle. He's not like fucking Darth Maul. He's not Boba Fett. Like he's not going to take control of the battlefield with his incredible martial skills, you know? Right, right. He's like kind of a normal dude with a gun. It's like, yeah. again, you know, it's, he's a big iconic character you want to well, that's in, But it's always right. kind of weird to put them on the same level as fucking Darth Vader or something. In right. terms of like the power scale. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So EA, uh, not that good. Yeah. Just uh, one thing that's sort of of note is um, there was no uh, mention of any of the other Star Wars games. They they'd mentioned like their fucking mobile game that I think is bad because it 
that is, if you want to see microtransactions done poorly, their mobile fucking Star Wars game is a good example of that. Um, but there was no mention of the Amy Hennig-led visceral Star Wars game, which is starting the fact that they have not put out a big trailer for that. We don't even know the name of that game, even though that game has been in development since, like, at least since about the time Uncharted 4 had its development reset because Amy Hennig left Naughty Dog. So it's like, Uncharted 4 got, like, had to switch full, like, game directors that totally rebooted and reset the game. That game went through development, fucking came out, and we still don't know what the name of this the Amy Hennig project is. It might be getting Mass Effect Andromeda. <laughs> yeah, that's that's sort of the concern I have. Um, yeah. That's, so... Especially after we, the, the, in this last week also, we got that big story on Kotaku about Mass Effect Andromeda. Yeah, which is a great story that also sort of highlights how the, the EA approach of the making all their studios use their Frostbite engine maybe really bit them in the ass. Yeah. yeah. And well, among other things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, so any other thoughts on EA? I think that's about it. EA yeah. had a very EA press conference. Yes. Let's talk about something more interesting. Yeah, let's move on to uh, the next day on Sunday. Microsoft gave their big show. Let's preview this a second. Yes. There's, there's a lot to I mean, there's a lot to talk about with the preview. Yeah. So Microsoft, we talked about a lot last time in yeah. our preview episode, just that they kind of came into, they totally came into E3 with the most to prove. Absolutely. They have had the biggest problems. Um, they have had the biggest, I think, crisis in brand identity. And they were going to be unveiling the Xbox Scorpio, whatever that was going to be. Yeah. And I... This show had some good moments. It had some interesting reveals. My overall thought coming out of it was it might be about time to call it on the Xbox brand. And time mm. of death is a couple years away. Yeah. I... I I'm not quite that cynical about where the Xbox brand is going, but I do not think that this was a very good press conference. Oh, that was awful. For, I like. I think it was. It, they showed a lot of really cool. They showed a lot of games. They showed a lot of very cool games. They showed 42 games, and we saw all of them. Yes, but they did not make. I think a very strong case for what the Xbox brand is, how it's changing. I do not think they made a strong case for the Xbox Scorpio and and all of that stuff. I think like. In terms of what this press conference needed to accomplish, I just don't think it did that. It also, and instead of having like any sort of big, cool, new exclusive or something that for Microsoft, which I thought they were going to have at least one that we hadn't heard of, and that didn't happen, that never materialized. Instead, they took a bunch of games that they have limited like launch exclusivity to, put it all into a bucket, and like dumped it on stage to sort of hide the fact that they didn't have anything new, and that like the their pitch for the Xbox Scorpio was not as strong as people maybe thought it was going to be. No, it was punishingly long. It had no overarching message. There was no center to the show. Like, compare this to, like, Sony, which did not have as interesting a show as last year, but they did still have those anchor points of, yeah. like, here are the big games we're going to show you, and then we'll sprinkle in some other things in the middle, but it's going to be pretty focused, and there's going to be highs and lows. Microsoft was just trailer, 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 yeah. trailer, annoying guy yelling on stage, trailer, trailer, Phil Spencer's going to say something, trailer, 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 trailer. Some of the games look good, some of them don't, but there are, some of them are going by so fast you have no idea, and then some of them take way too long. Most of them are in no reasonable definition of the word exclusives, yeah. and they're, they opened it with talking about the Xbox One X and all that. Oh, you did already spoil sorry, it, Jonathan. Sorry, The Xbox One Scorpio. There you go. And didn't see that through the show at all. Like, no. some of the trailers would say, enhanced for the thing, but they never made any case about it outside of their Forza reveal, which was the only game anyone thought might use the, the, the Scorpio stuff, yeah. and they didn't do anything surprising. It was kind of a punishing sit to get through, and I walked out of it being like, yeah, I'm probably not going to use my Xbox much in the next year either. <laughs> yeah. 
So, and look, there were highlights, there were interesting things, but as a show, my God, it was long. Yes, it was very long, and so that's, we're going to speed through parts of this probably, because yeah. it's like they went through a lot of games. 42, and, they said it over and over again. Yes, and, but before we get into that, there's one other important piece. I don't know if you were, saw this at all, um, but about 30 minutes to 45 minutes before the Microsoft press conference started, uh, Jeff Keighley, who's you know big name in sort of video game journalism, has been for years and years and years. He hosts the Game Awards now. Yeah, yeah, like he's he's been around fucking forever. Um, he made a tweet. He actually made a couple of tweets. One which was at first was more vague, and then he totally doubled down on it in like a very certain tor- term terms, where he said the price of the Scorpio is going to be four ninety nine. That is what they have decided on. If it changes, that means it has changed some point like this morning. And so he just put that tweet out there, again, like 40 minutes before it started, and all of a sudden, I discovered people were really expecting that this thing was going to be $3.99. They're crazy. They were They're... fucking crazy. It, look, and it's a difference between the four ninety nine thing, the whole thing is a stupid business move and makes absolutely no sense, and it's, it's, they're just shooting themselves in the foot. But, yeah, if you thought a box with that technology inside it was going to retail for $3.99... You're crazy. Yeah. Like, here's... Because it was just something I saw a lot of video game journalists, like, putting out a lot of very hasty articles based on that tweet right before the Microsoft press conference started up, which is one of those things that's like, just wait. We're literally 30 minutes away from you fucking knowing whether or not it is. Wait a goddamn second and find out. Because it's like, it would have been insane if Microsoft did say $3.99. But also, before we get to the price, because, spoiler alert, it's fucking $4.99. No shit it is. Because it's basic economics of... You have the PlayStation 4 Pro is on the market right now at $399 MSRP. Microsoft is about to introduce a box that their whole pitch is it's significantly more powerful than the PlayStation 4 Pro. It's a true 4K console. It's the, the world's most powerful console ever made. They like have been hammering that message home since fucking E3 like last year, literally for an entire year. Every the, time they the have talked, the best pixels, yes. the highest quality pixels. Every time they've talked about the Scorpio project, they have talked about it in terms of how advanced it is. And then Eurogamer got like they they basically gave the specs to Eurogamer like a month or two months ago. And Eurogamer came out and said this thing is probably going to be four hundred ninety nine because this is a lot more expensive than the PlayStation Four Pro. And this is simple fucking economics. If you have two things on the market and one of them is more expensive to manufacture than the other thing, it's going to be more expensive for the consumer to the other thing. Because you know why? Because if they don't make price it reasonably, that's what is going to fucking sink the Xbox division. The Xbox division cannot possibly justify selling a fucking console for like $100 at cost or something like that. Yeah. They would, they wouldn't, because you would then need to fucking buy at least two full video games or like about three video games when you can take out other people along the process that are going to get a cut out of that money to like break even on the sale of one of their consoles. And most people only play about one or two games a year and that's it. It's just like the economics of them selling this thing at fucking $400 would have never made sense. And all the people saying that like, that's the only way for them to make it on the market. It's like, you do not become a successful video game company by having the largest market share. It, you become the, a successful video game company by making a profit. It just so happens that usually having a larger market share leads to a higher profit. But if you're selling everything at a price that you can't sustain, that means you're not making a profit. Sony operated at a loss for years because the PlayStation 3 had to do such a big yeah. cut early in its lifespan. And you'll, you've seen Sony be very protective of the price of the PS4 and control all of that and not go too far in any one direction. Yeah. And it's worked for them, but, you know, yeah. Anyway, yeah. people are weird. Yeah, and so that was that just, like, blew up. I thought it was, it was amazing to see people scatter around and, like, yeah. quickly write their articles and everything about that. 
And so that is sort of the atmosphere of, like, there are people that are like, there's no way it's absolutely going to be. Or, like, I, the best part was all these conspiracy theories about how, oh, Microsoft, like, leaked this out to Jeff Keighley without him knowing it, knowing that he would make this tweet to then, like, judge the atmosphere of, like, because everyone's, nobody's going to like this. And so now they're going to know that the negative response to that tweet means that they're going to change the price five minutes before their press conference is like, that's no the price would have been set for months. Yeah, like and, and it's just something where it's like, if you really think that people are that competent, how the fuck is President Trump president of the United States of America? I feel like that disproves any notion of like, oh, we're like playing the four D chess and like manipulating all this stuff by leaking this information. And it's like, no, no, that's yeah. not how that shit works. So that's the atmosphere going into Microsoft. So they started up with a slick video package for their Project Scorpio thing that had, like, weirdly reminded me of the opening credits to Sam Raimi's Spider-Man with, like, all these, like, yes, strands coming together. It was sort of strange. And that showed uh, the Shadow of War characters, some Gears of War characters, uh, like, Crackdown dude. So that was, like, the first time we were like, okay, I guess Crackdown is going to be a real video game, I guess, because they, they showed it in the video package at the start. And then they said, feel true power. And then they showed what the console looked like. And it looks like an Xbox One. And it looks nice. It looks nice. It's like, it's one of those things where you realize when you, you've seen as many E3s as we have at this point, it's just like, yeah, it's a black box. Like, of course, it's a, they're all going to be black boxes till the end of time. You don't need to have, like, make the reveal of what your console looks like be this dramatic. I mean, I get, like, 15-year-olds are going to, like, lose their shit about it, but whatever. Then Phil Spencer, head of Xbox, comes out on stage, starts talking about 4K, and then he drops the big one. The name of the Project Scorpio that, Jonathan, you very uncourteously already spoiled in case people didn't know it, is the brilliantly, hilariously named Xbox One X. They are so bad at this! They are really fucking bad at this. They are so bad at... I can't believe they haven't gotten better at this. You know, like, Xbox One S, but it's the slim Xbox, I get it. Yeah. What the fuck are you doing, Xbox One X? I have not been able to hear that or read that phrase without laughing since they announced it. It is funny to hear people say, like, you can almost hear Phil Spencer want to laugh at it as he says it. Yeah. And and it just, it only got more confused from there. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, I cannot be stressed enough how insane it is that when this thing launches in November 7th, Worldwide, there is going to be an Xbox on the market called the Xbox One S and one on the market called the Xbox One X. It's like, you could not have possibly come up with two more similar fucking names for your two machines. This is going to confuse the shit out of everybody. Like, could you imagine if you were, like, 13 years old and I had to tell your dad, Hey, like, I know I I worked really hard. I got great grades. So you're going to get me that Xbox One X, right? And it's like... Yeah, I'll get you the Xbox One X, and then you, your dad shows up at the fucking Best Buy or whatever. It's like, I want the Xbox One... Wait, wait. What's the X- letter? Xbox One... And, uh, I think he said X? Maybe he said S? I don't... Well, this one's still only $250, so I'll buy this one. And the kid's like, I fucking... God damn it. I just yeah. tried to get the Xbox One X. The whole pitch of the Scorpio thing is most powerful console ever made, right? Yes, they said that a lot. A lot. They said a lot. They had fucking shirts on everybody in the yeah. crowd with that on it. And to try to pitch that to people in the name, they call it the Xbox One X. That tells you nothing. If you come in and you're like, I'm looking for an Xbox One. There's the S and the X. One is literally fully twice the price of the other one. Fully two times as expensive. And the name is just X versus S. 
who is going to make the decision towards X? I mean, I understand why they didn't go with something like Xbox One Elite. I think it would have made sense. But, like, they have used it before. I get that. But that at least tells you, like, okay, Elite. I get it. Kind of like PlayStation 4, PlayStation 4 Pro. Yeah, it's like it's very legible what that product is. Even the new Nintendo 3DS says what it is. It is the new Nintendo 3DS. I want the latest one. The new, right? Yes. There you go. It's a bad name, but it at least tells you what it is. This is, like... And I thought their entire pitch for the Xbox One X could not have come off as more confused. Yeah. I don't think anyone really knows why they're making it, other than everyone orgasms when they say 4K. And I don't really know why, but people orgasm spontaneously when they say 4K. Even when it's for a game like Minecraft, that makes no sense in 4K. Yeah. 4K means nothing at this point. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself, but you know what I mean. Yes, yeah, so it's called the Xbox One X. It's launching November 7th worldwide, uh, and they did not announce the price yet. Yeah, they, I waited for that. Which is, I thought it's like, they should, I mean, I guess I get it because they must have known that hey, nobody's going to like this price, so they waited till the very end of the conference. So it's like, don't just, shit on your whole conference, just shit on the very end of the conference, but it's also the last note that anyone takes away from it. When he also said the price, he said it like offhand, there was no visual, yeah. and they just went, all, went yeah. along. But anyways, so, but we're still at the reveal of the Xbox One X, and they had, I like that they had the, the sort of the lead engineer, Kareem Chowdhury, uh, show up on stage, yeah. and he got to talk about it. I thought it was cool that they put an engineer up on stage instead of... Kind of like, like when they have Mike Smirk Cerny do yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Like, instead of just having an executive producer or someone do it. But then, you know, what they had him say was a lot of stuff that's like, this is going to have, like, seven billion transistors, and we've got so many teraflops, we've got teraflops coming out our ears, we got 4K, 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 true 4K. How many Ks we've got? We've got four of them. All four of the Ks. This isn't no fake 4K. This is the real true 4K stuff, 4K. I mean, let's talk about the Xbox One X for a minute. Hey, this does 4K. Did you know that the Xbox One X uh, does 4K? I want to murder 4K, like the concept of it. It I understand it's nice. It annoys me at this point. Anyway, like, yeah, I I did like that. It's just he was shouting out a lot of numbers that don't mean a lot to me. They mean a lot to me that I understand that it's good. Yeah. But they never in this conference made the jump between those numbers and what that means for you. Yeah. Like, I thought when the PlayStation 4 Pro launched that it was a kind of dry and somewhat confusing little event they did. But they at least had Mark Cerny come up and say, it does this, and here's why it matters. Yeah. And you're going to have this, and you're going to have this, and you're going to have this. And if you have a 4K TV, you're going to get this. And if you have a 1080p TV, you're going to get this. I was like, okay, not for me, but, you know, I get what it is. Yeah, but I understand what it is. The only game they took any steps to kind of substantively talk about on that level was Forza 7. Yeah. And even then it was just saying it runs at 4K and 60 FPS, which is absolutely impressive. But to me, it's like that's step one, and I need to hear about more than that. Yeah, because also, like... Yes, your Forza game looks really nice. Every Forza game yes. has... It's a fucking car game. Like, a car game looking nice is not impressive to me anymore. Like, yeah. I... Yes, it is a very nice looking car game. Um, some of the stuff they talked about with, uh, with the Xbox One X in regards to people who do not have 4K TVs, which I think they did not make a good case for this because... There isn't a good case for this. I feel like this press conference has like even further solidified my opinion that these consoles, the PlayStation 4 Pro and the Xbox One X, only exist because 4K TVs exist. And if the 4K TV thing was not a thing, they would have never made these misstep consoles. Yeah, it's no. The only, it's only for the 4K. It is. And 
it's but it's so weird because it's like they built this box with all this power inside and absolutely it's cool yeah. it's a really nice piece of engineering I'm amazed it's as small as it is yes. it's probably a, a, a great console in in that sense like the technicals absolutely you would get your value for four ninety nine for what's in that box but we've there's so many and we've gone over this time and time again how many games are actually going to make use of what's in there and if they did make use of what's in there there's no way they would actually be running well cross platform across mm-hmm. an Xbox 1X and an Xbox 1 just not going to happen so it's like it's it's a really expensive box that is never probably going to reach its full potential because frankly the consoles that there are right now haven't reached their full potential so all of it is kind of confused, and when the when the show that goes on doesn't really give you a compelling reason for like, okay, what exactly am I getting out of this that's so much better, other than just if I have a 4K TV, it might look nicer for some games. You know, it's weird. And then for like third party stuff, I just I remember they listed off later in the show like here are the games getting Xbox One X patches. Yeah. Every single one of them has a PS4 Pro patch. Yeah. It's like okay, so they're coming into parity with the PS4 Pro. Great. Are they actually going to? Because the Pro is weaker. Are they, is it going to do better than the Pro or like the, you know, so it's like a lot of like, I, I came out of this conference knowing the name and the look of this thing, yeah. but not really understanding the meaning of it any more than I did before. Yeah. But Jonathan, if you do plug in your Xbox One X into your 1080p TV, you will be able to take advantage of the incredible technology of super sampling, where it is going to internally render the, the image at a resolution of 4K and the down sample it into a 1080p image. And so it's going to look mildly sharper. Yay. I think that's worth $500 to me. Isn't it worth $500 to you? I'll just say... Slightly faster load times, Jonathan. Is that going to sell you? Uh, for the second year in a row, most of the games that we saw at the C3 were not the most graphically intensive games. No. Yeah. So, doesn't matter to me. The... It has a liquid-cooled vapor chamber. It's Look, it's an amazing feat of engineering. No one's Liquid-cooled to... vapor chamber. People it's... clapped when he said liquid-cooled it's, vapor chamber. It's cool. I don't... You got to get some exclusives or something if I'm going to buy it. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I, so. you know, I, I think it's what I've said before. What Xbox probably needs was more of a clean break because I think the Xbox One is so fundamentally flawed in so many ways. I mean, here's the the one thing I would hope they would have added to this was a share button to the controller. Yeah, the, the no. Xbox One controller still does not have a share button. Just let that sink in. The Nintendo Switch launched with a share button. Yeah, Nintendo is more on that than Xbox is. It's weird. Yeah, Just the whole thing is weird. So, anyways, let's move on from that point to the first sort of game thing they transitioned into was Forza Motorsport Seven, which we've talked a little bit about here. It the, looks the nice. first the first thing they transitioned into was a car commercial, Sean. Well, yeah, where yeah. the woman or the whoever it was the guy, dude on stage, brought no, that, a car. no, that was after the trailer. Nope, no, the car was first. I remember this, and I made a joke about it. We saw a car before we saw any gameplay. No, at I'm Microsoft pretty E3. sure because I I remember what the, the beginning of the trailer, not knowing what the fuck the trailer is for, because it started in the fucking desert. Okay, and then well, it slowly transitioned to do. I, I think they bumpered it with videos. Okay, that's what it is. But there was, yeah, there was well, we a saw actual video. like gameplay after the call. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. So they, they sort of like transitioned into a brief sort of video teaser of okay. Forza Motorsport Seven. Then Dan Greenwalt, who has been on the uh, the Microsoft stage forever because he's the Forza man, he came out on stage and they very slowly 
very slowly spun around a car under a curtain that while he talked about Forza Motorsport 7 and they pulled off the curtain to everyone's shock and awe they revealed the 2018 Porsche 911 GTRS supercar this is the first time Jonathan in the history of supercar motorsport bullshit that any supercar has been debuted worldwide on an E3 stage didn't that have a shock and amaze you no I like Forza. Let's just say that. I, Forza Horizon 3 is a fantastic game. Uh, I probably will wait until the next Forza Horizon, but Forza yeah. Motorsport 7 looks like an absolutely good racing game. Well, it looks like an absolutely good racing game that is going to be the first racing game you can play as, or race as, or in, however, whatever verb or preposition you want to use, for the, in the 2018 Porsche 911 GTRS supercar. And Porsche, it, sorry, Porsche. And it is very impressive that that game will be running natively at 4K and 60 frames per second um, on the Xbox One X. I wish we would have heard solid details on other games like that as well. Yeah. And it makes me think maybe that's the most impressive one they had. They did say the the Nürburgring, which is a, a circuit... Um, that is like the circuit they use to like for the trailer for every racing game since the dawn of time. So if you were like taking your E3 shots, you were taking a shot right there at the first mention of Nurburgring because like that's the only reason why I know what that is because they fuck I've heard that like 500 times in my life because they always talk about it with racing games. I was very disappointed by the way that they did not lower the 2018 Porsche 911 GTRS from the ceiling or drive it up like from like a ramp under the stage or something. It was just it was like a fake wall that spun around like from Scooby Doo or something. It was like come on, you lowered a car from the ceiling like two years ago. You can do it this time too. All right, let's move on. Yeah, so that's Forza Motorsport 7. If you like car games, you're probably going to like that one. Then they talked about how... Uh, Phil Spencer talked about how they have the largest, most diverse lineup of games ever, which he has said at every E3 he's been at. Um, and it features 42 games, 22 console exclusives, and we would slowly... Your insanity would slowly start to dissolve over the course of the press conference trying to determine what the fuck the words console exclusive even meant anymore. At a certain point, we had the, the sentence over and over again, Xbox One console launch exclusive, exclusive. Yes. which is three qualifiers. Yes. So, so yeah. yeah. So the first game they showed next was uh, a new Metro game called Metro Exodus. For people who don't know, it is the third Metro game following Metro 2033 and Metro Last Light, which is a series of first-person shooters set in a like post-apocalyptic Russia based on a series of Russian novels. Okay, this is uh, we were early in E3, yeah. and I realized I'm already sick of the post-apocalyptic games. They need to stop. There's too many of them. They all look like The Last of Us now. And the reason I have not played Horizon Zero Dawn yet is because I'm internally prejudiced against these games. Hey, Horizon Zero Dawn is post, post-apocalyptic. Post I understand, and I, I have bought the game. It's on my console. Great. Okay? It's really good. I will. But you understand why I have to get over that hump. Yeah. It's because there's just something about there's too many of them. I know people like Metro. That looked really generic to me. Yeah. Like, I tried playing Metro Last Light a while ago. I think that was like, I played it on the PS3 because it was a PS Plus game back when I had yeah. your PS3, the access to your PS3, and it didn't really grab me. I really like the Stalker games, which are PC first-person shooters from like the mid-2000s. And like, I think I've always just been more attracted to those games and like the Metro stuff is a bit more linear than those. Like, you know, it, it looked okay. I thought it was weird that they transitioned immediately into a non-console exclusive. Like, I think Metro Exodus isn't even a, like, launch exclusive for the Xbox One. Yeah. It's just, they said, like, world it, premiere. It was a world premiere, but it was not. Yeah. They had all these different, like, thing, qualifiers. Yeah, you know? and it's because I hadn't yet started marking down what the qualifier was at the beginning because I started doing that at some point. So, I, okay. yeah. So, then that's Metro Exodus. Then they did a teaser for uh, Assassin's Creed Origins, which is the maybe the most leaked video game <laughs> 
Of all time. Of all time. So we knew everything about it. It's set in Egypt. It's set 3,000 years ago, so it's like ancient Egypt. It's about like the beginning of the Assassin's Creed order. They showed more of it at Ubisoft. And let's just let's talk about that when we get to the Ubisoft one, because I think it's okay. more relevant there. So yeah, they showed off some Assassin's Creed origin stuff. They, Again, kind of weird to me that it got its premiere at Microsoft, not at Ubisoft, yeah, but whatever. Yeah, so, but, so moving on from that... Then we had, uh, they talked about Mixer live game streaming, and I was very confused about that for a little bit, until they talked about how um, Player Unknown's Battlegrounds, which is a PC shooter that is basically, is based on the premise of like the Battle Royale or Hunger Games kind of thing, that has like, had this meteoric explosion in popularity, uh, because it debuted earlier this year on Steam, as I think basically like early access kind of game. And so that's coming to consoles, which has been rumored for a month or so. And I guess it's coming to Xbox One first. Uh, this is where I think this is where I write Xbox One console launch exclusive tag sounds less definitive than what they said on stage. Also, Xbox One console launch exclusive is a phrase that is utterly impossible to parse. Yes. So this is where I first took note of that. So that means to me that this is an Xbox One console launch exclusive. Yes. Uh, I think maybe the clearest indication we have is technically Player Unknown's Battlegrounds is still a early access title, yeah. and Xbox One does have early access, so maybe they'll have it in early access until it actually comes out as a finished game, and then it'll probably go everywhere. But yeah. we'll see. Yeah, I'm curious about Player Unknown's Battlegrounds, but if I were to play it, I'd probably probably play it on PC because it seems like much more a PC shooter kind of game. Yeah. Um. Anyways, moving on. The next thing, Xbox One console launch exclusive. Uh, I will just say what I wrote here. Terror or terrain deformation, first person shooter, Minecrafty, Deep Rock Galactic. I remember nothing of this. It was a weird. It looked like very much a like a game that has probably been on early access for like five hundred okay. years on Steam that they are now getting on Xbox. I don't know. It had a very brief kind of incomprehensible teaser. Deep right. Rock Galactic. Moving on. Um, so then the next thing they showed was I guess this is like the first exclusive since uh, Forza was State of Decay Two. Which is like State of Decay 1 was a zombie game on the 360 from like 2012 or something. So they've been working on this for a long time. I thought like it was a pretty decent trailer for it. It's coming out spring 2018. I never played State of Decay, so I don't really know much about it. It's look, this is just going to be a theme for me on this episode today. Too many post apocalyptic games, yeah. and you got to do something special for me to care. And I don't know if I cared about any of the post apocalyptic games shown off at this E3 other than the DLC for Horizon, Horizon which yeah. looked really good. Yeah. So. I will say they did, like, the, the first really big dramatic moment of violence at this E3, which was, like, pretty light on the violence for most of the conferences, other than Bethesda, but they had a good reason to be violent. Um, Bethesda's always violent. Yeah, but in State of Decay 2, there's just this, like, really random part near the end of the trailer where a giant zombie just straight up rips a motherfucker in half, and, like, you see his intestines fall out. It's like, I didn't expect this to get so graphic all of a sudden. That was kind of weird. So that's State of Decay 2. Uh, moving on... Xbox One console launch exclusive. This is probably the worst, most awkward, most infuriating thing that happened all E3. It started off with this weird teaser for a game that at first I was like, is this another Battle Royale kind of thing? What the fuck is this? It's like a yeah. dude in the snow with an axe or something. It's kind of cartoony looking. And then I just, you can see, I say, another Battle Royale kind of game, question mark. More cartoony. Oh, what the fuck? And when I said, oh, what the fuck, is when a man named Jethro Tull, like the band Jethro Tull, came out. And he had a little, like, name card popped up on the screen that said Jethro Tull, Chief Shoutcaster. And then he just started screaming esports nonsense at you for the next 90 seconds. And then it ended. And then I had to quickly catch the name 
the Darwin effect, which was the name of the game that they like briefly showed on screen as if they like realized halfway through how embarrassing this was. It's like, we don't want our game to be associated with this. Just put it on screen for half a second and take it away because this is, this is bad PR at this point. Because holy shit was that awful. Uh, it was awful. It was annoying. The guy basically sounded like Alex Jones, but yelling about something more benign. It's just, man... This is not. That's not how esports works. This is not how esports works. There's a really great piece that is on uh, Waypoint that came up. I think they actually wrote it for the EA conference for the Battlefront Two thing, but it immediately gained an insane amount of relevancy when the Darwin Effect thing happened. Which is just I forget who wrote it, but it's one of the contributors to Waypoint. There's a really good article about why trying to debut a game with esports bullshit on uh, E3 press conferences is utterly terrible. So if you want like deeper thoughts on why that is awful, go read that piece. Moving on. Minecraft. This is the part of the presentation where you remember, oh right, Microsoft owns Minecraft, and oh right, Mojang is not pronounced Mojang, Mojang is pronounced Mojang. It's yeah. just something, I forget both those things every fucking year by the time we get to E3. Uh, Notch called someone on Twitter a cunt today. I don't know if you saw that. Just that today? Yeah, so that was, that was great cross-promotion. Yeah. It's, He's not involved with the game anymore, but still. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Minecraft has a nice patch they're doing for 4K. Yeah, they're basically, um, they have the super duper, super duper graphics pack, 4K lighting super duper graphics pack. That's what I wrote down with a bunch of uh, exclamation points. It basically looks like they kind of wrapped in a bunch of like the PC mods that already exist for Minecraft. So if you know what Minecraft looks like on PC, it kind of looks like that, only not quite as good. Um, I guess they are uniting a bunch of the different platforms they have Minecraft on. I don't really know what that means. We heard there will be cross-play between everything except Sony, because Sony has a stick up their yeah. butt and won't do cross-play. Yeah, so I don't know how that works. Minecraft. They did say, like, specifically, like, Nintendo Switch and Xbox One, yeah. for instance, can cross-play. They had, like, a Minecraft-built Switch on the screen for, like, half a second, which I thought, yeah. like, broke an unspoken taboo that I felt a little uncomfortable about. Yeah, they made it clear later on with press, but um, it is a nice little move they're doing yeah. there. Uh, but definitely, once you're talking about Minecraft of all games in 4K, the term 4K has no meaning. Yeah, which the best part was right after that, that's when Phil Spencer came back, the Phil Spencer, head of Xbox, as I say every time, came back up on stage and he said that Minecraft in 4K blew him away, which is just like, no, come, it didn't. On, come on, Phil, you're, you're like a way more earnest, like upright, honest kind of guy. You don't need to do that. That's not like, that's not your image, man. Don't do that shit. This is also where he said the most amazing bullshit thing maybe anyone has ever said on an E3 press conference, which he said that the games they're showing off are available for pre-order today. Like, yeah, no shit. I can buy these games before they're out. Great. Yeah, I can pre-order all these video games. No fucking shit. You can pre... Of course. It's announced. You can find someone that you can, like, will, like, tell you, oh, I'll take $60 and give you this video game to you three years from now. Yeah. Don't tell me I can pre-order your fucking video games, you asshole. Come on. It's a bad, bad look. But the next is maybe the best thing that happened at all of E3... We were, which this is something that came out from like a very small, brief press release a couple of days earlier from Japan, and I was no way expecting to see this on any of the press conferences. I was surely not expecting to see it uh, on the Microsoft press conference. We had also not seen any footage of it yet, so I didn't know how it looked in motion. But they showed off Dragon Ball Fighters, which is the proper way to say it. It looks like Dragon Ball Fighter Z, but it's supposed to be pronounced Dragon Ball Fighters. And it is a 2D, 2D, but like, you know, with the, the, using the sort of Guilty Gear X Zerd style, like 3D models that look amazingly 2D, um, graphical style from Arc System Works. And 
It looks fucking amazing. Looks fucking amazing. Uh, and and the footage on the Microsoft show was not the best footage of this release. No. So go find like there are multiple gameplay previews. Yeah. Um, I I have played more Dragon Ball Z fighting games over the years than you have. Yeah. I think. And mainly that's because I Arc System Works has done three games before for the series. They did Supersonic Warriors for the Game Boy Advance, Supersonic yeah. Warriors two for the DS, and just two years ago they did Extreme Butoden for the 3DS. And luckily we have gotten all of those over here, and those are. Three of my favorite Dragon Ball fighting games. They are fantastic. I talked about Extreme Butoden on this podcast. And that Supersonic Warriors 2, the DS one, I still play that sometimes. I will pop it in. It is a phenomenal fighting game. Arc System Works is so good at Dragon Ball. And I think a lot of people in the Dragon Ball fan community are like, I'm very happy to have this handheld fighting game. I want Arc System Works unleashed on a console. And it looks like they were not only unleashed... They were set free on a field like horses in motion. And it's beautiful to behold because the graphics and the movement in this fighting game looks outstanding. Yeah, for people who have not seen um, their Arc System Works most recent uh, other console game, Guilty Gear X-Zerd, which is X-R-D is how that's spelled. Uh, like go look footage of it up on YouTube. They recently put out an update of it called Revelator, which is like I have not played a second of any Guilty Gear game, but every time they put out an update to that game, I just go and look up all the finishers and like character intros and stuff on YouTube because it's that's the game where they introduce this incredible graphical style where they find some way to, to take like 3D models and render them in such a way that they appear like 2D images. And then, but so they look like 2D, but you are able to do with them the only the kinds of things you could only do with 3D models. And so when they spin the camera around and that kind of stuff, it's like your mind melts because it's like that's not how that's not how that works. Like there's that camera move can't work with this art style. It's so amazing. And then finally, like them putting out another game with that art style, but then also it being a fucking Dragon Ball game is so awesome. It looks so great. It, it really looks like the manga brought to life yeah. almost more than the anime, which I love. That's really only been done once, which was this game called Dragon Ball... Uh, it was an arcade game. Super Dragon Ball Z. Right. Because it's, yeah. the op- it's not Dragon Ball Super. It's Super Dragon Ball. And that was way back in the, on the PS2 days. But, like, yeah, my the last Dragon Ball console games I truly enjoyed were in the PS2 era with the Budokai games and Super Dragon Ball. Because I think that works much better on a 2D plane. I don't like the 3D Dragon Ball fighting games. Like, Xenoverse has some cool stuff, but I despise the fighting system in that. And so I'm really happy. But I've I've had them on, like, handhelds consistently over the years. And I'm really happy they're doing one on modern consoles. Yeah. Um, This one looks particularly good. Yeah. It's also important to note it is a 3v3 fighter. So you have teams of three, which just felt like this game... And that's every other Arc System Works Dragon Ball game, by the way. Yeah. So, like, that is also how classic Marvel vs. Capcom games are set up. And so this feels like this kind of game just sort of showed up to the show out of nowhere and kind of just, like, beat the shit out of Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite and just stole its lunch because it's, like, it looks... Like, Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite seems fine. This looks way more like Marvel vs. Capcom 2 than their new Marvel vs. Capcom game does, so... It's, yeah, it's it's one of the games of E3, definitely. Yeah. So that was fucking amazing. Then moving on... Xbox, this was, this oh. was a period of the show where they were just rapid-fire going yeah, through trailers. Yeah, so I'm just going to say, basically, what these are. Xbox One console launch exclusive. Black Desert Online, which is a Korean MMO, is coming to the oh, Xbox right. One. Okay, I didn't know what that was, but my brother did. Yeah, it was a very confusing demo because they it was like Black Desert Online does not have a distinctive enough art style for you to be able to tell it just from like images. 
And so, like, I was just waiting for that whole thing for, like, the logo at the end. Being like, what the fuck is this game? And the logo's like, oh, it's Black Desert Online. That game has been on the PC for, like, years now. So, that was weird. Then moving on, um, Xbox One console launch exclusive for a indie game called The Last Night. That is, it's a sort of very flashback or another world-looking kind of game. That's It's pixel art with, like, really highly detailed animation. It looks cool. I don't know what the fuck the actual game yeah, is. Two problems with this. Yeah. One... The trailer was way too brief to give us any sense of what yeah. the actual game is. And then it came out the developer of that game yes. is a horrible Gamergate person and should go fuck himself and I'm not going to play his game. So, yeah. there you go. So, also, kind of ripped off the design of the cars from Blade Runner a bit too yeah. close. Moving on. Xbox One console launch exclusive. Uh, uh, what is the actual name of this game? Uh, the Artful Escape. I think this was the game where it had it was like 2D with like kind of like paper cutout looking characters with a dude with a guitar. I have no idea what the fuck the game actually was. Yeah, another one where, frankly, if you're going to do shows that brief, just don't show it because it yeah. gives me no sense of what the game is. It's like it has a nice art style. I don't know. Um, then uh, a like Dark Soulsy looking JRPG game called Code Vein that is coming in 2018. I don't know. Yeah. Whatever, like, they did not say, they must not have said Xbox One console launch exclusive because they didn't put it down. So I guess that's just coming to everything. In which case, I don't know why they showed it off because it looks like it might be fine. Who knows? Same with Dragon Ball Fighters. That's coming to everything. Yeah, so. exactly. So then moving on, uh, this is another one of the few, like, true, true blue Xbox One and Windows 10 exclusives. Sea of Thieves. Let's talk about Sea of yeah, Thieves. So this, this is was... the third year they've shown it off at E3. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not convinced this game will ever come out. Yeah. But... This was the best look we'd had at it yet. Yeah, it's, it is the best look we've had at it yet, although I still had the same reaction I've had every time they've shown it, which is like, this game looks interesting. What is the like structure of the game? And I feel like for having three E3s in a row, I have no idea what the fuck like, you're actually trying to do. It just seems like you get a bunch of friends on a ship and go off on random... like procedurally generate like is it whole all procedurally generated is it an mmo like do you match make with other people is it like destiny where it's like the matchmaking is seamless but it's not quite an mmo like what the fuck is the game from like a larger perspective i feel like they really I, need to make that clear i have that question and here's my reaction to sea of thieves every single time they've shown it and again i thought this was our best look at it that being relative this nautical stuff is my favorite stuff yeah. in like the world i don't talk about it much on this show but, like, that's when I read a novel, it's something with a schooner in it. Just that's right. what I read. Like, I love that stuff. If you can't get me excited for Sea of Thieves, I, like, I should be more excited for this. That's every time this game comes up, I think I should be more excited for this. And I'm not trying to be selfish. It's just, like, this looks like it's perfect for me, and I, it just kind of is, I'm bumping off of it. Yeah, And so maybe the game will be better. I think some of it is that this is becoming kind of E3 fatigue for me, like... Prediction: Does this come out before the next E3? Uh, no, they they did say early 2018 at the yeah, end of the video. I don't so it. yeah, I don't quite believe it either. But you know. I mean, this this again, this game has been in development forever. I want it to be good. It's really the only exclusive on my radar for Xbox that I have any interest in. Yeah, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, this is also. I'm looking at my notes. It's important to point out. This is the point of the show where I say, at this point, I've sort of lost the thread on all the Xbox One X stuff. The game looks fine, but so many of these games aren't graphically intensive. And it's like, yeah, they barely showed any games that would actually show off a 4K kind of look. Yeah, and it feels like this was the part where I realized they had not mentioned anything about the Xbox One X since the top of the show with Forza, and like we we're like fucking ten games deep, and I was like, 
they are not making a good case for this Xbox One X stuff when I have like had to remind myself through this like demo that was too long, which is why my mind started wandering towards the like the larger perspective. It was like, oh right, that's how this fucking E three started or their their conference started was about Xbox One X, and we're like a whole E three's worth of games away from that point, and they're still just going without ever talking about it. Yeah. So then moving on, um, let's see what's the next thing. Uh, Xbox One console console launch exclusive Tacoma. This is a game I'm very excited about, but it's also been at E3 for a long time. It's the next game from Gone Home. There are like the people from Gone Home at Fulbright. It should be probably really good. It's coming out this year on August 2nd, so they finally gave a pretty concrete release date. So I would expect they're probably going to hit that, because that's pretty close. Yeah, and we will be playing that. I mean, yeah. we loved Gone Home, and yeah that, yeah, that looks great. Yeah, that looks cool. I'm glad that this finally has a release date, because it's like it has been at E3 for a while. Yeah, I missed that it got a release date, so I'm adding it to my game calendar, which maybe I'll share with you guys at the end of the show. There you go. Then moving on, Xbox One, console exclusive. Ooh, that's that's more definitive. Xbox, do you remember what this game is? Can you remember what is the... It's not Crackdown. What is... It's a platformer. Can you remember? They showed off a 3D platformer. Was this the one with the rabbit guy or the it's, fox? It was is it, a fox. It was. It was looked like Conquer, but it wasn't. It was not Conquer. It was... They had this... It, I had such a hard time... Trying to figure out what the fuck it was because at first it was like you could see a like animal mascot character. At first I thought it was fucking Bubsy because they brought <laughs> Bubsy back was something that happened like a couple of days before E3 was the people who make fucking Bubsy games were like, I guess now is the time to resurrect maybe the most forgotten 2D platform mascot of all time, fucking Bubsy. And it's like because it was orange and Bubsy's orange and it was an animal. Bubsy's an animal. I was like. Is Bubsy really going to be on the Xbox One stage? It wasn't. And I was like, whoa, wait, is it Conquer? Because Microsoft technically has the license for Conquer because they have Rare and they put Conquer in that, like, fucking, like, 3D. Rare replay. Yeah, that, like, all that stuff. So maybe they do it. And then it's like, oh, wait, no, that's neither of those. That's a different Orange Cartoon Fox. And then, like, the footage started playing. I was like, I have seen this game. I've seen this character. I have fucking seen this somewhere. And then a light went on in my eyes and in my brain. And I typed into my notes, wait, is this Lucky's Tale? The Oculus Rift 3D platformer? The one named after, you know, Palmer fucking Lucky? And lo and behold, it is Super Lucky's Tale, the sequel to Lucky's Tale, a... uh, very unknown 3D platformer that launched with the Oculus Rift, whose main character is ostensibly named after Palmer Lucky, the man that time forgot, that the man that Facebook shoved into an Antarctic base somewhere and like buried him alive or whatever, because Palmer Lucky's kind of a fucking asshole. And this is not a VR game. This was I thought at first, like, oh shit, are they actually going to talk about VR? Because that was a sort of a rumor that, that Microsoft had a VR sort of solution in play. And nope, this is a non-VR sequel to a VR launch game. Yeah, and I don't even know how... Was it a side-scroller as a VR game? Because what the hell is that in VR? It, it was like you like you had the headset on and were basically you were like the third-person camera. But like you had like it was like a fixed camera angle that kind of followed along the, the character with a track that you could look in any direction. It seemed kind of meaningless. Uh, uh, so basically a virtual boy game. Yes. It, okay. it just... It, it seemed like people kind of tolerated it because you know there were not a lot of VR games when the Oculus Rift launched and I this was probably in 
not in a good way, this was maybe the most surprising game at E3 to me, because it's just like, I would have never guessed in a hundred billion years, if you literally gave me that quantity of time to just name off sequels to video games, I don't think I would ever occur to me that anyone would ever make a sequel to fucking Lucky's Tale. Yeah, it didn't look good. Yeah, it didn't look good. Moving on, something that does look good, Xbox One console exclusive, the Cuphead game. Cuphead. Cuphead's actually coming out. Cuphead looks great. Yeah. I... I, I don't necessarily trust that it'll hit that date. What was the date again? Uh, September 29th. Okay. If it does, that's great. We'll see. It's been at E3 forever, but it does look fantastic. Yeah. It, it, has, it has that amazing sort of Disney, old Disney 2D animated style to it. I have no idea if it's going to be an actual good game, but it has a cool, good look to it. And it's been at E3 forever, so yeah. it seems like they're actually putting it out. Then moving on, Xbox One and Windows 10 exclusive. This, is, this is, was the moment of reckoning. This, for me, was the point at which... The Xbox One uh, conference went from kind of disappointing to being like turning to being like, oh no, this is pretty bad. This is where they showed Crackdown for the first time since 2014. Yeah, uh, a couple things. Yes. One, if you didn't know what Crackdown was, this did nothing for you. Yeah. And and I look, Crackdown isn't big enough that they can go off that. I'm sorry, it's not yeah. Halo, it's not Call of Duty or anything like that. Two, I don't know how you take Terry Crews and make him annoying. Terry Crews is a wonderful man. Yeah. I love Terry Crews. Me too. And three, why are you pitching this as a modern Sega CD game? Because that was that was right straight out of like a, you know, a full motion video, an FMV yeah. out of a Sega CD game, only slightly more annoying. Yeah, so they, yeah, they, as you're alluding to, they started it with this weird Terry Crews live action thing of him talking to the camera. Like it was one of those like old Spice commercials he was in a long time ago. And like like you, I love Terry Crews. He's awesome. He was, when they did the Battlefield 1 thing last year at EA's press conference, he was like the one shining spotlight of a dude who actually cared about video games. And when they interviewed him, I still remember this because it was like I had this beautiful glowing feeling in my heart where he was talking about how like yeah i helped i built a pc with my son and we like built a pc together so i'm gonna play this game like i usually play console games i'm gonna play battlefield one with a pc and mouse or with a keyboard and mouse man that's what i'm gonna do i was like i love you terry cruz i love you you big galoot and then and then he just felt kind of poorly used i guess he's I don't know if he's playing the main character in Crackdown because they showed, like in Crack the original Crackdown 1, which is a game I like a lot, and then they fucked up with Crackdown 2, you got to play as your like pick from a series of different characters and they weren't really voiced, they didn't have any presence in the story, and when they started showing footage of the game, a lot of the character models were like straight up the same designs of the characters from Crackdown 1 in such a way that it's like, none of these people are Terry Crews, who is Terry Crews in this game? Why did they start this off with Terry Crews? I have no idea. It, I mean, this should be like their big holiday game, and I came out. I like. I honestly don't know anything about Crackdown, and I didn't know anything more coming yeah. out of that. It was an utterly incoherent trailer. They did nothing for someone who like loved Crackdown one to death. I've beaten that game like two and a half times. I think it's like it's a really, really fun, very inventive open world game. And they did nothing to sort of pitch on, like, how is this different from Crackdown 1? How does this, like, solve how, the problems that Crackdown 2 had? I like, mean, how is Crackdown coming out in November, ostensibly, yeah. and will never have had an E3-like demo showing? Why? I mean, Sea of Thieves looks cool and all that, but that game has no release date. It might not hit its early 2018 window. Why is that getting a 10-minute demo and not their big holiday game? 
Yeah, it's really Which, weird. Frankly, usually they, that happened with Record too, and then Record yeah. came out kind of broken. So yeah, th- this had really heavy Record vibes to me. Like I felt the exact same way I felt about watching this trailer as I did the Record trailer from the the year. I guess that e- that Record came out. So I guess it was last year's E3 where they showed like this quick like two minute gameplay video that like didn't really like you had no context for it. It wasn't pitched very well. It had no framing to it, and then like that was it. You're like wait, what? Like, that was the biggest trailer you had. The E3 before that was, like, this, like, mysterious CG trailer about what this game was, and everyone was so excited about it, and then you don't even give, like, a big gameplay demo. And so that was, like, when they didn't do that with Crackdown 3, that I thought for sure, if you're showing off Crackdown 3, like, this is your fucking exclusive for the holiday season. It's, like, the first exclusive you've had that is not fucking Forza, Halo, or Gears of War in forever, and you don't have anything substantive to show at it about it is really bad then on top of that if you do maybe can vaguely remember back to the the long distant past of 2014 when these consoles were fresh and young and microsoft was very very hot on all this stuff about the cloud they talked very heavily about how crackdown was going to have a multiplayer mode that where you had the city was totally destructible and it was only made possible because they're they're offshooting the physics calculations of the like building destruction and stuff to the cloud to the fucking Microsoft Azure cloud servers and all this stuff and apparently that mode is still in the game because in later interviews they said it's still there how do you not fucking show at the end of your crackdown trailer if there's a fucking thing where you have a whole like skyscrapers can collapse how does that not how you end your trailer and like, how do you not show that off as the Xbox One X thing? Yeah. Because it's launching day and date with the X. Yes. I don't know. I, I think this game probably also got Mass Effect Andromeda. Yeah. Which I think is going to be a new term for games that are announced, take forever, and then come out broken. And you're like, this game was made in like nine yeah. months, right? It, it's, it, it's the kind of game where it's like, <laughs> it's, you see this trailer and there's a certain stench in the air. Where it's like, I can feel, I can feel the, the troubled development. I can feel like the weird, like forced, like publisher choices or something. Yeah. Uh, okay, so that's Crackdown 3. Very disappointing showing. Um, moving on from that, this is where they had the quick video package of a bunch of games in quick succession to fill out their 42 number. Um, not going to talk about many of them. Ones I sort of spotted out that I like thought were interesting. This one in a bad way. There was a quick shot of a game called Fable Fortune, which as someone who like really loved Fable 1 and 2, I'm pretty insulted that, you know... Microsoft fucking scuttled Lionhead Studios, shut down Lionhead Studios, which was the studio that made fucking Fable. It was like a well-regarded, like, you know, developer that had been around for decades at that point. It's like one of the biggest development studios in the UK, and Microsoft just fucked them in the ass and threw them out onto the curb, and but then kept the fucking Fable IP, and what are they doing with the Fable IP? They're making a fucking Hearthstone ripoff. Fuck you. God damn it. Fable 1 and 2 were great games. Um, then there was another game called Ooblets, which looked kind of cool. There was another game called Shift, which looked kind of cool. And then they also had a quick video of Conan Exiles, which is an MMO, like, early access game on the PC, which is famous or infamous for having full frontal male nudity in it. And I'm really curious if, you know, that Xbox One X 4K power is being put to the proper use, if you know what I mean. Render that fucking dick slider in true 4K. That's what I want. Is that the title of this episode? <laughs> sure, Dick yeah. Slider in 4K. If we did episode titles, that would be the, the yeah. episode title. Then moving on from that, uh, world premiere. Oh wait, no. Uh, no, this is an Xbox One console launch exclusive. It was the like second Dark Souls looking game called Ashen. 
God, I can't remember any of these shots. Yeah, Man, it, it was like two people walking through. It, like it had a cool, almost like PS One look, like like very flat textures. It might be okay. It okay, be I style. remember. Yeah, apparently yeah. people have been hearing about this one for a while. Yeah, that's one where I was like, if you gave me more of this, like that's the thing. Microsoft had enough games in here that if they picked like ten of them. And gone slightly deeper with them, I think I would have come out of this show feeling much more positive. Yeah. But they just threw kind of everything they had at the wall, and it's just, it's it's gunk in my mind at this point. Yeah. I don't remember anything. So, yeah, because if I had not been taking these notes, I yeah, would never have remembered what this was. Then moving on from that was a world premiere, so not an exclusive of any fashion. Um, it is the prequel to Life is Strange called Life is Strange Before the Storm. Life is Strange is a game I like a lot. Um, is now on PS Plus if yeah. people want to play it. It's basically like if a Telltale game was good. Um, <laughs> is my basic pitch. It's like an original story. It's it's got a good time travel mechanic to it. It's it's really well done. And and the studio. This is not the same studio no. that did Life is Strange. They are working on a proper sequel. This is like a stopgap. It's only three episodes. And one thing we learned is one of the two main characters is a different actress because this was yeah. recorded during the SAG. So, after yeah. The so for people who maybe if you played Life is Strange. This is the story of Chloe, who was not your playable character, Max, from the first game, but you're her best friend. And it's about her before the beginning of Life is Strange and her relationship with Rachel, which is the character that's like a big part of the plot, who's kind of a missing character. Because Life is Strange has a lot of sort of like Twin Peaks and X-Files. So like Rachel is like basically the Laura Palmer of Life is Strange. And so it's... So this is their fire walk with me. That would be fucking amazing. I would not guess that. But as you were alluding to, the um, sort of one of the most interesting things about this announcement was that Chloe in Life is Strange was voiced by Ashley Birch, who you're about to enjoy her voice performance in Horizon Zero Dawn as I Aloy. saw that. Yeah. She's really great in that game. She was really great as Chloe. She is a writer on this game, which is interesting, but she is not voicing Chloe because of the SAG After Strike. And this is the first instance I can think of where that has come into play because obviously so many of these games have been Boy. in development long enough that like we are not feeling the effects of the strike yet and this is the one where it's like oh man because also like this is this prequel is about that character and not having the lady what voiced that character voice that character the prequel feels like really conspicuous it almost feels like you should hold off until the strike is yeah. over and have her re-record the dialogue I mean or maybe you don't need to make a prequel to that game because that game does not need a prequel yeah, I don't who know knows? It's, it's weird yeah uh, I just want the sequel to be called Life is Stranger but we'll learn Me about too. that later yeah then moving on from that um, then we had a pretty long segment uh, about Middle Earth Shadow of War a video game whose title I would never have been able to remember if it was not written on my screen. This game looks okay. I continue to think this is my opinion on Shadow of Mortar, which I have played more of over the years because I got it for like five bucks on PlayStation, yeah. you know. I think those games would be vastly more interesting to me if they were original and not using the Middle Earth license. I agree. And this is the same way with this one where I just can't connect that level of bloodshed to Lord of the Rings. I'm sorry. Yeah, it, it is a very poor use of the license. And then also like... Some of the qualms I had with the demo, because the demo looked fine, but it was like, like, because one of my main issues with Shadow of Mordor is after about an hour into that game, you are, you, once you get like the first sort of set of level ups, you're so unbelievably powerful in that game. And then as that game goes on, you just become this just walking death god and nothing can ever challenge you, which really defeats the point of a lot of the systems they put into the game, like the Nemesis system, that is specifically designed around the idea of you dying so that the people who, the, the orc captains that kill you become more powerful and sort of like build up this like Nemesis relationship, which utterly fell apart for me in that first game. And this just looks like you're even more ridiculously overpowered this time around. And that to it, me is like 
It looks it, like a really violent hack and slash power fantasy. Yeah. With really bad writing for the orcs just shouting out garbage. Yeah. And I just imagine J.R.R. Tolkien looking on from heaven and vomiting into his own tears. That is a very good way to describe it. Yeah. So that game is coming out October 10th, 2017. Do everything. That was... Not even that was they didn't have the the like weird man say anything at the top of that trailer. He didn't say exclusive or world premiere because that was just a normal trailer for a normal video game. Xbox launch, Xbox One console launch video games. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Then moving on, this was an Xbox One and Windows 10 exclusive. This was where they had a man play a very sad piano song on stage, and they're making a sequel to the video game Ori, whatever the subtitle that one was. And it is called Ori and the Will of the Wisps. Ori and the Blind Forest. Right. And that was the best trailer at this show, sure, I thought. Sure, yeah. That was a good trailer. I have not played Ori and the Blind Forest. People tell me I need to. Beautiful trailer, and I like the piano. Uh, it was cool. Yeah. But there was no projected release window or anything yeah. on it, so I thought that was like kind of weird. That I had no idea. So like they didn't even say like 2018 or anything at the end of that, so who knows. Then, moving on, this is where they started talking about uh, backwards compatibility, and so they sort of like we're talking around it for a little bit and then we're like yes we are making we're doing the thing to make original Xbox games also backwards compatible on Xbox One I can play Xbox One games on my Xbox One yes you well you can play your Xbox One games on your Xbox One X also or your Xbox One S but I can't play my Xbox One games on my Xbox One no but, but I mean, only select Xbox One games can be played on the Xbox One. But Xbox One games cannot be played on the Xbox 360, except for some of the Xbox One games can also be played on the Xbox 360. But the other Xbox One games can't at all. None of those ones can. But some of the other Xbox One games can, if they were part of like the select list of games that they sort of designed their version of backwards compatibility for the Xbox 360 to export to to support those Xbox One games. Let's move on. Yes. Um. What was the next? Um, then they said the Xbox One S is going to be 249, which we knew because that came out before the conference. And then Phil Spencer said in a very quiet, hushed tone, Xbox One X will be priced at 499, and moved on very quickly from that point. And I was sitting there, and I'm like, yes, of course. No fucking shit it is, and feeling very, very uh, gloatful and arrogant Let's... about all the fucking people writing stupid fucking think pieces on the internet before Let's... he said very quietly, four ninety nine. Let's just do take a moment and think about this, though. Yeah. There are going to be two models of the Xbox One on the market. Yes. One will cost literally twice as much as the other one. Uh-huh. Uh, take everything out of the equation. That makes no sense as a business yeah, strategy. I agree. You're like, you know, new Nintendo 3DS was like $50 more. PS4 Pro is $100 more. You know, if you get an iPad versus an iPad Pro or whatever they do, that's like a hundred or something. It would, you know, this would be like if they had their their iPad and then their their special iPad, and it was two thousand dollars or something. You know, yeah. as it's like base price, it's very bizarre to me, and I just don't, I just don't get it at this point. I mean, it's just Microsoft back themselves in a corner because it's like. You know, it's. It, I feel like this is sort of justifying somewhat of Sony's approach with the PlayStation 4 Pro of it being an upgrade where it can kind of do 4K stuff. Like it has to cheat with the checkerboard stuff, but it looks better and like takes advantage of a 4K TV, but not so. But it is able to be sort of weak enough that it's not super expensive. Whereas the Xbox One X is. Is built to support true 4K, which they said a billion times, but that means it's going to be that much more expensive. And, and, and it's, it's just like. The console market does not like things priced more than four hundred dollars. Like it just no. doesn't. 
And the other thing is just that I think for a lot of people, if you're primarily using your Xbox One as a multimedia machine, you don't need the X. Because the S has 4K Blu-ray support. It's the cheapest 4K Blu-ray player on the market. It's got 4K streaming. It's got HDR for games and for video. So if you're okay with your games not rendering in native 4K... That that is a good console. That is a, that is the best multimedia machine on the market for a 4K TV. And I think it's kind of weird they didn't hold that back for the Xbox One X because right. that would be something slightly more compelling for it. The, you know, it's frankly the S is almost too good for this whole thing. Like it's yeah. a, it's a really good upgrade to the Xbox One. So it's a little bizarre. Yeah, but it's something where they have no choice. Like, yeah, it, no, it, they have like no it, choice. there's no way they could price it at four hundred dollars. Like that just wouldn't make sense. So. It's priced at five hundred dollars. I think that's. I I don't and like unless you know you have a lot of money to spare and you have a four K TV like yeah get it that makes sense. But for most people, it's like if you do not have a four K TV, do not get this because that does not seem worth it at all. Yeah. So then moving on, the last thing they showed, um, they had uh, EA Worldwide executive producer man come out on stage and said a line. I love that he said this. He said, new IP is the lifeblood of the industry. And coming up on fucking Microsoft stage where they showed fucking everything they showed that was an exclusive to their console was a sequel other than um, Sea of Thieves. Sea of Thieves is the one new IP they've had, which is also they've shown for this is the third year in a row they've shown it. So it's like they had fucking Forza 7, they had Crackdown 3, they had Ori 2, they had State of Decay 2, and then fucking EA Man comes up on stage. I don't think he did this intentionally, but to me it very much felt like a, like, don't fucking kick Microsoft right now, man. Did, did you... St- Phil Spencer just had to save fucking four ninety nine American dollars on stage. Like, don't kick him now. That's just cruel. Yeah. But so this is where they did a big, like, about eight-minute debut of uh, Anthem, which is the new uh, IP, like, Briggs' big new game from Bioware that they've been working on for a long time now. That was, now that we know if you've read that uh, Mass Effect Andromeda piece uh, by Jason Schrauer from Kotaku, you know it was called Project Dylan because they wanted to be the Bob Dylan of video games, which is a very weird thing to say. Uh, If anyone's going to do it. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, and, Jonathan, you're a huge Bob Dylan fan. Well, did I, um, you watch this Anthem preview and say to yourself, that sure looks like the Bob Dylan of video games? I said, why does this not have Knocking on Heaven's Door on it? Yeah. I mean... I mean, a very solemn cover right, yeah, of Knocking yeah. on Heaven's Door. Yeah. 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 Why Guns N' Roses knocking... Like, that could have been in yeah. there. Someone has probably made that by now on YouTube. And probably. if not, I'll go home and make yeah. it. No. Um, Anthem looks really good. I have questions about it. I'm not sure exactly what it is, and that's okay for what it is now. This was a very solid reveal. It, even though my stream was really breaking down at this point, it looked utterly gorgeous, like jaw-droppingly gorgeous, much more than any other kind of high-end technical game at E3 this year. And uh, yeah, to me, it looks like Titanfall, Destiny, and what's the other game I've been thinking of with it? Mass Effect, maybe. Mass Effect probably is the other one, yeah. Made Sweet Sweet Love, and we got Anthem. Yeah. And it, you know, I'm very curious about this. This seems like where Bioware's passion actually is. I think you look at this compared to, like, Mass Effect Andromeda, which felt very soulless. This looks like they are very excited to debut this. And it seems like a much more confident reveal of what this is than, say, Destiny was a couple years ago, which was, still had no identity by the time it launched. Yeah. Yeah, this felt like, I mean, I think part of the reason why this game is able to sort of have the strongest pitch is that they are very clearly like, 
going off of the back of Destiny because the setup is very similar. It's humanity is on their last legs and they're hidden in the city behind a wall and outside the wall is bad and you are playing as, I think they called you freelancers and you get into uh, big exosuits and go outside outside the wall and go on a co-op sort of adventures. And so it, it definitely had a Destiny sort of feel to it. I, I thought the trailer and like the gameplay demo looked fantastic, but it was also... Like, we have done this podcast on E3 so much that at this point, like, I looked, I have to admit, I looked at that gameplay demo and said, that video game does not exist. Like, it looked, yeah. it's so, like, far away from release, and it's, like, that it so looked like a, like, particularly the very beginning of the demo, you could tell, and this is also true of the Metro, uh, Metro Exodus thing, I forgot to mention there, that you could tell by the first person camera movements that's like, this is doctored, like, this is not, like, real proper yeah. in-engine stuff. And when they, like, went out into the third person stuff in the world, that looked like that was, like, a vertical slice of a video game. But, yeah, like, I, so, very excited by it, very intrigued by the idea of, like, you know, I love Destiny, I want to see a lot of video games be influenced by a lot of the sort of things that, brought, that Destiny brought to the table. But I also think this is a game that, like, that if you are a cynical enough adult, like, like yeah, I want to have see, your opinions kept in check. I want to see what it actually yeah. is. I'm excited by what we have so far. It, you know, look, I think coming off the marketing disaster of Bioware's last game, yeah. I'm just glad that there was a cohesive pitch. Yes. Yeah. But, other, you know, it, it looks exciting. This could be fantastic. It could not be too, but we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I'm really curious. You know, as someone who's a huge Bioware fan and has been since I like Knights of the Old Republic, for me, like one of the main things I come to Bioware games is like the story and character stuff, and I'm curious to see how that fits into this game because yeah. it was very gameplay heavy. It was very like it emphasized the co-op stuff. They also did, I think, they sort of took a cue from Ubisoft, but really one up to Ubisoft in terms of taking the. Um, like multiplayer chatter thing that Ubisoft does for a lot of their games of having like real people talking but try to like fake do people talking while they're playing video games and they kind of did this here but it was restrained enough that it didn't like get in the way and felt kind of natural. Yeah. I you know, my biggest reaction to this honestly is this is what the follow up to Mass Effect should have been. Like, sure, yeah. Not so very not big bold different kind of game. Yeah, not a literal Mass Effect sequel. But taking what they learned from that and doing a new thing. Yeah. And this looked like, it looked like a Bioware game, but it also looked new. And I'm excited by that. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I think it, it was a really good reveal. Like, it, it had that kind of, like, it, and this is, I think, one of the reasons why I, like, am sort of slightly cautious about it is it reminded me a lot of, like, the first time we saw Watch Dogs yeah. and how, like, fucking awesome that looked. And then we have all been very burned by those kinds of games for a while now. So. We didn't get Watch Dogs Brotherhood at the Ubisoft show. No. Was there anything else at Microsoft? That was it, right? That was it. That was the last thing. Um, I had I wrote here a couple of wrap-up thoughts. One thing I thought was interesting was that there was no VR at all. Like, no, not even a mention of it. The closest hint of it was Super Lucky's Tale. And even that was like... They didn't even say anything about VR. You just had to infer... I guess there, it has to not be VR based on like how stable the camera is. And that nobody's talking about it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, final thoughts on Microsoft. I... I don't want to be too cynical, but I see a show like this, and it's so scattershot and so all over the map, and the actual things that are truly exclusive to the Xbox One don't interest me much at all. The closest is Sea of Thieves, which seems like it has a lot of identity problems going into actual release, and then you have all the Xbox One X stuff on top, and that they can't put a show together shorter than two fucking hours with all that stuff. I just... Part of me doesn't see how if there is another gaming generation like PlayStation 5, I either there is not an Xbox in that generation or it is going to be a radically different thing. Yeah. Now, honestly, that's my feeling at this point. Hmm. 
Yeah. I, I don't know if I would go as far as that, but I definitely... I did, like It just definitely felt like they had a big thing to try to like accomplish at this E3 when they came into it, and that was like establish the Xbox One Scorpio, the size of the Xbox One X, as like a legitimate, viable platform, sell people on it, and then also turn the narrative about their first party development around because like especially ever since Scalebound got canceled, like that has turned on them real hard, and they did not do either of those things to me. Look, even in the years when Sony was in the in the wilderness a little bit with the PS3, where th- the 360 was really driving the industry and the narrative, they still were killing it on exclusives. Like, yeah. Sony has always had that, and the library for the PS3, unlike games you can only play on the PS3, is far stronger than what the 360 had by the end of yeah. its lifespan. And that was going on from the beginning. Uncharted was not, like, ten years into the system or anything, you know? Yeah. And Xbox is having a lot of the same problems Sony did at that period, but without the games. Yeah. And I don't see how you recover from that. This feels like, I, not to this degree, but like a Sega in the wilderness thing more than it does Sony in the wilderness thing, if we're making those comparisons. Sure. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it was... Like it, it wasn't. It certainly wasn't a, like an abject disaster or anything. But it did not. Yeah. It it did not like fix their problems. You know. It was and not the like best games we saw, you can play anywhere else. Except, so. Well, I mean, it's a it's an Xbox Microsoft console launch exclusive. Jonathan, it's, it'll be exclusive. whatever that means. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, want to go talk about Ubisoft? Uh, no. Next up is Bethesda. Oh right, yes. right, right. We can do this one fast. Yeah, this is a quick one because Bethesda. This is as I talked about at the top. Um, this is the first one of the ones that's like this is a very tight. It's basically a video. Is like behind the like marketing dude or whatever Bethesda showed up on stage. It was like here's a video you're going to watch. Uh, we have this framing device of Bethesda Land, which is a fun theme park. And I was like, oh, this is a fun idea. And then you realize Bethesda has like top to bottom by far the most graphic violent games at the entire yes. show. You're like. This whole framing device suddenly felt very sinister in a way that maybe they didn't fully think through. I liked it. I, I liked, I liked it, in, it. I thought it was a fun presentation. I liked it in kind of a fallout way yeah. with like the Pip Boy stuff. It, it. I liked the Bethesda Land stuff, and I, honestly, it was just a fun show to watch. Like yeah. there weren't a lot of, there were no real surprises. There were no huge reveals. I mean, the reveals we did get, we knew were coming. Yeah. But I had fun watching this. It was a solid short thirty-five minutes. Yeah, and it just was. I feel like I have been so impressed by Bethesda. Every single year since they started two years ago, where like when they started their first show, it felt like the only reason they're doing this is because we all know Fallout 4 is like on the horizon and they did it like and it was like 30 minutes of Fallout 4 and then Fallout 4 came out a couple of months later. And it was like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. That was a cool thing to do. And then the year after that, it was like, did they have anything to show? And then they showed, like, Prey and a bunch of Dishonored 2 stuff. It was like, oh, I guess they do have stuff to show. And the same thing with this year. It was like, I don't know exactly what they're going to show. Can they really put... They have enough to do this and make it feel good and I think they totally did even though I knew every single game they showed was going like existed even the ones they hadn't officially announced yet like it was still like yeah this is like a really well put together thing absolutely Bethesda just has one of the strongest brands right now yeah absolutely because I think if you buy a game with Bethesda's name on it it's going to be if not the greatest game ever an interesting solid worth your time worth your money project product You know, like, I, I Prey is one of the ones this year that I'm sad I haven't caught up on yet because uh, my brother's played that on his PC, and it sounds really good. And, and just the ones we've seen here, like, I need to go catch up on Wolfenstein 1. Yeah, you do. I, I kind of... Yeah, you do. The Evil Within 1 didn't interest me, but Evil Within 2, that is a phenomenal horror trailer. Yeah. So, yeah, this was fun. Let's go through them really yeah. quick. So, at the top, I just want to shout out, I loved how they started the show with this video thing of, like, all the kids, and of, of, like, the kids of a lot of the devs, and some of the devs just talking about, like, yeah, my mom makes video games. 
games. I thought that was really cool. Even though you, you stop and think, none of these kids should be playing their parents' games. Exactly. <laughs> but this was before they'd shown any right. of the video games, so you weren't thinking about it yet. <laughs> but it was like, I just like, again, Bethesda just has like had this really cool attitude that they've had for a couple of years since yeah. they've come up as a publisher. And I like that opening a lot. Then they did the all the Bethesda Land stuff as a setup. And then they did, this is the first big VR thing at all of E3 was Bethesda. Um, they did. They showed Doom VFR Virtual Fucking Fun right. Reality. Oh. Virtual Fun Reality, Jonathan. Please, it's a family-friendly show. No, but it's Doom in virtual reality. Like they just sort of showed a quick trailer. Like, okay, I don't know if I can handle that, but yeah. cool, they're doing it. Yeah, like it, it looked interesting. Um, then Fallout 4 VR, which is like they kind of talked about that. I think last year that they were working on it. It seems like it's just Fallout 4 totally playable in VR. That seems cool. I should also point out, I wrote here in my notes, they used the uh, song Mr. Sandman over that trailer, and I cannot hear that song without thinking about the fucking Sleep No More Doctor Who episode anymore, where that song was like, they have the weird pods, and it's like the sleep gunk comes to life as the monster. I cannot hear that song anymore, and it's just the same because I like that song a lot. I think of Back to the Future, I think, with that one. Yeah, that's, yeah. I don't know. That, that... I don't remember that Doctor Who episode. We'll talk about that Doctor Who episode later, I guess. Um, All right. Then, so that was their VR stuff, so they just sort of showed two quick little VR things. Then they talked about Elder Scroll Online for a little bit. They're doing a big Morrowind expansion. They showed some YouTube people. Well, it's out now, so yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's out. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Elder Scrolls Online is, it's one of those many, many MMORPGs that exist that has, like, this really dedicated fan base of, like, 100,000 people, and nobody else knows anything about it. And it's just, like, this, like, fucking Iron Curtain around all those MMOs. So then that was that. Um, then this was one of the, sort of the biggest announcements of E3, but in like a really off-key, like low, or I guess low-key kind of way that I'm really curious to see how this is going to develop. They talked about a thing called the Creation Club, which is basically Bethesda's solution for the paid mod thing that they tried to do several years ago now um, on Steam with Skyrim. And it basically seems like it is a program that... Um, is going to work for a bunch of the different Bethesda Game Studios games like Fallout 4 and Skyrim that um, Bethesda developers will be able to make officially supported mods that you're going to like pay for that will like you know do cool stuff like you know get a cool sword or something in Skyrim but then also they, they there's a lot of like technical specifics in this I have no idea how this program is also going to work but they did specifically say like community creators will be able to be selected to have their stuff be put on this marketplace and they will be paid for that and that's a like big deal for people in the mod community because it's something that's like been ideas being pushed around for several years now about like what do we do with mods? Is there like something more to do here because it's like it's something that can add a huge amount of value to your game, but like do we want to be able to officially support them in, in a monetary sort of fashion? So this is them sort of coming out there and saying this, they're going to give that a try, and I think that's cool. Okay. Moving on from that, they showed off Elder Scrolls Legends, which is Elder Scrolls Hearthstone. Whatever. Moving on, there, there's going to be a Heroes of Skyrim expansion, so we got to hear the Skyrim theme song for what was the first of surprisingly many times at this E3. Um, moving on from that, we've got to hear the Skyrim theme song again in quick succession when we got a little bit of Skyrim on the Nintendo Switch. Um, the man said a pun, a Switch pun on stage. There's going to be Amiibos in Skyrim. It looks cool. I, you know, um, we still don't know a lot of details about exactly what version of Skyrim this yeah. is. My brother, who knows Skyrim better than I know anything, I think, in my life, insists that looks more like the special edition mm. than it does the original because of like the lighting and the color and stuff. So we just don't know. But I do like the Amiibo support. looked fun and goofy. It's got some motion controls in there, which I actually have really enjoyed on the Switch for like aiming and stuff, like in Breath of the Wild and stuff. Uh, and yeah, the idea of Skyrim on Switch still seems fun. I think it's weird we haven't heard a date on that yet. Yeah. 
Yeah. But whatever. Yeah. Uh, it's cool. Amiibos. Yeah. You can have a very, very ugly link in your game that's like, they very specifically shot that trailer so that you never shot his, saw his face. Because it's like, Skyrim people don't look very good by modern standards. No. Yeah. So yeah, that's Skyrim on uh, the Nintendo Switch. Then they showed a trailer for the Dishonored 2 DLC called The Death of the Outsider. I just wanted to, sorry, to go back oh, for a second. Yeah. Skyrim got playtime at a full three of the six shows. Yeah. Which like, is amazing for a game that is now six years old. Like I said, we heard the Skyrim like, we heard that a lot at the C3. Yes. Yeah, so then, anyways, back to uh, the Dishonored 2 DLC is coming out this September. Um, it was just a fully cinematic trailer that was like, it was a pretty cool trailer that was like, you know, I had that, it almost felt like the old boy or Daredevil, like kind of like one shot fight scene stuff. Yeah. Um, it, and and I, that's getting a full retail release, like a standalone. Oh, yeah, so it's. I, I I'm not sure if it's even DLC. It's its own. Like it's like Uncharted: The Lost Legacy. Huh. Yeah. yeah. So, and as someone who who played Dishonored, the Dishonored One DLC and Dishonored Two, I thought like the stuff they set up with the story. We have Dowd, the, the character voiced by Michael Madsen, who was the main character of the DLC um, uh, for Dishonored One. And so he shows up at the end of the trailer and it's like, he says, oh, we're going to kill that black-eyed bastard or whatever. And then it says, death of the outsider, who the outsider is a really pivotal figure in that sort of series lore because he's kind of the source of all the supernatural powers. And if that is what that game is, like, that is kind of an amazing idea of, you know, because Dishonored is a game about assassinating people. And if at the end of this thing, you just straight up, like, the last mission is you just sneak in and fucking slit his throat, that'd be pretty fucking cool. So I'm, I'm excited to check that out. Like, I, you know, I was kind of disappointed by Dishonored 2, but not in such a way that I would not come back for some DLC. Moving on, uh, they talked about Quake Champions, which is their new Quake game. They talked a lot about esports and how Quake apparently invented esports. Um, BJ Blazkowicz from Wolfenstein will be in Quake Champions. They said esports a lot. Yeah. Moving on from that, this is where shit kind of kicked off. We got the Evil Within 2 trailer, which was... Something that, it was been a known secret that they were making a sequel to Evil Within, which is a the Shinji Mikami developed uh, sort of action survival horror game from a couple of years ago. Shinji Mikami being of like Resident Evil 4 fame. And that game did not get received particularly well. I didn't play it. I love Resident Evil 4 a lot. I hope this game is really good. Whether it's good or not, that was a fucking good trailer. Oh, it's amazing. The stuff at the end with like the like white liquid and him going under it and stuff yeah. like the whole like is it a dream is it not kind of dreamscape landscape that we had for everything I thought it was an amazing trailer yeah. and definitely made me think like yeah, man if I can pick up the evil within for like 15 bucks and just give it a try maybe sure. I, can, yeah. I can jump on on the sequel yeah I don't know enough to know like whether or not th- what they were showing was like a direct story connection to evil within yeah. one or not like and I will have to say like we we never got and it, well, this was well known before the show because Kojima kind of came out to say it, but we never got a Death Stranding trailer anywhere, and this was like the closest we the got. closest we got, and I, I could accept that because it's a really well made trailer. That's what if you didn't see that, that is one to go just check out just for like the sake of how cool the trailer is. Yeah, it's good little like five minutes of filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Also, the game is coming out Friday the thirteenth, October yeah. twenty seventeen. So Once again, Bethesda is taking their two games and smashing them on top of each other for the fall, and I don't know why they think that's going to work because it didn't last time. But whatever. But anyways, moving on to uh, the last thing of the show. One of my favorite things at this whole E3. I'm so fucking excited for Wolfenstein 2, the new Colossus sequel to Wolfenstein the New Order. I still haven't played Wolfenstein the New Order, but I thought this like eight-minute presentation was amazing. And the best thing in the whole thing was the opening little short film they had, which was like a like 1950s and 60s Disney when Disney made all those kind of 
uh, variably quality live action yeah. films like Swiss Family Robinson and Old Yeller and Treasure Island and stuff right, like yeah. that. And it was Lysol or something. And it was yeah, this girl and her robot. That was amazing. Yeah, because that is, for people who don't know, like the whole premise of Wolfenstein The New Order was that um, at the beginning of that game, BJ Blazkowicz, sort of the main character, gets knocked out. And you find out when you wake up from your coma like 20 years later in the 1960s that America lost World War II, that Nazis won, and you are in like a Nazi-controlled Europe post-World War II. And so the whole a big part of the aesthetic of that game was taking all these like well-known sort of pop culture things and turning them on their head of like what if the Nazis had taken over. Like the, the New Order had all these great like fake pop songs in German that were like playing off of pop songs of the era. Like I think one of my favorite details about that setting is the Beatles, because you know how the Beatles in real world history got a big part of their start by playing in Germany. And so there's a bunch of their like early singles. There are German versions of it in this continuity of this world. Like the Beatles just stayed in Germany and are like the most famous fucking band in the world, but they're like working for the German government. Basically it is really good. It's a great setting. And so that live action stuff is kind of playing off of that and indicating that they're continuing with that tone. Cause to me, the most important thing about Wolfenstein, the new order was it had this really brilliant dynamic, tone that could be incredibly funny incredibly sad and incredibly violent and just oscillate between those things so perfectly in a way that most video games can't quite manage and this fucking trailer captured all of that perfectly and it looks like it's a pretty direct follow-up to the first game yes yeah like you have bj blaskowitz is there uh, anya is there the sort of the female lead from the first game and she's pregnant with you with uh, bj's kids now it's yeah it is definitely and you're going to america because the first game was set in europe and now there's a fucking nazi occupied america and whether it was intentional or not somehow there are like a lot of video games very directly tackling a lot of fucking bullshit that's going on in america right now in a way that seems like kind of amazing yes i i looked at that and i'm like i will happily shoot some nazis this year yeah yeah so that yeah that trailer is fucking just amazing just like the editing of it all that stuff like just so weird but so good and it is coming out on october 27th which yeah. is d-day this year because it's got that assassin's creed and mario yeah and I want to play all three of them. God damn it. Yeah. So <laughs> Spread out your fucking games, guys. There's a lot of video games coming out this year. You spread them out. I, I, do feel, I do feel like, of those three, the one that might flinch is Wolfenstein if they have to move yeah, something. Yeah, they might move it. Because I don't think it's wise to probably put that out yeah. at the same time as those other ones. But, oh well. Yeah. So that's Bethesda. Wolfenstein looks fucking awesome. Yeah. Fun show. Yeah. Fun show. Moving on. Ubisoft. Another longer press conference. Um, but it was okay. It, it was good. Like I said at the top of the show, they had a lot of fucking games to show off. Um, first note, I was pretty bummed out. Uh, Aisha Tyler was not hosting the show this year. Who She has been yeah. the host of that E3 press conference, I think, for as long as we've been doing E3 episodes of this podcast. Yeah. And she's always been fun, but she was not there. So they didn't even really have a replacement or anything. It was just like... People came out. Just people came out. Um, so first game up, this was a really weird, surreal, strange thing to see. Mario and Rabbids Kingdom Battle. We had Yves Guimard, who is the CEO of Ubisoft, the, the adorable French-Canadian man who's always at Ubisoft, and I love him to death. And he was on stage, and then fucking Shigeru Miyamoto came out holding a fucking arm cannon. Doing his rock star entrance. Doing his rock star. I mean, they had like a fog machine and everything, yep. and, and he came up on stage, and, and it was basically him and Eve shooting the shit. Shigeru was, was obviously talking in Japanese, and so they had Bill Trinan up there who was doing his like translator thing, and it was really cool, weird, surreal to see 
them on stage. It was fun. This was my favorite thing at the Ubisoft show, this and and just what they showed after that, because I was A, pleasantly surprised that Mario Plus Rabbits looks more than just an empty gimmick. Yeah. Looks like an actual video game, and that's good. But also it was just fun to have Miyamoto come up and and Ubisoft and that kind of and that it feels like that relationship being reaffirmed, but not in the sense of they're putting out Assassin's Creed 3 on Switch. Right. They're making a game and this sounds fun and I just thought it was a cool part of the show and a great way to kick it off. That was a high-energy way to get going. Yeah. Although, like, one thing that I thought was a little bit weird about it is, like, it felt like it kind of took a lot of the energy from Ubisoft because it, like, it very heavily highlighted that's, like, right. Like, even if I'm not someone who's, like, deep into the Nintendo shit, like, Nintendo is a heavy hitter in a way that Ubisoft can't quite compete. It's just, like... Man, well, Miyamoto like really dominated that stage. Miyamoto's like the godfather of the yeah. industry. I mean, yeah, he's going to dominate any stage he's on. Yeah. So, yeah. but yeah, it was really cool to see him there because he wasn't in the Nintendo video stuff. So he was we, not. No. Yeah. So we got to see, but Eve was, and we'll get to that there. Um, That's true. Yeah. But anyway, so then, as you said, uh, he was there to show off Mario and Rabbids Kingdom Battle, which is the Mario and Rabbids crossover game that has been another game that has been heavily leaked for for a while now. Yeah. We uh, had the exact key art leaked that they showed. Yes, yeah, yeah. It was, and it, and it does look a lot more interesting than I thought it was going to. Like the visually, it looks really nice. Um, I thought there was like I had a weird note here where at one point there's a shot in the the demo they do where they're like walking across the bridge. In the background, there's just a gigantic toilet with a rubber duck in it. I was like, what the fuck? Yeah, no. It. I mean, I know nothing about rabbits. Obviously, I love Mario, but like. It looked interesting. Like it, it again, knowing nothing about the rabbits, they basically remind me of the minions from Despicable Me. Yeah, I know that's they, basically what they are. Yeah, and I, I thought I should be more annoyed by this, but you know, in this context, it seems like the general atmosphere is silly enough. They annoy me a little bit, but whatever. Yeah. And then, like the gameplay is, it seems like they actually came up with something kind of cool. And well, I mean, they came up with something kind of cool, and that thing is, they came up with XCOM. Yes, because the gameplay of this game is XCOM, like. To, so down to a T that they describe in the first battle they show Mario's special power as, and he gets to like use up his turn, but then anyone else um, moving in the enemy's turn will get shot by him and he doesn't spend his turn. And like, that's Overwatch from XCOM, like the core thing about the new XCOM that's, you are just, you are making an XCOM game, which is cool in the sense of that those XCOM games are really good. It's also just fucking crazy. And this one will probably be more polished. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, my favorite moment of all of this, though, was when they had, uh, I think it was Eves, showed the, the developer sitting in the audience who yeah. actually directed the game, and he kind of teared up. And you could tell, I mean... He had this great... He had a Koopa Daimao shirt, yeah. which is... the Koopa is, is Bowser's name in Japanese, and uh, he... I really want that fucking shirt. Yeah. And it was so cool to see, like, clearly that was an emotional moment for this guy. Like, yeah, yeah I got to direct a Mario game, and, you know, but also a, an Ubisoft game. And, like, that must be an co- awesome career convergence moment. And, yeah, it looks like the perfect kind of thing to have on the Switch. Yeah. Um, it's coming in August. Yeah, August 29th. I mean, God, by the end of E3, the Switch has a pretty loaded release schedule through yeah. through the end of this year, which is cool. But, yeah, that one, you know, uh, I was surprised. It is a full-price game. It's a $60 yeah. game. But, you know, it looks like I will wait to hear reviews and stuff. That might be something I check out. Yeah, like, the one concern I have about it is that if it is aping the XCOM-style combat as much as it is, I'm concerned that the game is not going to be hard enough to make that combat work. That's probably a that's a point. big part of XCOM is, like, how difficult it is and, like, the permadeath. In a way that, like, like Fire Emblem. If you have a yeah. very, very easy Fire Emblem game, the combat is kind of nothing. Right. So, yeah, I'm curious will... to see how they handle that. Mario permadeath. He just fucking dies. I mean, that was my theory is that, because, you know, all the rabbits in the game are wearing clothes and, like, basically <laughs> cosplaying as other 
other characters. What if it's just that you start with the Nintendo cast of characters and then at some point Luigi gets fucking shot and fucking dies and a rabid just comes and takes his clothes and it's like and it basically has his moveset with slightly poorer stats. I thought you were going to say the rabbits are only in the game to be the permadeath things. I mean that too. Yeah. I mean because obviously cause that's, then yeah. that rabbit dies and another rabbit yeah. takes his place. But yeah. yeah like that. Although there is one thing to talk about with that game in terms of like it is kind of weird to see Peach just straight up fucking execute people with a gun. I mean it's a it's a fake laser gun. But she fucking just vaporizes some motherfuckers. Peach has been waiting for this, Sean. Don't take away from her moment. I'm just, I'm just, you know, I just think maybe it's weird to put that game out and then in Super Mario Odyssey, everyone's going to be playing that and it's like, well, why doesn't fucking Mario just solve its problems by putting a fucking piece against Bowser's, fucking the back of Bowser's head and pulling the trigger? That's all I'm saying. He has a much easier way of solving his problems now. We know he's okay with killing. All right. Definitely the takeaway was that should be worse than it looks. Yeah. Which is a good takeaway. Yeah. It was a good start to the show. Definitely. So then moving on from that, um, we got Assassin's Creed Origins, where they talked about something that I thought like was could not possibly be true, but is absolutely true. This is the 10th anniversary of Assassin's Creed, which is like, isn't this also like the 10th fucking Assassin's Creed game? It's the 11th I counted. Yeah, them. it's kind of crazy um, that Assassin's Creed has been along that for as long as it has, and that they've made as many, they've milked that franchise as hard as they have, let's say. 11 games in one movie. Um... And so, but we did get some little bits of information that it seems like the team, the core team behind Assassin's Creed Origins was the team from uh, AC4. So that's a pretty Black big Flag. deal. So yeah, because Black Flag was the last really good uh, Assassin's Creed game. And, and then this is where we can talk about also what they showed at Microsoft because they've showed more there. But since this is a Ubisoft game, I wanted to talk about it with Ubisoft. I, you know, I, Black Flag is one of my favorite games. Yeah, I love that great. game to death. It's fantastic. It, it scratches so many of the itches I have for the naval combat and stuff, but I think that's a great balance between that and the land stuff. It's a good story. I love that game to death. I, I could go play it right now and have fun. And I've kind of been waiting for another Assassin's Creed to pique my interest. Unity came out broken, so I didn't play yeah. it. Syndicate seemed good, but not enough to kind of draw me back in. Yeah. And this one, I'm really impressed with so far. Me I think too. Origins looks... Super ambitious. It looks beautiful. It's got uh, clearly a lot of hard-hitting tech behind it. I think the Egypt setting looks really neat. It'll apparently bring back some of the naval stuff. And just that it's that same team. Yeah. And it does feel like there's a similar sense of invention in this when you watch like the stuff with the eagle or the way they've kind of tweaked some of the series' more traditional uh, aspects and stuff. It looks like a really um, compelling game. Yeah, it feels like it is the update that Assassin's Creed has needed for a while now, where it has been stuck in a pretty big rut since about, like, Brotherhood, like Assassin's Creed 2 and Brotherhood, where 4 was able to break out of that because they added all the pirate nautical stuff onto it, and that was awesome. But other than that, it was just like... Every Assassin's Creed game just kept on feeling like you need that another step up. Like you have been mining this for too long. Like Assassin's Creed 3 was a half step but wasn't as much as it needed to be. And this looks like they're like adding in loot systems. They're making it, it seems like it's more sort of like not like quite the same Ubisoft open world model. I've heard people comparing it to The Witcher in terms of how it handles open world stuff which sounds interesting. They have, like you said, an eagle that is basically like a, an unmanned drone but for ancient Egypt. And But for me, honestly, the biggest thing is, and this is something that I will always come to bat for with Assassin's Creed, is I love how they handle their settings, and Egypt is the most interesting setting they've done since 4. Yeah, and, absolutely. And because I thought they had such a good run of settings of Assassin's Creed 1 was the Crusades, the 2 trilogy was Renaissance Italy, which was awesome, they exploited that too much, 
It's, so it's like it's, it's stuck around for too long, but was a really good setting. And then Assassin's Creed 3 was a really cool take on Revolutionary America. And then past that, it just kept on being like following. It was just following kind of like the Western canon where like you had the brief detour with the pirate stuff, which was cool. But then it was like French Revolution, unbelievably overdone setting. Victorian London, the most done setting probably in all of fucking Western fiction yeah. ever. And it was like, let's get, let's go somewhere different. Let's go somewhere new. Going to like ancient Egypt, like 3,000 years ago, you know, 1,000 years BC. That is a fucking awesome setting that we do not see in video games, that we don't see in almost anything that has such a vibrant culture, you know, archaeology, the religion. There's so much there to explore. And, you know, the one thing you can always count on with Assassin's Creed is that they do their fucking homework and, like, make those places feel real and feel alive. Yeah. And I'm just so excited that they're going for a really interesting setting this time around. Again, I'm sad it's on the day of the pile-up, yeah, October exactly. 27th, because nothing is going to come between me and Mario on that day, but I just hope I have time in November and December to catch up on this one before, like, top ten lists, because yeah. it looks very good. Yeah, I'm definitely, unless the reviews are utterly terrible, I'll definitely check it out at some point, but yeah, this I think was, my priority is maybe more on Wolfenstein. I think it's, yeah, and I think as far as we go with, like, the big titles from E3, like the ones that are, you know, this isn't technically annualized anymore, but, yeah. like, those ones that are just the heaviest AAA hitters, right. I thought this was probably the most impressive um because i think you know something like wolfenstein probably isn't on that same tier just in terms of right. commercial value yeah yeah so, yeah. so assassin's creed origins looked really cool it's the most excited i've been for assassin's creed games since four definitely so the next thing they showed was the crew two i fell asleep yeah that sequel was, to the crew one that was so long and boring i'm sorry yeah it was like they, they had some interesting stuff to show in the sense of, like, the crew, for people who don't remember, and I would not blame you if you did not remember what the crew was. If, was, the, if they weren't showing a trailer for the crew, too, Sean, I honestly, I'm not joking, could not tell you if the crew ever actually came out. Right, I would yeah. not be able to tell you. So the crew was Ubisoft's racing game. It was just, like, a kind of Ubisoft's only racing game they ever made, which is why I think the big complaints, from what I understand of the crew, because I did not play it, was that the racing stuff was very bad. You can't it, prove to me anyone played it. <laughs> Well, I, there's someone must have played it because I have heard that the racing stuff is bad. Okay. I, I read reviews of that game when that came out because I really wanted to know what the fuck it was. But it was like, it's basically a racing game where the big pitch was they made a giant crunched up version of the United States of America where you could fly, or fly, you could drive from New York City to San Francisco and there would be some version of Middle America that existed in between there that, you know... But they sort of tried to replicate a lot of the major landmarks of America and stuff like that and create this big giant map that was like this, their weird French-Canadian idea of what America was like. And that was sound like, it sounded like a really and, awesome idea that seems like it did not pan out all the way. And the crew, too, is going to be a bunch of rednecks in MAGA hats. That's all it is. Exactly. It's the whole country now. I mean, who, who knows? Maybe maybe this will be an intense political satire as you go from different American uh, locales and see like how the politics have changed. That's probably not what they're doing, but anyways, what they are doing with the crew two that I think is interesting is they're adding in a bunch of other vehicle types. So there's like planes, uh, uh, boats, like motorcycles, helicopters. So it's not just cars, and it's like. You know, that's more than just making another video game. You're adding a lot of stuff to oh, that. Totally. It, they said that it's going to come out early 2018. I think the big mistake they made is that they, they did a very long cinematic trailer. And then they did a very long gameplay demo. And it's like, you do one of those two things. You do not do both of them. It went on forever. It went on for a very long time. And some of us maybe were hoping it would go on a little bit longer when we saw the next thing was South Park. And man, it was brief at least. Man, the just the the cultural 
sort of consciousness around around South Park has taken a very sharp turn over the past couple of years in a way that like highlights how long this game has been in development because when it came like first started development it was like oh okay I guess they're making another South Park game and now they're like oh god can South Park just go away please just I can't I can't I can't do this I don't need a show telling us that nothing matters and we're all stupid in a time when there are very real issues that we all need to work on tackling and South Park is nihilistic in the worst most empty brain way possible yeah it's like i'm just really not in a headspace right now where i want to play a video game where one of the main characters is a superhero named the coon which is a fucking racial epithet so it's like yeah, and just not the, super not super into that idea at the moment yeah and the whole game is going to be yeah he's going to be the white supremacist making fun of jews i don't need that anymore yeah south park the fractured butthole uh-huh. they, they 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 missed their window south park just needs to stop yeah moving on um elijah wood talked about vr and in a way that was like, well, that's weird. And then it was like, oh, wait, this is like a weird trailer for a VR game, not just Elijah Wood talking about VR. And it's like, I don't know what the that, fuck that game is. That was simultaneously the most effective I've seen a trailer be while also being completely confusing. Yeah, it is for a game called Transference. Okay. Which is coming out in spring 2018, they had they said. I, like, I have no idea what it is, but I like Elijah Wood. I love Elijah Wood. And and I'm, I'm, I love that he is in this period of his career where he's kind of just doing whatever he wants. Yeah. And they tend to be pretty cool things. I like... Because I, there was something where it's like, I just kind of wished that whole thing was just Elijah Wood talking about VR for like five minutes. Because I just like him hearing him talk about stuff. Because he's a really smart guy. Yeah. He's really fun to hear in interviews. Yeah. So, yeah. That was that was a fun, weird little surprise. I like... that's It's the kind of curveball that... Generally, only a Ubisoft shows at their press conference of just like we're going to put out this like weird fucking video and not say anything about it, and you'll find out more later when that game gets closer to release. Then moving on, this is I think the, probably the most interesting thing they showed. Um, a game by Ubisoft Singapore called Skull and Bones it is a big pirate game and is something that I think probably Jonathan you have definitely wanted. I have definitely wanted since playing Assassin's Creed Four is the idea of. You had you made all this like tech. You did all this stuff. Designed all these gameplay systems around big nautical combat, which you made for Assassin's Creed Three, and then like fully flesh out in Four, and then that kind of went away because Assassin's Creed went to settings where you weren't using that. What are you doing with those gameplay concepts? Because no other games are making it. It turns out they have been making that video game like for a while now, and it's called Skull and Bones, and it's like a big pirate game where you are on a fucking pirate ship and your fucking pirate ships up. Yeah, I I think this looks really cool with like an asterisk, which is sure. that I need to see more of it. Like, right. if it's just the ship stuff, that would be out of whack for me. Like, because the thing that made Black Flag brilliant was the balance between the ship stuff, the boarding, the going on land and exploring the tropical environments and getting treasure and sure, the treasure yeah. maps you got and all that. I don't need this to do necessarily everything that does. But like, for instance, when they did the thing... Where there was boarding, they right. just like cut quickly, and I wasn't sure is that they just play a montage in the game, or was that just for the trailer? Because if there really is like you're just doing the ship stuff, that's not enough for a full game, I don't think. But if that's just what they were kind of pitching us on here, but then there's yeah. also you can actually move a character around and have some combat and stuff like that, uh, and maybe actually have some things on I don't know land in some places. I would love that, but no, I'm obviously I'm very glad they're taking. What was a, a genius stroke of video game design yeah. and doing more with it, uh, and it looked so gorgeous. Yeah, it's just I yeah I love I, they had like pirate shanties and everything. I yeah. just think the pirate shanties was the master stroke here. Yeah, because it, it's just something where it's it's a 
video game sort of concept that's just never really done and it seems so ripe for innovation it is such a great area to be in i'm just really happy they're spinning that stuff off on its own and like turning it into its own thing and, and they focused on multiplayer i hope it has some kind of good single player experience i think too, it, they but... seem to be saying that it's going to have a lot of single player stuff okay. but they were showing the yeah. multiplayer mode but definitely that being a multiplayer thing that sounds like a fun multiplayer thing to do like yeah. i have no real interest anymore in doing like fps multiplayer but I'd do that. Yeah. I, I, will, I will ram someone's fucking boat with my boat. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So that they have a project, projected release sort of window for fall 2018. Although I would not be surprised if it got delayed at some point. Because that's far how, enough. How off. much was everyone at Rare shitting their pants when they saw that? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh no. Because that seemed much more confident in itself than Sea of yeah. Thieves ever has. Yeah. And I, I, again, I respect the effort in Sea of Thieves. But... This seemed more cohesive to yeah. me. I also like they had a little sort of like teasing bit at the end of the trailer that sort of like teased a Kraken thing. Yeah. It was like, yeah, I like giant sea monsters a lot. That is cool. Yeah. So then, yeah. So Skull and Bones, I think one of the big also, surprises out of the show. How perfect is it that the pirate game is being made at Ubisoft Singapore? Yeah, exactly. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's good. Like this, this E3 was very light on video game announcements that took you by surprise. And this was like one of the few there were. And so I very much enjoyed that. Yeah. Moving on, like moving from the most surprising to probably the least surprising thing said at E3, they're making another Just Dance game. Yay. Just Dance 2018, they once again said it is coming to every console. <laughs> it's like, I just love that they could say that. And at least this time they did have a card that said like, Xbox 360, PS3, Wii U, Nintendo Switch, PS4, Xbox One, PC. It's like, Jesus, it is coming out on every console. I can't wait to play this on my Virtual Boy. <laughs> Um, they also, this was accompanied with a lot of people dancing, and I'm, it made me remember how just utterly out of pop music I have been for so long. Uh, I had no idea who any of those people were. I kind of like the K-pop part. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that was cool. I like the people who are dancing like robots, and they kind of look like Sub-Zero from Mortal Kombat. <laughs> anyway. That's going to be on the box. That's going to be the critic statement yeah. on the back of Just Dance 2018. <laughs> Three out of five stars. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> Moving on, we thought we were done with South Park. We were not done with South Park because we're making a South Park mobile game called South Park's Phone Destroyer. Yeah, go away, South Park. Moving on. Um, this was another like weird surprise that I don't think anyone saw coming. Ubisoft Toronto is making a Toys to Life game called Starlink Battle for Atlas. And it will be on a lot of... I think it was going to be on PS4, Xbox One, and is also going to be on the Switch. Um, it is projected for fall 2018, and all I could feel when watching that was like, you guys do realize that most of the people are getting out of the Toys to Life genre, right? Like, that hasn't been, that's like an old fad. Like, the fucking Disney canceled Disney Infinity, and, and like, shuttled that studio, and it's like, you don't, why are you making that game now? Who knows? Who knows? Uh, moving on, uh, they talked about Steep for like three minutes. They're, right. They're like Olympic... Or, or this is going to be, they talked about the DLC that is going to be some like road to the Olympics or something. I didn't know Steep actually came out. So it that came was a surprise out, for yeah. me. Um, I wanted, like, they didn't talk about whether or not the Switch version of that game is going to come out because there was supposed to be a Switch version of that oh, game. All right. The Switch version of that game is never going to come out. Um, yeah, this was also, I, I took a note here, um, Soulful Pop Song. This was a trailer with the Soulful Pop Song. Uh, also, Evil Within 2 had a Soulful Pop Song uh, cover on it. So there weren't as many of those this E3, but they were still here. That trend is not dead yet. Yeah, we could use more Soulful Pop Songs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Moving on. Um, Mario Odyssey almost had a Soulful Pop Song. <laughs> it, 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 was, it was close. Yeah. It was close. Um, Moving on, we got a pretty, like, I actually was kind of surprised by how small this was. A pretty brief look at Far Cry 5. Yeah. It was like, it looked like a, like, 
gameplay. I, I like the dog. Yeah, the dog is good. I like the influ- the the sort of uh, focus on there being this sort of like squad element, and you like commanding this, like telling this lady go up here and snipe from up there. That's something that hasn't they haven't done in Far Cry before, so that seems like that'd be cool. I like the dog. It yeah. definitely seems like they're going for a pretty pulpy tone with that game, which I think is probably the right choice to make. I yeah, I I watched that and I was like, I hope there's more than just kind of the empty provocation to it. Sure. Like, a, but, you know, it, it's a, it was a, like, two-minute video. Yeah. Then moving on, um, this is, like, another, like, this was weird. So this is basically the last thing they showed for the conference, and it was a uh, CG trailer for something I could, I thought I knew what it was supposed to be a trailer for, but did not seem like it was going to be a trailer for that thing. But it was a trailer for Beyond Good and Evil 2, the sequel to Beyond Good and Evil, which is a game I haven't played, but it's a cult classic that, from what I understand, the original game is kind of like a Zelda-like adventure sort of game. And it was a really cool CG trailer. I have no idea what that game is. No, and I know nothing about Beyond Good and Evil other than it's a game people have wanted a sequel to for a long time. So clearly this was a showstopper for a lot of people. But yeah, it didn't really give an indication of if you didn't know what Beyond Good and Evil was, what this is. But then it wasn't for us, so that's okay. Yeah, yeah. It's cool for people who are into Beyond Good and Evil. They're making another one of those games. Again, I'm just like, because it seems like it's going to be a prequel or something. I was very confused. So, yeah, that's Ubisoft. If Ubisoft had cut the Crew 2 and the South Park things, I would have kind of loved the show. Yeah. With that, it kind of bogged it down a little bit, but overall, I liked a lot of what we saw. Yeah. I think, like, other than maybe Nintendo, and I actually think probably more than Nintendo, they had, like, the most stuff to show. Like, Nintendo announced some good games but didn't show a lot about them. This was, like, they announced a lot of shit that you weren't expecting, and they showed a lot of that stuff, and that was cool. Yeah. Yeah. And Elijah Wood is cool. Yeah. Moving on. To finally the last, or I guess, well, okay, there's Nintendo, but like the last big press conference, press conference, um, was Sony. With at the end of the day on Sunday night, or I guess, wait, it was Monday night. Yeah, Monday night. It's been so long. Um, It's okay. So they had, they did basically a very similar sort of show that they did last year. They didn't have a live orchestra, that they did start with some live music. And it was a pretty tight show that was mostly just like trailers for games. Like some of them like were cinematic trailers. Some of them were more big uh, game demos. Nothing sort of huge was revealed, but I thought like it was a tight, well-run show. I had a lot of fun. Yeah. I was glad it was only an hour. And some of the trailers kind of blew me away. Yeah. Particularly God of War and Spider-Man, Out of This World. And, and, yeah, nothing surprising, nothing big in terms of announcements. But I thought, you know, look, Sony's not going to lift a finger more than they have to on, like, services and stuff at this point. Yeah. But they are making a shit ton of good games. And it is the biggest thing to me, the takeaway, was the sheer confidence of just they didn't have to say world premiere. They didn't have to say exclusive or launch exclusive. PlayStation 4 console launch exclusive. All they had to do was open with Sony Interactive Entertainment Presents. And it was like, yeah... The PS4 has kind of a numbing number of exclusives at this point, and real yeah. genuine, you're not playing them anywhere else. Like, if you're playing games right now and you don't own a PS4, you're missing out on so much good stuff. Yeah. And I think that was the message of this show, and no one had to come out and actually say that, which was interesting. Yeah. So let's, let's sort of go down the list of some of the stuff they showed off. It opened up with a pretty good cinematic trailer for Uncharted The Lost Legacy, which is coming out soon. That game looks yeah. so good. Yeah. It, it looks like kind of what you want. I like the... Because we got a better idea, I think, of the relationship sort of that Chloe and Nadine are going to have because they're the, the co-stars of the game. And I like... It has, like, a very different feel than an Uncharted game starring Nathan Drake, you know? And I think that's that's cool. Then next they showed uh, the Horizon Zero Dawn DLC that is coming out uh, later this year in the fall called The Frozen Wilds. Uh, Horizon Zero Dawn is one of the best games that's come out this year. It's fucking great. That DLC looks really cool. Yeah, There's some I... crazy fucking bullshit going on on some giant mountain. 
yeah, I looked at that trailer and I was like, I, st- I need to fucking play this game. And so I went on the PlayStation Store and I bought it and I started downloading it. And the download might not be finished yet because, <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ, it's taking forever. Yeah. And that's not even a particularly big game. It's 40 gigs. There are bigger ones on PlayStation. But yeah, so yeah. I will play that game at some point. Yeah, I also really like the sort of the setup of the DLC as they're going deeper into... I can't remember off the top of my head what the tribe is called, like the Bajnook or something like that. But it's there's, it's one of the tribes in Horizon Zero Dawn that they didn't go very deep into compared to like the Karja or the Osram. And so that's cool that like getting to explore that other sort of corner of the world. So then moving on from that, this is the first sort of like bigger bit of uh, video we got was for Days Gone, which is the zombie game they premiered last year. We got another sort of like larger gameplay demo that showed sort of like people on people combat because last year they only showed the zombie stuff. That game looks every bit as dull and derivative as it did last year. It's something where like it looks like it has some good ideas in how they handle like the giant swarms of zombies and stuff like that. And, and I've heard some good stuff from the people who have actually played it on the show floor this year because it wasn't playable last year. And so I, I'm wondering if like it's a game that does not demo particularly well like on the last I, season because it looks very generic. It but, looks very generic. I mean, not just generic. It looks like a Naughty Dog game. Like sure. It looks like The Last of Us. You take the zombies, the, the swarm zombies out of it. It's like visually, it is such a Naughty Dog game in all of that and it feels like to me some of the writing we've seen very much feels like they're trying to go for the kind of naturalistic stuff that you see in Naughty Dog and yeah it could be a great game when it comes out I just I don't ever necessarily need to see another long demo of Days Gone if yeah. if no uh, yeah yeah I mean it, it's a 2018 game so I'm guessing this is probably the last E3 it'll be at yeah so we'll see I mean yeah. you know they, it's, it's an original IP thing even if yeah. it's again more post-apocalyptic zombie stuff I don't need any more of that but that's okay yeah Moving on from that, uh, Sean Layden was on the stage briefly. I only the only reason I put this here is because he said Persona Five very quickly because he, he listed a bunch of games that are like the exclusive games to the PlayStation Four and that like came out earlier this year. And he said Persona Five, and I was very happy because yep. I think that's the first time anyone said Persona Five on an E3 press conference. And it got us a round of applause. Yes, too. it did. It got a cheer. Yeah, that was great. So then, moving on from that, this is probably I think the biggest thing they showed for like its implications is they had the monster hunter world uh sort of trailer demo which is the world premiere of that it's not necessarily going to be a sony exclusive it is going to be on xbox one and pc but i'll say the way that monster hunter is popular in japan it does not matter that it's coming to the xbox one no it does not and i when this trailer started i sat up and was like what is that yeah and you know i know peripherally about monster hunter but i've never really played one of the games and I, I think it doesn't actually matter for this trailer. That just looked like a good video game. It looked yeah. visually interesting. It didn't look quite like anything else on the market right now. And, I mean, if you read what they're saying, you know, this is not some weird console spinoff. Like, they're putting a lot of work into trying to break Monster Hunter onto the console this market. Is, this is Monster Hunter 5. Um, yeah. Because that's like because Monster Hunter has kind of a weird history where it started as a console game. And most of, like, the big new releases have started as console games and then they have the portable spin-offs which are like got so popular in Japan that they have just like just kept on making portable spin-offs. This is like for all intents and purposes is a Monster Hunter 5. It is I have not really played the Monster Hunter games but I've always wanted to, but one of the main reasons I've played them is they're portable games. And so I'm really excited to check this out. They had some really cool looking grappling hook stuff, which I like grappling hooks in video games a lot. And so fighting and I like I like a lot of things, and two of the things I like are grappling hooks, and another one of the things I like are fucking giant monsters. You put two of both of those things in a video game, and I'm going to be happy. Yeah, no, this so, looks yeah. cool. Yeah, I also really liked at the end of the trailer how he like pops out this little like metal thing that like unfolds, and you're like, what the fuck is this? And it just unfolds into a spit roast, and he starts making some food. It's like, 
Okay, sure, whatever. That's weird. Cool. Monster Hunter. And that's like, and I think honestly the bigger deal with Monster Hunter is that like that has been a Nintendo franchise for a while. It started on Sony platforms, but I think around Monster Hunter 3 is when it shifted to being mostly on Nintendo stuff. And it's a, like, I'm really interested to see what kind of, how that's going to affect the uh, console market in Japan. Because they did not mention it coming out on the Switch, so who knows. Then next up was the Shadow of the Colossus uh, remaster sort of thing, which is, it's not, or it's not a remaster, it's more of like a remake from what I can tell. It is not, because they already did an HD version for the PlayStation 3. This was like, grounded, like, toe-to-tip, completely redone, and... I've never played Shadow of the Colossus. It's one of my like the big holes in my video game Same history, here. and so I'm definitely going to pick this up because I also I love the Last Guardian. So yeah, and it looks yeah that was a great trailer, and yeah. it seems like Shadow of the Colossus with modern tech is a match made in heaven. Yeah, so very excited to check that one out. Next up was Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite. They had a, a quick little story trailer that looked okay. Like I think I would have had a more positive reception to it if we had not already seen Dragon Ball Fighters. Yeah. That kind of like it was like again. I enjoyed that is the final game. I'm interested. Uh, in. I enjoyed the story stuff, and I actually yeah. did play the demo they put yeah, out. Yeah, I did too. I did play it earlier today. I thought it was fine. I thought it was fun. Uh, Captain Marvel was cool to play as. She had the best moves, but uh, you know, whatever. We'll see. Captain America set stars and stripes, and that's all I needed when I did. Sure, you can move. Yeah, like I, I will. Have to, I do have to say with Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite, like playing that because I played a lot of Marvel vs. Capcom too. It's one of the handful of fighting games I got into, and. It's like Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite seemed fine based on the, the demo um, they put out. Because this is also where they announced the demo. That they were putting it up on PSN. And it's like, it seems fine, but it also seems like very obviously inferior to Marvel vs. Capcom 2. And I never played 3, so I don't know how that one is. But like, I don't think Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite doesn't look very good. I don't think like the character models look great and stuff like that. It, it doesn't, doesn't seem move as inspired as quickly. overall, yeah. Yeah. like So it just like feels like I don't fully understand why I make that game when it's like... Marvel vs. Capcom 2 has not aged a fucking day. Like, you could play yeah. that game right now, and it's, it looks amazing, and it plays amazing. So, anyways, moving on. Uh, they had a quick little trailer for Call of Duty World War II. That's coming out on November 3rd. I would kind of like, at some point, to see actual gameplay from this. Yeah, like but, a more proper gameplay demo. Because remember, like, last E3 at Sony is where we got the gameplay reveal of Infinite Warfare, which made both you and I play the game. Yeah. And I still kind of want to see that for World War II. It looks cool for what it is. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really curious also to see what the multiplayer is going to be like on that one. Just because obviously yeah. there's a lot of stuff you're going to have to change about what modern Call of Duties have done. Because they don't have exosuits or any of that yeah. kind of stuff. I can't imagine I'll have time to play this given everything no, else coming out this year. fall. But, you know, whatever. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah, I think like uh, Wolfenstein has like taken up like the main sort of like first person shooter slot in that time area for me. Um, then they had, they moved into their PSVR section, which like, I was actually, even though I don't have a PSVR and I'm probably not going to get one, I was at least relieved that like, they haven't utterly abandoned it immediately. That was yeah. like, they had a decent little showing of VR games here. Um, they had Skyrim VR, so we got more, more Skyrim. Skyrim. Um, sure. You just fucking throw Skyrim into, onto everything. Like, I'm, I'm kind of amazed there isn't a mobile Skyrim at this point. Um, it's a popular game. It is, it is. It is. One might say one of the most popular games ever. Um, yes. Moving on, there was a another VR game called Star Child, which was like a side-scrolling game. That was one of the ones that like that looked cool. I thought. it looked cool, but it was one of the ones where you could tell how hard it was to like do a trailer for a VR game because like I couldn't figure out where does a VR come in like to this. Um, but it's it had a cool look to it. Then there was a game called The Inpatient, which is a VR horror game, which is apparently. 
um, set in the Until Dawn universe, which was the the horror game that Sony had a couple of years ago, which I was kind of surprised that they didn't highlight that. That was something I only found out after the show. Huh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Seems like VR horror game. Yay. There you go. Next up was the, the, the two things I really liked. There were two VR games I liked, and this is one of them. Final Fantasy XV VR. Fishing game. And it is, they, they did the fishing. If you remember last year, they did a brief demo for a Final Fantasy XV VR game that looked fucking terrible, which was them like teleporting around and you played a prompto shooting a monster or something. It was like, this looks bad. And this is like, yes, if you're going to do a fucking Final Fantasy XV VR game and you want to do it right, you do the fucking fishing. And that's hey, all you need. It is the closest anyone's gotten to making me want VR. Yes. Final Fantasy XX-R. It's Final Fantasy XPVR. There you go. Okay. It's, it's the 20th Final Fantasy game and they fucked it up. <laughs> Moving on. Um, a brief trailer for what is maybe the most generic fucking video game ever made, at least based on the trailer, is a VR multiplayer shooter, like a military shooter called Bravo Team. Yeah, whatever. Bravo Team is a very bad name. Other than the Final Fantasy thing, this whole VR thing kind of just washed yeah. over me and was probably the slowest part yeah. of the show. But then, this is like the one VR game that I thought actually looked really cool, was Moss. This was a, like, you, it looked like you were kind of like this VR, like, god or something that was helping this little mouse on his little, like, fantasy adventure. And I liked, I liked it. Yeah. It's cute. Yeah. Yeah. I like the weird subgenre of fiction, which is smart little mice going on fantasy adventures. I don't know why there are so many stories that have that basic structure, but I like them a lot. Yep. Uh, so that's 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 what they had to show for VR. Again, like doesn't do much for me because obviously I can't even play those games. But I like that they're I like that they're still going at it and haven't just like completely abandoned it yet. Like I'm curious to see where VR goes in the future, and I think PlayStation has a good position in that market right now. The next up, they showed a pretty big cinematic trailer for God of War that's going to come out. They said early 2018, so I, I'm hoping that's a like spring 2018 kind of game. I have no relationship with God of War. Yeah. And I'm loving these trailers. Like the one good. last year, this this was just a, a showstopper, jaw-dropping, outstanding look at this game. I can't wait for it. I hope they give it a title other than just God of War, because stop, fucking stop that, guys. But yeah. God of War 1. No. God of War X? I want it called God of 4, just because they didn't do it for Gears of War 4. I want someone to do that. Okay. I mean, th- this very, like, kind of dark, somber-looking game about a violent dad and his son is definitely the place to have it show on your, your It title. should have been Gears of Four, but they dropped the ball, so it falls to God of War to be God of Four. Someone has to do it, because not even fucking Transformers could do the Transformers thing, and I need someone to do this for me. Honestly, I, I legitimately thought that Transformers did do the Transformers thing, because that's did the not. only way I've ever seen that movie referred to. That's what everyone does online, yeah. but no, there was no official marketing as Transformers. It's like people did that so persistently. I literally do not think I've ever seen the words written out Transformers and then the numeral four. I have only ever seen it referred to as Trans the numeral four Mers. Yes. Anyway. Um, yeah. God, God of War. Looks so good. It looks really fucking good. It, I like that they had a different kind of style for trailer. That like last year when they sort of debuted it, it was a very a pretty long, very somber, slow like gameplay demo. And like I like the tone of that a lot, and I like that this they took a slightly different tack with it. That it has that similar sort of tone to it, but it, it was a bit more like you know it was, it was definitely a cut together trailer. It had a lot more sort of action to it, and it captured a little bit more. Of, you could kind of see the heart of like classic God of War like sitting in there, especially 
I loved the end of it when they have Jormungand, the world serpent, and it was like, oh, right. This is one of the things that God of War did that fucking no other video game does as well, is just have these giant creatures, these gigantic monsters, like, actually there, and I'm really excited to, like... Because that was just something I had kind of forgotten about it that they didn't show at all in the first demo was, like, the spectacle that God of War could do with their, their like, sort of mythological settings and their mythological characters, and... I really want to see that. This like, was nothing if for this trailer was nothing if not spectacular. Yeah, yeah. Jormungand, I just oh, I really want to see what they do with all the other North mythological mythological monsters and stuff. That game looks fucking awesome. Yeah. Moving on, uh, a very David Cage trailer for Detroit Become Human. Look, I still don't know if De- if David Cage can make a good game, but he can make a good trailer. Yeah, Detroit looks good. Yeah. Like Detroit, and honestly, Detroit looks like it has a better chance at being good than Beyond Two Souls, sure. which also trailered very well. But I, I just I see more hooks in Detroit that could be interesting. Yeah, like I, I, at this point, I can't help but look at Detroit Become Human and like kind of roll my eyes at the David Cage ness yeah. of it. Like I, there's like every chance that that game comes out and is really good because it's not like his games have not been like, like, uh, like utterly terrible or anything and utter train wrecks or something like that. But it's like. He's always going for something very ambitious, and then he has all these like weird writing quirks that he can't quite get under control that like tie him up in the end. It's just like Heavy Rain was such a fucking disappointing game. I hope Detroit Become Human is a lot better because I want that dude to make a really good game. Yeah, yeah. Then next up, we got uh, a brief little cinematic trailer for Destiny Two. That kind of got. I like that we got a, a kind of an interesting look at the villain to Destiny Two that like I hadn't really thought about there being a villain in Destiny because Destiny 1 did not really try to set up something as an antagonist and it was something I'd never really thought about as a weakness in that game that you don't have a strong sort of like objective to work at like or a force to work against and I like that this this trailer really focused on this the fucking cabal dude who has showed up to fuck your shit up yeah yeah Destiny 2 looks great, other than the fact that I slightly resent it because it's going to eat up a lot of my time in a very busy part of the year yeah then they also had a quick roundup of this is getting the same kind of exclusive content for uh, PlayStation that Destiny 1 did. So it's like Fucking strikes and PFP, PvP map and like a weapon and all that kind of stuff. It's still stupid. Yeah. And I don't like it. Yeah. Anyways, moving on to the last thing from Sony. One of the coolest things at E3. We got a big, big, like eight minute long demo of Spider-Man which was the Insomniac game that we got like, a brief teaser of at last year's E3. And this was like, this is fucking nuts. It's so good. It's really fucking good. It's so good. I was giddy watching this. It was it's, really fucking good. It is every bit from that demo, the Arkham Asylum version of Spider-Man. Yeah. Of like, that is a Spider-Man game, man. Made by actual people who make games. And who who make games and who love Spider-Man because it yes. was also like the Spider-Man-ness of it was so fucking good. That like, you know, and I like that, you know, they had this big, huge cinematic sequence with quick time events. But I like the way they handled the quick time events and how they like visually gelled into the scene in a way that made yeah. sense. And it felt like all the actions that, you know, who knows how I'll feel when I actually play the game, and I hope these things are not incredibly frequent, but I like that all the quick time event actions that, like, in buttons you press seem to, like, very directly and logically correspond to what Spider-Man was doing, yeah. not in the way that, like, bad quick time events are just, like, 
you're pressing a random button and have no idea like what effect you're having on the world. Like it was this very beautifully orchestrated, very clear, legible action like sequence. You know? It reminded me of like a really good like Naughty Dog show off moment. Yeah. You know, like the the car scene in Uncharted Four that they showed off at that one E three of just like yeah, not every bit of this is fully interactive, but boy, that looks cool. Yeah, and it's just it's such a fucking perfect Spider Man. Like every single beat of that scene is such a brilliant spider-man sequence of like you know him like he's because he's desperately trying to hold this crane back from collapsing while he's also trying to chase after the the helicopter that has all the bad guys in it and the focus on him like limiting uh collateral damage as much as possible is so good and is so peter parker you know and i the best part is the little detail when after he gets knocked off the roof at the beginning of the sequence and you can tell he's passed out for like a brief second and he just comes to with like a huh and then he's like oh shit and then he has to like figure all that shit out like in midair that is so spider-man yeah it's so good i love the voice of spider-man in this yeah it's a uh, yuri lowenthal it's a uh, yosuke oh it is yuri yeah. lowenthal okay i thought it might be alm from fire emblem echoes he sounds very similar that's not yuri lowenthal though okay. so okay yeah, yeah, he's definitely nice. Yuri, which is interesting because there is another character in the game, in like the demo, named Yuri that he is talking to. Nice. And I thought I was having a brief mental break for a well, second. Yuri Lowenthal's a great actor, yeah. so that's awesome. And at the end of the show, oh yeah, we got Miles Morales. Yes, there was a brief teaser of Miles Morales uh, seeing the wreckage at the end of the the sequence, and that is a very exciting tease. I my guess is that hopefully that means that you play as both Peter Parker and Miles Morales because I, I think like. It is definitely you are playing as or that is definitely Peter Parker as the Spider Man for like the whole demo, but then there's also Miles Morales there. Yeah, that would be really cool if you that would be really both cool. Of them. Yeah, yeah, and if you could kind of go back and forth, I'd love that. Yeah, no, it's awesome, and and I love Miles Morales. They're also making that animated Spider Man movie that's going to be a Miles Morales yeah. movie, so he's getting some uh, kind of mainstream pop culture penetration here, which is neat. Yeah, because also the um, an interesting bit was the, the sort of the villain they teased at the end was Mister Negative, which is a like very recent Spider-Man villain from like past the point where I was actively reading Spider-Man comics. So it's like past all the bullshit with like One More Day and stuff. Um, so it seems like they're leaning into more modern Spider-Man mythos stuff in a way that's cool because it's like you know there's only so many times I can fight fucking Vulture and Rhino and Doctor yeah. Octopus and and. Shocker and stuff, you know, like throwing in some of the newer characters is a good idea. But this is great. Uh, other until we got to Nintendo today, this was my favorite thing at E3. I loved the Spider-Man trailer. Yeah, the Spider-Man thing is fucking just awesome. Yeah. So Sony, thumbs up. Yeah, thumbs up. Like I wish that they had something bigger, like a bigger surprise to show. Like the fact that there was no big new game there was pretty disappointing. But I think it is also an indicator of. And a reminder of, like, right, they had an event about six months ago where they showed off Last of Us Part Two and, like, Nido Kuni 2 and stuff. That yeah. they, and they're going to have another event six months from now where they're going to show more games. And it's one of those things where you have to remember, like, E3's not what it used to be. And, like, PlayStation has a whole other means of getting themselves out there and announcing their games. Yeah. E3 needs PlayStation. PlayStation doesn't need E3. Yeah. Whereas Microsoft, like, does need that stage. And I think you saw that in the two shows. Yeah. And it, it feels like maybe Microsoft should get its own show or something too. If like it, because I don't think like you can't do the Microsoft thing of just showing trailers for twenty fucking games in a row and like and all like most of those trailers being about like ninety seconds long. You can't do that. Like it, it's fatiguing on your audience and you don't learn yeah. anything about the games. Well, let's transition into Nintendo today yeah. because I think again I said this earlier. I think Nintendo had its finger on the pulse of E three very well uh, last year and this year of. 
video presentation, basically a distilled kind of version of what Sony and Bethesda did, but like just a solid 25 minutes. Here's some cool things we want to show off. That was really nice. And then it transitioned into the treehouse thing, which I really like. I think it's a really fun way to just like, they sit down, they have, I I like the treehouse hosts. I like that they have the developers there. They have the translators and they just play around in the game. I don't think they give too much away or anything. I mean, God, with Breath of the Wild, we thought they showed a lot. That was just the Great Plateau. We didn't even see like the inside of a shrine or anything in that. And here was Mario Odyssey. And they played that for a while and showed off that. And they took a little break and then they came back and they had just Fuck it, let's give you another Metroid game. And, like, it was fun, and you could kind of watch as long as you wanted to, but it was short and sweet, and then, like, if you wanted to be there for in-depth stuff, they had it for you in a really nice package. So, I like how Nintendo does this. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I I miss some of, and it's not Nintendo's fault, I miss some of the humor that Satoru Iwata would bring to these directs. Yeah. And they've tried... But, like, this was more like... Because Reggie doesn't do the humor. Reggie does kind of the earnest stuff. And that's fine. I mean, Reggie said at, like, the beginning, games are fun, but games are also a battle. And it's like, yeah, what? It was weird. But, like, I do wish, like, they kind of find some way to just spark these up a little bit. But they're still fun and light, and that's yeah. fine. Yeah. yeah. I wish they had a bit more of, like, a framing or something around it, the way they did a couple of years with, like, the puppet stuff, you yeah. know? In the way that, like, Bethesda had with Bethesda Land. Um, but, yeah, so let's, like, kind of go down some of the stuff they showed... Um, so they, they showed at the top, there was like a quick lineup of like them showing some of the games that like we all know about of there's, they showed arms really quickly. They showed rocket league really quickly. They went back through later. They showed Pokin really quickly. They showed FIFA really quickly. They showed Splatoon, Splatoon 2 yeah. really quickly. And just like, you know, they did their whole live action commercial. Although this time it was like, like some of the scenes looked like it was like they shot it in like during like the fucking 70s cult film The Warrior or something like yeah. what the fuck is this what is this? like eh. this like biking gang or something every time we see people taking their switches out in public in these ads it gets more ridiculous yeah. which I kind of enjoy there's something about like leaning into that that's fun but yeah, yeah. so that was like an interesting like you know just a quick little commercial at the top then you had Reggie going on about how games are battles and I was like I, I guess we're not going about. to see Animal Crossing because that is definitely a video game that is, does not have conflict in it at all like, God, you're great. Nintendo. You're, you're, you're like, make the most games out of any major developer that does not have battles or conflicts or competition. How in fantastic it. would it have been if he had done that and then the first announcement was Animal Crossing? Yeah. 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 So, Reggie is a very intense, aggressive man. I like him. But sometimes the things he says doesn't make any fucking sense. It's, he's weird when he's scripted. Like, later on, I tuned into a Treehouse part that was just them interviewing him. Yeah. And off the cuff, I actually like hearing from Reggie. I like Reggie a lot. Like, yeah. like you said, it's just like sometimes he comes across a little bit weird in, yeah. when they give him the script. Yeah. I feel like Nintendo has created a character for Reggie yeah. that, like, he's maybe grown out of. Like, yeah. he, he's he's a sweeter man than the Legend yeah. Um. So then moving on to, like, them showing the proper video game stuff. Um, we got a trailer for Xenoblade Chronicles 2, which was maybe the most JRPG trailer for any video game I have ever fucking seen. It was very JRPG. It was our only major JRPG trailer at any of the shows. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't play Xenoblade. I'm probably not going to pick up this one. It was a very pretty trailer and reminded, yeah. like, oh, the Switch can make some really nice-looking games. Yeah. So. They did say it's going to come out holiday 2017, which I, I did not think that that game was going to make that. I mean, there's still a chance it'll get slipped, but yeah. who knows. They've said it several times now, so... Yeah. Yeah, and I, pretty I like their commitment to having weird British voices yeah. in, in the dub. I don't think those people are actually British. No, I feel like the main character's accent changed between like being like a high class British to like a like lower class British to being like Scottish like five times. Yeah, but it was you know look if you like Xenoblade that was a cool trailer. So yeah, 
So then next up, um, they showed a quick little thing for a Kirby game that I guess is just called Kirby. I don't know if that's a working okay. title. They did that for Yoshi also, yeah. and I really doubt either of them are just going to be called Kirby yeah. or Yoshi. But it seemed like this was an early announcement, and it looked cool. Like, Kirby has been on an insane hot streak if you've been yeah. playing the 3DS. Like, Planet Robobot was in my top ten last year, and this looked like... Kind of more back to basics. It didn't look like it had some of the same gimmicks as like a Robobot. Yeah, it looked like the Nintendo 64 game to me, which is the main Kirby game I played. Yeah, but it looked really cool. I mean, it looked gorgeous. It's going to be a full Switch game. It was the first of our indications that, okay, Nintendo is fully revving up yeah. to support the Switch as fully as they can. And, hey, I'm really happy there's going to be another Kirby game. And if it's just called Kirby... That's fine, I guess. It's a little weird. I'd yeah, look- at some point, it's just like when you just call it Kirby, It to me, it highlights that it's like man how much Nintendo leans on its IPs like it's yeah. old IPs that's like you can't just call this Kirby no, because they, then it's like because then at some point you're just going to call every Kirby game just Kirby yeah no not to skip ahead too far but my main indication that this is a working title is that the Yoshi game clearly is some kind of like paper Yoshi yeah or it, looks, it looks like a yarn Yoshi game yeah, yeah. And so it'll have some fun title. I'm sure this Kirby one will yeah. too. It was hard because this Kirby isn't doing any visual gimmicks. Looks like a good game, yeah. and I'm happy to have one on the Switch because that's the other thing about the Kirby 3DS games is they are visually kind of breathtaking. But you know the 3DS can only go so far. So seeing those teams come to the Switch and do something fully for a home console is awesome. Yeah, and, then, and so they they said just 2018 on that yeah. one. Um, then I, I don't remember the full context of this, but I wrote it down because I thought it was an interesting thing that they said. Um, was they just basically one of the, the people that like briefly said that the Switch is a home console that can be taken with you anywhere. I thought like, I don't know if Nintendo has ever really specifically phrased it in such a way that'd be like, They've said it is that. a home console that you take that is portable. And it's like, I feel like you, for me, ideally you would like not be that definitive on like that perspective on it and would be more about like it's both. Like it's not just, it's not a home console you take anywhere or a portable console that you sometimes plug into your TV. It's both those things equally. Yeah, they've been saying that sort of to journalists and stuff and they've, it's kind of, they've always called it like their new home console. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, and it's kind of funny because I want to have this discussion at some point now that I've had the Switch for a while. Which one is it? And I kind of view it as a portable that I put on my TV, but I also really like portable systems. So, And that's the, the great thing about the Switch yeah. is it is both, and I think you're right. And the weird thing was, like, you position it that way because you're positioning it against the 3DS, right? But yeah. this show didn't have any 3DS, so you didn't really have to do that. But oh well, it was yeah. one line. I just thought it was like a weird, it was just a, like a, a line that kind of stuck out to me. And so then they talked very briefly about Pokkin Tournament DX, which I guess is going to have a couple of new Pokemon in it. The main thing to get from that is they had the most low-key video game announcement ever, which is just the Pokemon guy saying, oh yeah, and Game Freak has begun developing a core RPG title for the Nintendo Switch. It's like, what? Yeah, no. Wait, is that really how you're going to announce? I mean, we all know that they are, but is that really how you're going to say it? Well, and here's the thing. We don't. We didn't know, no. Like, we knew, knew. but but at the same time, the 3DS has been a very good home to Pokemon. I think there was... Game Freak has been really non-committal with that in saying that they view Pokemon as portable and all this stuff. And I think some people were worried that they were not going to be as aggressive in getting Pokemon on the Switch as they should be because that's also something I think the series needs to move forward. So to hear him just say core RPG, the word core I think is the important one there. 
yes, that's good to hear. And he said it'll be at least a year away. But yeah, I did kind of like that it was like a Game Freak producer just kind of low-key being like... Like, it almost felt like they left that in on accident or yeah. something. Like, he just said that during the interview and they forgot to cut it out. It was also, like, what the fuck? Pokemon Stars isn't a thing, right? We can say there's, that There's now. no way it is. There's yeah. no way it's a thing, yeah. I, I just hope that they, they call this new Pokemon game just Pokemon. This <laughs> <laughs> is just called Pokemon? Yeah. It's Pokemon, it's Kirby, it's Yoshi. They changed the title of Super Mario Odyssey to just Mario. It's like, <laughs> this is all Nintendo games going forward. It's just that. Um, all right. So the next up, we got um, we got a logo treatment for Metroid Prime Four, which was probably the biggest surprise of E3 for me. Yeah, they're actually making a Metroid Prime Four. I yeah, it was. I mean, you're you're underselling it. Yeah. What it was is it started in space. Yeah. And I leaned forward and went, no, 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 no. It's not. No, it's not that. And then a thing starts forming, and you hear some of the little because Metroid Prime has this very distinctive score where it's a lot of like weird technical and like animal noises things. Right. And you start hearing, I'm like, they're is this Federation Force 2, you motherfuckers? I mean, it and still then, could be. And then the logo starts forming to an S, and it's like, okay, that's the Samus S. Yeah. This is a core Metroid game. I didn't know if it was going to be 4 yet or anything. And then there's a 4. I was like, they're milking it. They know what this is. And then it's Metroid Prime 4, now in development for the Nintendo Switch. And, yeah, that's really all they needed to show to kind of bring the house down on yeah. that. <laughs> that is a surprise. You said on this podcast it would never happen. I, I mean... I'm not necessarily convinced that it is going to happen because yeah. I mean all they said is is in development now. Yeah, and it has come out after the show that Rare is not making it or Retro. not uh, Retro is not developing it, but also like Retro, like the people who made Metroid Prime are not necessarily well, at Retro. Anymore, that's what I was going to say because I've already heard some freak out on that, and it's weird because yeah, most of the people who made the Metroid Prime for one. Metroid Prime 3 was 10 years ago, guys. Yeah. Like, even if some people had stayed, that it would just be a different studio through the passage of time, you know? So, yeah, Retro, I think it's a very different studio than it was back then. The core producer of the Metroid series, and of Metroid Prime in particular, is heading the game. So, you know, it'll have that kind of leadership. And, yeah, in general, I, I don't think Nintendo is going to give Metroid Prime 4 to a bunch of idiots. Sure. And not know what they have, you know? Like, yeah. Like, yeah, I, I would not be that worried about the developer switch. I think Nintendo has plenty of good partners they could work with on this. It could be an internal thing. We don't know. I mean, yeah. it could be one of their Nintendo R&D 8 or whatever. I don't know what they all are. You know, so I would be very I'm curious to see where this goes. We actually got a much more solid Metroid announcement later. Yeah. But just to see Metroid Prime 4 up there, yeah, I think a lot of people thought, you and me included, that just was never going to happen. Yeah. And that was really cool. Yeah. So, hell then, of a surprise. Yeah. So then they talked about Yoshi, which is coming out in 2018. I felt bad for that trailer because it's like, after Metroid Prime 4, anything was going to feel like a letdown. Yeah. And look, it's probably going to be a perfectly fine Yoshi game. It didn't quite look like yarn. It was more like... It looked actually just like the visuals to the last Paper Mario game on Wii okay. U. So I will exp I will predict this game will be called Paper Yoshi. But we'll see. I think it's just going to be called Yoshi. Okay. I don't actually think that. I just want that. Because I think it would be so funny if, they, yeah. if that's how they went with it. Um, next up, we got a uh, trailer for Fire Emblem Warriors, which is coming out fall 2017. And most importantly, they did not show Lindis in it at all, so I don't give a fuck. Yeah, and I don't think it has characters from that game. No, yeah, it, it seemed like it was mostly like the recent Fire Emblem characters were showed off. Yeah, it's it's Fate. What well, was Marth? Obviously, yeah. is the exception. Fate's Awakening, and not just Marth, but the characters from like that first ever Fire Emblem. So yeah, we'll see. This game looks better than I thought it would for sure, for yeah. one of those. And and I I've played all those Fire Emblems, so it looked cool to me. But we'll see. I'm surprised this game wasn't dated, given that through 2017 they were generally pretty solid on yeah. dates today. Nintendo was, so we'll see. 
Yeah, it's just for me, you know, like, you know, obviously I don't have a Switch, so I couldn't play it anyways. But even if I did, I just don't know if there's really any reason to play a Warriors game that is not just based on one of the best books ever written. Like, that's the only source material you need to pull from. It's fucking Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Like, Fire Emblem's fine. It's not Romance of the Three Kingdoms. That's all I'm saying. Like, Martha's no Lubu. That's that's all. All right. Moving on, um, Skyrim appeared once again. Um, to just, they say, like, they basically say the same shit they said at Bethesda. There will be amiibos. They, they, though they specified, they said select Zelda items will appear in Skyrim. So I guess that means that other amiibos are not going to do anything. I don't know. I guess it makes the most sense as series crossovers. Zelda is the most similar. But it would be fun to have a Mario thing in there. Yeah, I would Mario could take over a dragon in Skyrim. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So we got to hear the Skyrim theme again. So that was a fun... Fun way to close out E3 with, I guess, the last Skyrim mention. Um, then we got a little bit of a peek at the Breath of the Wild DLC. Although most of, it, of what we saw was the stuff we already knew from the first pack. We knew, but we hadn't seen any of it. Well, I mean, there had been, like, screenshots and stuff. We hadn't seen it in motion. Sure, but yeah, it was yeah. cool to see, like, the actual, what that Trial of the Sword yeah. is. God, it looks like really good DLC. And then they get a little peek at what the uh, second one, the story one, is going to yeah, be. Yeah, the Champion's Ballad. Yeah, and so the first DLC pack is going to be out June 30th, and I'm so psyched. I've yeah. actually been playing that game on and off a little bit just for fun, because it's an easy game for me to pick up, and, and I love that game so much. And it'll be cool to have some new things to do in it. Yeah, so, looks yeah. Cool. I, I was kind of hoping that they would go into more specifics about what the second DLC pack that has like the story stuff would be, because it seems yeah. like it's like I guess it's probably a prequel because they highlighted the champions from the champions from like the old era or whatever from Breath of the Wild. That also they're they're now putting out amiibos for them. So that there was your like amiibo yeah. drop. So uh, which is a shame because you know I was hoping that. Or maybe maybe this it will be thing because they are Zelda items. Is like you know be able to like use your Naburu or whatever amiibo. Or is that is that the one from Ocarina of Time or is that the one from Breath of the Wild? Uh, Naburu is the one from Ocarina of Time yeah. because the beast is Naboris, okay, which is yeah. like a reference. Yeah. Well, either way, I wanted. I hope you can be a Gerudo lady in Skyrim because that would be pretty cool. That would be fun. Then um, Nintendo said something about esports. I just put in Nintendo esports. I don't even remember what that was. Was that Rocket League? That. that must have been Rocket League. Yes. Yeah. Rocket League on Switch sounds cool. That's I've never played yeah. that. That might be a good way for me to play that. Rocket League is a good game. Um, then my then Mario Rabbit's Kingdom Battle. Uh, we had Eve Guma was like in like shot looked like shot in his like home office or something. It was like a weird video. Yeah. It like it looked like he shot it at the last minute and sent it over. But you know. Whatever. Yeah, cool to see him there. But then it was like the the thing that everyone wanted to see. They ended with a very long trailer for Super Mario Odyssey that showed some really fucking crazy shit. Uh, Sean, yeah, I want this game turned into a serum. I want it injected into my veins. You would die. I I want you this... would vomit up rainbows and you would die. I want it so bad. I want it. That was a fucking amazing game trailer. Yeah, especially because it had a song. It had it. It didn't have a song. It had a theme. It song. had a theme song about collecting coins <laughs> and jumping on shit and, and throwing your hat. It was great. And the, the trailer was like timed to the song. And look, I, I, I kind of all gets mixed together, although I have seen that trailer three times today, because I also, my brother was not around when they were showing that, so I showed it to him later, and then I watched it again. Um, but I watched that, and then I watched, like, the 30-minute treehouse they did. I have played every Mario game. Yeah. I love the Mario games. They are my favorite series. I play them obsessively. I, I haven't even talked about it on the podcast, but I've just spent the last couple of weeks just replaying some Mario games just for fun, because sometimes between bigger things, that's what I go back to sure. to, like, rebalance myself. 
I've never seen a game that looks like Super Mario Odyssey. This game looks like the work of insane people. Yeah. And I love it. He can become a Bullet Bill. He can become a Koopa. He can take over the body of a six-foot-tall human man. He can become an electrical circuit going through a wire. The game is like this weird open-world thing where it's all about... It's kind of like Breath of the Wild in that it's very exploration-focused and looks very sure. dense. Yeah, it definitely but, seemed like it was based on like you exploring hub worlds in yeah. an almost Super Mario 64-esque way, but like expanded from that idea. But way expanded, because yeah. it's not like there's... Discre- it's also like there's not discrete... You go around in the hub world and then here's a level. Right, it's yeah. like you stumble upon things and then there might be a platforming challenge that's more like a traditional Mario level. But it's all crazily seamless and like even watching the treehouse I couldn't quite grasp what all the connections are because I feel like you need to play it to understand it. Yeah. Oh my god. Two years in a row Nintendo stole the show for me. I am so fucking excited for this game. And the kicker to all of it was, I think back at the Switch reveal, they said this would be like kind of late 2017. Like, yeah. They might have even said December, I forget. It's coming October 27th. Yes. This thing isn't getting delayed. It's coming early. I fucking love it. Yeah. I'm so excited. I think my favorite part about it was like, one, it's the unique sort of mechanical thing of Mario possessing all the different sort of like God. characters in the world. So it's like, I like that that's... Adding an element that is not like, you know, just another like 3D Mario platformer in the way that like you want there to be something new, the, the way you want from a new 3D Mario kind of game. But then also the brief glimpses you get of like the narrative setup that you could establish of like there is some sort of ghost hat. And at some point, Mario's hat gets destroyed, and the ghost hat possesses Mario's hat and becomes the hat that you see as like the main thing in Super Mario Odyssey. But then like... But then, so then that ghost hat enables Mario to possess other characters. But then the main question is, does that mean that the whole game you're really just playing as the hat and not playing as Mario? Because you're controlling the hat, controlling Mario. I think... And the hat just keeps Mario around as a warm body that can do big jumps because he needs, like, a core host to latch onto, but then also can possess other things along the way. You know, I've talked on this podcast before that... Um, I've been working on like outlines and stuff. For, I'd love to write a book on Mario, like a survey kind of thing, right. like a critical history, because I don't think that really exists for this series, and I think it's important. And the thing I always come back to with studying the mainline Super Mario series is that I think it's easy for us to forget this because Mario is omnipresent in a billion games. Yeah. But if you look at the core like Super Mario Brothers series... That is where Nintendo has always fallen back and just gotten weird. Yeah. They have... And consistently, you know, like American Mario 2, the Doki Doki Panda thing, that's a weird, bizarre game. Sure. Mario 3 has a lot of... turns into a Tanuki. Mario World gets crazy in some ways. And then they went and just kicked the doors open with Super Mario 64. And I think people forget kind of how insane that game is because it's been so, like, internalized by our gaming culture now. Yeah. To the point where it's, you know, God, I, I was playing through, I'm playing through uh, Zelda The Wind Waker right now. And that game just fully has a boss taken from Super Mario 64. It's things like that. Like, that game yeah. is so internalized. And then, you know, Mario Sunshine, he's got a fucking flood pack thing. Bowser has voice acting, acting and yeah. it is the craziest thing you've ever yeah. seen in a Nintendo game. Mario Galaxy plays with physics in ways games never have to that degree. It is so fascinating. The Mario Galaxy games are masterpieces of insanity also. And now it's like, yeah... Mario Odyssey, it's kind of like, we're going to take that to a next level where we're just going to go full-on surreal with it and go nuts. And I kind of love that, that, that the Mario series has always kind of stayed true to itself in that way to me, in that it gets weird, yeah. but it also gets weird in ways that are mechanically interesting and satisfying. And like when you, in the Treehouse stream, when you watch them play through it and, and heard the developers talk about it, there was a lot of like, 
they even talk about like the way they started development on this game is they started just building prototypes of weird things Mario could do and the hat thing seemed fun and so they built a game around that and I kind of loved just their admission of that yeah. that like this is kind of how we do it and and just to hear them talk about that and see kind of the weird logic behind the insanity that we're watching and how the game can so like in one five minute sequence on that treehouse stream I went from watching Mario run around a desert to become the leader of a mariachi band to go on a normal kind of Mario 3D platforming run to turn into a mural and do some 2D stuff almost like from uh, Link Between Worlds yeah. the Zelda game it's insane it looks like such an insane inspired spark of creative vision. And I cannot fucking wait for it. Yes. The other bit of narrative setup also that we got was yes. that the plot of the game is evidently, you know, because the, the Super Mario Odyssey launched or like like Switch trailer we got at the Switch launch sort of or like Switch announcement event or whatever yeah. you call it. Everyone went crazy for Bowser in his pimp suit. And now we know why Bowser's in a pimp suit is because the plot of this fucking video game is that Bowser has um, hired an evil wedding planning committee called the Brutals that are going to make it so that Peach and Bowser have to get married and Mario has to try to stop them. Or, potentially, if you sort of take that premise and sort of think of it a bit outside of the box, this is a game about Peach and Bowser finally deciding to get married and unite the Koopa and Mushroom Kingdoms, and they're having a political marriage, and then Mario, the jealous, like, jaded ex-boyfriend, has to come in and fuck everything up with his fucking ghost hat. Because Mario just can't let her go. Yep, and that was something they talked about on the Treehouse stream, and it was so funny to hear the developers explain that. And yeah, the uh, the amiibos they showed off for this one. Yeah, I will absolutely get Pimp Bowser amiibo. That yeah. one looks awesome. Yeah, but yeah, I yeah, this game is crazy. If if like between Breath of the Wild and what they're doing with Odyssey and some of the other stuff we're seeing, if this is kind of the era we're entering into with Nintendo, where they are really going out on a limb with their games and shaking things up, this is so exciting to yeah. me. And yeah, if, if if you know this, obviously I don't think this is going to get delayed. Nintendo games at this stage just no, don't. yeah, that's too close. Yeah. yeah, but like then in one year we're going to have gotten Breath of the Wild and Super Mario Odyssey, and that's kind of incredible as a start to this generation for Nintendo. Yeah, to the point where I'm like, the only downside of that is where do you go next? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, but yeah, and and actually we're not even really done with Nintendo because they had more announcements. Yes, yeah. So, because I did not cover, I did not watch all of that stuff. So, do you want to take over from there? Yeah, I'll ready? do it. The um, I don't know the exact order of things, but um, the, they they announced two new games for the 3DS, and then they showed off like there was Fire Emblem Warriors gameplay, there was gameplay for Xenoblade Chronicles Two. I didn't watch either of those. There were no other announcements besides those, though. But uh, the big one is um, they they finished the Mario stream, and it's like we're we're gonna come back and show some new stuff. I was like, well, that's cool. What's going to happen next? And then they came back, had a little interview with Reggie. And then Reggie said, now I promised we would have more announcements. And I think you're going to like this next one. And it's more Metroid. Yeah. Like, so casually, like, how was that not part of the main show? One. And this is a Metroid game that's coming in September. Yeah. So they announced a 3DS Metroid. It's called Metroid Return of Samus. Or Samus's Return. Or Samus Returns. I don't remember the exact wording. Revengeance of the Samus of the Return of the Revelation. Yes, and it is technically a remake of Metroid 2, The Return of Samus. That's why I'm having trouble with it. Which was the original Game Boy sequel. I think people forget, the the Super Metroid was not the sequel to Metroid. It was Metroid 2 on the Game Boy. It moved to Game Boy after NES. And that game is really interesting. It's, It's got a fascinating kind of premise where you land on this world where all the Metroids are and you just have to exterminate all of them. 
Samus just goes and commits a genocide, and you have a counter in that game in the lower corner. It says it starts with 40, and you have to find 40 Metroids to kill them. It's kind of hilarious that that's just the setup. Um, so I say technically a remake because very much like Fire Emblem Echoes from earlier this year, you kind of take one look at it and be like, yeah, this is a little more than a remake, right. you know? Because I don't, you, you can't really take a Game Boy game, I think, of that stature and just say you're remaking it. You're very much reimagining it. In fact, it very much reminds me of Metroid Zero Mission, the remake of the original Metroid for Game Boy Advance, which is one of the best Metroid games because yeah. they took that kind of core foundation of the original Metroid and went nuts with it on a lot of fascinating ways. But yeah, they showed off a trailer for that and then played it for about half an hour and it looks fantastic. Like the visuals are really nice, very atmospheric. It's kind of it's the first side-scrolling Metroid we've had since Metroid Zero Mission on the Game yeah, Boy Advance. it's been a long time. It's been a very long time, and Metroid has never gotten to do like the 2.5D kind of thing that New Super Mario Bros. and Legend of Zelda Breath of... Or, uh, uh, Link Between Worlds right, got to yeah. do. So Metroid finally gets to do it. It looks beautiful. It sounded amazing. Uh, Metroid 2 has always had gotten some hits for it doesn't have the best Metroid soundtrack. They announced that for this, they got the Super Metroid composers to come back and do a oh, new score for this. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. And so it just looks like there's some new things where, like, Samus now can aim her gun in any direction you want, which obviously you could do in, like, Metroid Prime, but you could never do in one of the side-scrolling games where she could kind of go at, an, at like, Contra-esque or something. Right. And so, yeah, it just looked really good. And again, the kicker is it's coming September, mid-September. So it's, it's on its way. We will have a new Metroid game by the end of the year. I know new asterisk because it is kind of a remake, but it's also like most people, I think, Metroid fans today probably have not beat Metroid 2. Yeah. I love Metroid to death. And, I, and like you said, like it's, it has to be so different yeah. from just like from every single perspective, not even just how it looks, but how it plays. Yeah. It, you know, Game Boy games are pretty clunky. Metroid 2 didn't have a map. Like, right. you know, kind of like Metroid Zero Mission, one of the biggest things is just it has a map that yeah. really changes the game. So yeah, I... I'm just calling it a new Metroid game. A new fucking 2D Metroid game, which is awesome. And, uh, yeah, I'm so excited for this. I'm curious when that comes out to see, like, if they have taken a lot of stuff from the Metroid-style games that have come post-Metroid Zero Mission and stuff. Because it is a pretty, like, popular genre in indie games and stuff. Like, we had Axiom Verge a couple of years ago, or Ori in the Blind Forest, um, and, and stuff like that. And, or, um... What's the game name? Like Shadow Complex, um, that game from the Xbox 360, Xbox Live Arcade game. Yeah. That game's fucking awesome. So I'm curious to see what they take, like what cues they take from that. Since it's been so long since they've made one of those kinds of games. And yeah. like the market has kind of moved on from when they last did it. Yeah, absolutely. Because I do think um, Metroid Zero Mission would be the last one they really did in that style. Because Metroid Prime 3, which would be the next one after that, is good. But it's much more linear than the other Primes or, or other Metroid games. So... Yeah, I, uh, I'm fascinated, and I'm so excited. Like, the 3DS has gotten some love already this year. That's going to be... And that's a perfect platform for it. Yeah. You know, have the bottom screen, have your map and everything. So, you know, it was a mobile game originally, obviously. It was a Game Boy game. So, yeah, that's cool. And um, I'm just... I'm psyched. I, we, we're getting a new Metroid game. In we are getting a Metroid, a Mario, and a Zelda in 2017. It's amazing. Yeah. Like, it's it's... Now I almost am convinced that Nintendo will someday actually make another F Zero game. Maybe yeah. it will happen. Like, like I was just felt so strongly for so long that like Metroid is never going to become a thing again because Nintendo seems so utterly disinterested but, in really pursuing it. But you know, I think it's kind of like the moment when Fire Emblem Awakening came out. Sure. Where I think at that point, I think Nintendo and Intelligent Systems thought, 
maybe the market has moved on from this. Maybe Fire Emblem is too heady. Maybe it's too difficult, you know, too kind of away from the zeitgeist. And so they made Awakening thinking this is going to be it. Huge hit. And I think Metroid could be that way. I think this could do really well for the 3DS. I think Metroid Prime 4 will have, be writing a massive wave of hype onto the Switch when it finally comes out. And I think, as you said, there has been such a resurgence kind of in the indie and online community of these kinds of Metroid-esque games. Not Metroidvania, you fuckers. Metroid. It is the worst fucking genre determination yeah. ever. Yeah. Metroid-esque games. And I think there is a groundswell of, of a desire for this series, not just from fans, but I think there are going to be people who have not played a Metroid who could get on board with some of these. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm excited. And I just love that, 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 that the, our first Metroid back since Other M seven years ago is Metroid Samus Returns. Yeah. Kind of a great title. Yeah. One other 3DS announcement they did. Okay. Um, we had known about this because some data miners leaked it. Um, they're doing a remake of Mario and Luigi Superstar Saga for the 3DS. Right. Yeah. Um, that's a great game. Did you play that on the GBA? No, no, I didn't. Okay, it's really good. It's probably the closest to like the first two Paper Marios we've ever gotten since mm-hmm. those. Um, just really fun storytelling, good you know RPG mechanics. I played the hell out of it as a kid, and I love it. Um, but it's interesting. It's, I say remake. This one is actually almost more of a port because it's mostly the same graphics it looks like from the GBA. They didn't even show the bottom screen. I wonder what they're going to do with that. There are definitely places you could use that in this game, right. but we'll see. Um, but it's Superstar Saga plus Bowser's Minions. And f- at first glance, that looked like a mini game or something they were tacking on. Nintendo people were very quick to correct journalists. It is a full-length campaign, same length as Superstar Saga, brand new game. Yeah. Almost like when they released Link to the Past on GBA and they had Four Swords. Right. And Four Swords was like a full big game. Same idea here. This time you play as like a King Goomba trying to get all the other Goombas around because Bowser is missing. It looked very charming and fun and in the same style as that original Mario and Luigi. So that one comes out like on the week of my birthday. So that will be a fun way to... Cool. to cause I, I get in my birthday month a Mario and Luigi remake and a new Mario game. And I'm really excited. There you go. Yeah. I was hoping that Bowser's Minions was there going to be their cross-marketing deal with the Minions from yes. Spickle Me. Because they yeah. didn't, it wasn't enough to be with the rabbits. They were like, we have to be with all the annoying cartoon mascots. Yeah. So to wrap up, I think Nintendo yeah. moved with kind of surprising confidence today in their step. Uh, they are clearly supporting the hell out of the Switch yeah. in a lot of good ways. Um, well, I think supporting the 3DS in interesting ways. You know, it doesn't feel like we're getting robbed of Switch titles because of what 3DS stuff we're getting. You know, when you add in also like Ultra, Sun and Moon and stuff like that. So... I just felt like, man, I'm happy to have my Nintendo consoles. There's a lot of stuff coming. There are things we didn't get today. I thought for sure we'd see that Smash Bros. port. Yeah. Who knows when that's if that's coming at all. Um, I didn't necessarily think we'd see Virtual Console. I just wish we had. But I told oh you. Well. I told you they weren't going to talk about it. I didn't they really didn't think, talk about yeah, it. Yeah, they didn't. But they again, they they gave us some good stuff, yeah. and it was short and to the point. And I love those Treehouse things. They're fun. I mean, the Treehouse stuff is kind of magical. There's moments like when they were showing off the Metroid game. The, the treehouse lady had to do a morph ball jump. And if you've ever played Metroid, you know that's the hardest thing to do in a Metroid game. And just seeing her sweat like, oh, God, I have to do this live to, like, millions of people was hilarious. And she, she did it. So kudos to her. That's nice. hard. She even said, like, I was practicing this last night. And it's like, yeah, that's a really hard thing to do. So I get it. But, yeah, any other thoughts on that, Sean? Yeah, no, Nintendo had a really strong showing. Like, I think it's interesting that they, you know, there were a couple of things like Pokemon and Metroid Prime 4 that they were like, talked about very very early and then i thought like that didn't feel like a super nintendo kind of move i feel like they don't usually do that but it, i feel I like th- they, they, it feels like they really want people to be 
positive and like we are all in on the switch with our major franchises going forward. Yeah, I think you know if 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 Metroid were a well-supported series, we would have waited for the Metroid Prime 4 until they were ready to show gameplay. Yeah. I think they're aware of the chatter. And frankly, that's a big change for Nintendo. But I think they are aware people were chattering about Pokemon and chattering about Metroid. And they said, let's just cut this off at the pass and, and move ahead from there. And I think everyone's happy about that. So yeah. it's good. Another interesting thing that we didn't see anything um, about like a Nintendo mobile game or anything at their... Like, did, was that, did you see anything of that at all in the Treehouse stream? No, I don't think they've announced a new one. There's rumors that the next one is Zelda-related, but we have not seen that yet. Yeah, because then also we know, this is like back when they originally announced their partnership to start developing mobile games that they were working on an Animal Crossing one. Yeah. And we knew that, like, around, we learned that the same time we learned the Fire Emblem one, the Fire Emblem one has been out for several months now. I think it's interesting that I was kind of expecting to see whatever that Animal Crossing mobile game was going to be. Who knows? Maybe like the Switch came out and was a success, and their stockholders are happy. And now Miyamoto and everyone are like, "No more fucking mobile games. Yeah. We're done. Not until we have a stock crisis again. We'll keep those in our back pocket." And then, and but they just like he just like Reggie's in the corner. He like looks at the fucking just like the sheet with like the profits from Fire Emblem <laughs> Heroes. He's like, "No, you yeah. must make all of them. Yeah. Games are a battle." <laughs> all right. Final thoughts on E3. This is a weird E3. Um, it had, I think, like, just going back down, EA had a very EA press conference. I was pretty disappointed by the lack of Star Wars stuff. And I, EA's, EA just doesn't feel like they know how to fucking pitch themselves in the way that Ubisoft had no. does. Microsoft, we talked about very heavily, just like, again, not a failure of a press conference, but just, like, did not sell the message that they needed to sell. Um, with the Xbox One X and their first-party stuff. Again, like I just think like Crackdown 3 having such a disappointing showing is a really big blow to them with how long a development that game has been and it being like one of the only sort of fresh things in their um, like sort of original development. Bethesda was awesome. Ubisoft had some really crazy stuff. Uh, Sony, again, wish they had something new, but what they showed was good. And then Nintendo had a really tight, strong show with... Mario had a fucking crazy awesome trailer. So it's like there have there were a couple of pretty bright spots, but not many surprises. And that was kind of disappointing. That like that's the sort of the thing I want from E3 is is like, you know, last year we had Spider-Man and God of War from Sony were huge surprises and fucking awesome. And it's like, oh man, those games like one that those games exist, and two that they look as cool as they do. Because even if you hear the rumors about them, you have no idea what they're gonna be like. And that was kind of an element missing from this year's E3 for the most part. Yeah, you know, I, I think Metroid Prime 4 would have been that if there was gameplay footage. Yeah. Totally understand why there wasn't, and I think it was fine as just, look, we know you guys want this, let's throw you that bone. And it was still a huge surprise and a very welcome one. But yeah, if they had like ended a show with five minutes of Metroid Prime 4 gameplay, I people would have died of heart attacks, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like that kind of surprise, but yeah. Nothing quite that big. I think Bethesda, Ubisoft, Sony, and Nintendo all had very confident showings, and I enjoyed those to varying degrees. And I definitely thought Sony and Nintendo, I had a ton of fun watching theirs. And I'm like, yeah, I'm glad I have my Switch and my PS4 and my 3DS, and I think good times are to come. Yeah. I'm going to go really quickly through my coming soon list. This is a personal list I make for myself every year. Okay. But through the end of the year, what I have on here, and I want to hear if you can think of anything I'm missing. Okay. But this is like... Just what I have, like things I might or our podcast might be interested in, and there's too many. Mm-hmm. So let's go through it. 
Um, not much over the summer, but July 11th, we're getting that Final Fantasy XII remake, the Zodiac Age. Okay, yeah. I'm curious about that. Don't know if I'll play it. Tacoma on August 2nd. Yeah. Must play. Sonic Mania on August 15th. Oh, man. Must play. Yeah. Uncharted The Lost Legacy on August 22nd. Must play. Yeah. August is busy. Uh, Mario and Rabbids is on August 29th. Not sure, but, you know, we'll see. Uh, Destiny 2 is on November 6th. Fuck, yeah. Metroid Samus Returns is September 15th. Cuphead is the end of that month, September 29th. The Mario and Luigi remake is uh, October 6th. Evil Within 2 is October 13th. And then on October 27th, we're getting the trifecta of Mario Odyssey, Assassin's Creed Origins, and Wolfenstein 2. Yeah. Just to pile up uh, there. Call of Duty World War II is November 3rd, and Nino Kuni 2 is November 10th. Now, Nino Kuni 2 was not at the main shows, but they did do a new trailer yeah. at the pre show uh, at Sony, and that game looks amazing and gorgeous. And I'm fearing I won't have time for it, even though I would like to. Yeah. So, and then I don't know anything about later than that. So at least November and December seem lighter. But yeah. Yeah, I'm sure well, there will probably be something that is going to yeah. come in November that's going to be pretty big. But that's a hell yeah. of a list. I would like to try all of those, you know? Yeah, because then there's also, like, the games I haven't played yet. Like, I'm about to start. Like, I would have, I would be pretty deep into Nier Automata at this point if E3 did not happen now and yeah. I did not have time to play video games. Then there's that. I bought Neo on the um, Sony, like, sale that they did for And that's E3. how I got Horizon. Yeah, so I'm going to start in on that at some point. I still want to play Resident Evil 7. One thing you missed was in August, Yakuza Kiwami comes out. Fuck, okay, yeah. Fucking, yeah. I'm going to play that. Sean, I so want to play Yakuza 0. I don't know if I'll have time. Yakuza 0 is so good. It's so fucking good. Yeah, there's a lot of games coming out this year. All right. Well, we will talk about all of them in due time. For now, Sean and I are going to take a quick break. Yeah. But you won't hear it. Okay, so Sean. Yes. Let's talk Doctor Who. Doctor Who? We're going to do this kind of quickly. Uh, this week's episode was Empress of Mars, written by Mark Gatiss. Yes. We've, in the past, this is his ninth episode for the show. That's a lot of episodes. Uh, I like one of them before this one. Uh, I mean, he, he has plenty Sherwood. of okay episodes. Yeah. Robot of Sherwood is definitely his best. Yeah. Some of them are less than okay. That, the, well, no, I, yeah. I'm, he has plenty of okay ones and plenty of bad ones. Yes. Um, so Empress of Mars I liked this one just fine I don't know if I have a lot to say about it Yeah, it is a perfectly fine episode of Doctor Who I think is a good way to put it Yeah, I I probably did like it better than last week's The Lie of the Land I, I Maybe, think it, yeah I, I think it's a more consistent episode I It's guess. a more consistent episode It did not reach the same highs But I also don't think it reached the same lows I thought it was You know, look Frankly, if you took this And put it in a less remarkable run Of Doctor Who Like a RTD season I think this would be One of the better episodes Yeah Um, I think it is Doctor Who 101 By the numbers Yes But it's a decently well done Version of that My biggest complaint Is how he uses the companions here Mm -hmm. Bill is uh, Has been written so precisely In all the other episodes And I thought in this one She was written very generically Kind of, and, it reminded me of uh, Cold War. Yeah, and how Clara, were, yeah. where Clara was mad at the TARDIS or something. Yeah, um, and then I also just thought, like, I'll just get to my biggest narrative problem with the episode. Okay. It does build to this interesting conclusion where, so at the beginning, Nardole goes to the TARDIS and it has a malfunction and leaves and goes back to the yeah. university. For and reasons he, never explained in the episode. Yeah, and he has to get Missy to come back and fly it. Uh, and then that leads to this interesting cliffhanger and a very good scene at the end, I thought, yeah. between Michelle Gomez and Peter Capaldi. But that scene doesn't make sense with Nardole. Uh-huh. Because he can fly the TARDIS. We know this. Yes. 
it would make sense with Bill because she cannot, and you could much more easily explain a malfunction with someone who cannot fly the TARDIS. Yeah, and we just saw the episode where yes. she met Missy, so it would have been a nice like connection yeah. to that. It would have been a great connection. So that just like was such a glaring hole in the plot of like not even so much a plot hole, but just something that you could have done to bump up this episode a lot in my estimation. Yeah. And then you could also have like reverse roles where maybe Nardol was with the doctor more and let see a different side of him and whatnot. So I thought that was the weakest part. Everything else I was totally fine with. It just didn't blow my socks off. Yeah. I think you know. it, it just has that kind of Mark Gattisy thing of like there are some interesting ideas and themes that like kind of exist on the periphery of like the you know imperialist British soldiers next to the ice warriors where they like even straight up compare the ice warriors to the Vikings at some point. It's like, oh, there's a lot of material you can do with that, like historically speaking and building out this and like discussing imperialism and like the futility of imperialism and stuff like that. Doesn't do anything with any of those ideas. And like in that like Mark Gassi way of like, it feels like he likes to write Doctor Who episodes that are just kind of wacky adventures and never are more than that. And it's like it you need a, at least a little bit more than that. It feels like every one of his Doctor Who scripts was written in one sitting, uh-huh. in one pass, and never revised. That's honestly my feeling on them, and they're fine. This one, I will say, I thought had good enough ideas at its core, even if they weren't all that well explored, that everyone else got to run with it. Like, mm-hmm. I thought it was a very well-executed episode. I think it was well-directed. I thought the scenes on Mars, I really liked the production design. When we got into the tomb with, like, the Ice Warrior Queen, I thought that was a really nice set and everything there. I thought... Capaldi did great. I, I think Bill Pearlbacky had nothing to play, but was charming and everything yeah. that you need her to be. Um, I liked how far they went with the arrogant British colonists. It was it, maybe the most over-the-top I've seen that role played, and that is a role that is very often played over-the-top. I mean, it was fitting in a week where the British Prime Minister lost her majority because sure. she was fucking arrogant. Like, yeah. it felt like a very much an indictment of that traditional British arrogance. And I kind of, like, that's the closest the show got to any thematic resonance yeah. this week. So, that was fun. And, you know, I they did, again, a very Doctor Who 101 plot where there's the one guy who was a coward and was almost hanged for desertion. And then at the end, he gets to be brave. And I actually did like how that yeah. was all done. And I like that actor. There's a weird logical lapse there. And maybe there's some strange... By law in like the Victorian British army or something I am utterly ignorant of. But how do you get like how do you are deserted and therefore court-martialed for desertion and then sentenced to death by hanging and then because the rope breaks you don't fucking kill him? Or not only do you not kill him, you give him back command of his unit? That doesn't make any fucking sense, right? That's it, I, I felt like that's so crazy of a backstory that makes no sense at all. If there were, if this was a Stephen Moffat episode, there would be a fan theory forum somewhere explaining that that guy is the thirteenth Doctor, and that's his. That's the hole in that backstory yeah. is that he got hung and regenerated and somehow kept the scar. Sure. And now, yeah, and it's that Susan. Was, it was actually Susan. It was actually it was Susan. Susan. That's was probably Susan more. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, like I just thought, like it's not a huge deal, but it was like because it's a good idea, and I like the visual image of him like like revealing the scar from the yeah. hanging. It's like, oh, that's cool. And then you think about it for half a second. It's like, how the fuck? Why would he ever have command of a unit if he was sentenced to death by hanging? Like, it's, maybe I could see them being like, well, the hanging didn't work. Maybe there's like a weird superstition. We don't actually kill him, but you don't fucking give him command of his unit. You like imprison him or some shit. 
It was weird. I, I, you know, plot hole aside, I thought it gave the episode a much more interesting version of this kind of conclusion that we normally get, where it's like him kind of being the guy who is the linchpin in these peace talks, and I liked that. Yeah. I did like the whole thing that the Doctor is kind of in between these two sides, and it's not a clear cut, oh, this time I'm protecting the humans, the Ice Warriors are bad. It's a fun story where you have, the humans are being the dicks in this case, but the Ice Warriors are very dangerous. Um, I mean, I'll say this. I thought the ice, warrior, ice Warriors were much better used here than they were in Cold War. Yeah. yeah. In Cold War, it felt like him trying to do a Dalek-style, like like yeah. Dalek from Season 1-style kind of episode. It was like, you know... And I'm and some, like, I really like the Ice Warriors in there, because I think they only appeared in four episodes in the original classic series. And so it's like, I have a fondness for them, and I always wish they'd been explored more. And that I'm with you. I think this is a good reintroduction of them in a way that's like I would like to see more Ice Warriors at some point in the future yeah totally yeah. No, it was fun um, the Mars setting was interesting I like the whole like you know there's Victorian people on Mars yeah that's a goofy idea that yeah. I guess they, they did okay with yeah um, what was Alpha Centauri I'm glad you asked because that is the thing that there is to talk about this episode yes. because that is so fucking cool what they did so basically there are only four Ice Warrior stories. Two of them are Second Doctor stories. I think only one of them is existent. Like I think it's Seeds of Doom from the Second Doctor. But the main Ice Warrior stories that I remember that I really like are the Third Doctor era ones, Curse of Peladin and the Monster of Peladin. Curse of Peladin specifically being one of the best Third Doctor stories. And I watched it. I rewatched it immediately after watching this episode of Doctor Who because it was like, I have to rewatch Curse of Peladin because it's so fucking good. It's one of the handful of Third Doctor stories that is, like, completely set in space. And so it's so much fun to see John Pertwee in what is, like, almost feels like a Tom Baker-era uh, episode that, like, came a couple of years too soon or something. Um, so Curse of Belladin is awesome. And Alpha Centauri is a reference to that. And to she's in Monster of Peladin, or it's in Monster of Peladin level. It's a uh, hexapod hermaphrodite, I think is what they call it. Um, Alpha Cent- so the, the basic setup of Curse of Peladin is there's this one planet called Peladin that has like this very sort of like primitive civilization that is about to join some sort of a galactic federation and then the Doctor and Joe Grant the companion of the time sort of stumble into this scenario where there are these talks for Peladin to join this galactic federation and the Ice Warriors Alpha Centauri and another alien called like Archimedes or something like that is are there as envoys and then the Doctor and Joe get um are mistakenly identified as being the envoys for Earth as a part of these discussions, and that allows John Purry to play this very fun thing of you can tell how much fun the Doctor is having being mistaken to be this like negotiator and get to like go around and command the room, and he plays it very well. And so Alpha Centauri is this weird, very memorable alien that's like very kind of wacky, is very sort of cowardish, and one of the reasons why that episode is so good is the inversion of the Ice Warriors where you understand them as being this very violent warrior race and now you see them in this later context in their civilization where they are these mediators of peace and trying to like you know work in this sort of uh, conference is really good um, and Alpha Centauri is just a really memorable part of that story and I think the this episode kind of called back in a couple of very vague ways to that and then at the very end they do a, this conference call where all of a sudden uh, the Doctor sort of does it so that the Ice Warriors can communicate with some other species because they can't live on Mars anymore. And then Alpha Centauri, the species of Alpha Centauri, intercepts that message and is like, welcome to the universe. And that is the original actress doing the voice who is like 94 years old. And they brought her back to do these two lines as this like 
offhand reference to a really brilliant John Pertwee story, and I had the biggest smile on my face all throughout that sequence. It was so good. So it's basically like this winds up being a prequel, sort of, to... Yeah, it's a really weird prequel to the Peladin two-part story. Yeah, yeah so yeah, where it's... many lives later, the Doctor helps the Ice Warriors become yeah. Yeah, who they would be. Yeah, it's it's really... It's a cool little connection. I, I almost... It makes me wish that they kind of did leaned that harder and made it like... A direct prequel to Peladin and made that more like direct thematic sort of thing in I the mean, story of the Ice Warriors transitioning into this more peaceful race in a way that like wasn't as buried beneath all the other shit that is in this episode. Yeah, I mean, as it stands, that has to be the deepest cut the modern show has made for it a major plot point, right? Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty significant because that's not just a reference; like that's part of the resolution of the episode. Mm-hmm. And if, like me, you did not see that John Pertwee episode, you immediately had to go look it up and be like, "That was cool." I can tell they did something cool there. What was it? I mean, and that is, you know, for all the things I will say about Mark Gaddis, the one thing you have to always respect for that dude is his deep, unfathomable love for Doctor Who and his rich, like, memory and history for that series. Because it was like, there is something, like, in the air. Like, the second before it happened, like, there's nothing directly setting up the fact that Alpha Centauri is going to be on there, on that screen. But it was like, the moment before it happened, I felt like a psychic connection with Mark Gatiss. I'm like, you motherfucker, there's no fucking way. There's no fucking way that that happens. That would be so ridiculous. There's no way that they don't cut that out of the scripts because nobody watching this is ever going to understand it. It's like you, fucking Stephen Moffat, and Peter Capaldi are like the three people that are going to see this episode and know what the fuck And this that's is. why it got in. Yeah, and it was just, it was, when it happened, I was so happy. It's really good. People should watch Curse of Peladin. It's great. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I liked this episode. I had fun. Totally like, you know, look, Doctor Who does not have to hit it out of the park every week. Yeah, sometimes, it can just be a fun episode. Yeah, it's fun sometimes to see a solid little Doctor Who story. And this is probably the last of those we get for Peter Capaldi, which is sad. Yeah. But he has four episodes left if I just want to depress everyone. And I'm guessing the rest of them are not going to be as low-key as this. Yeah, no. Um, um, did you see that next week's... Yes. The Eaters yeah. of Light is written by Rona Monroe, who wrote... Survival, Survival. which yeah. is the last classic Doctor Who serial, the seventh Doctor serial, which is a really good one. And this is the first instance of a classic Doctor Who writer coming in to write an episode of Modern Doctor Who. And that next preview also looked really cool. Yeah, I, I love that Moffat was able to kind of check that off the bucket list yeah. before his run it's ended. It's kind of surprising that you would you'd think that at some point that would have happened. But yeah, yeah. no, never has. We, we had a director, Euros Lin, back in the day, who worked on the RTD years, did direct yeah. on Classic Who. But yeah, it's the first time we've had a writer. And it feels very appropriate she was the last writer on Classic yeah. Who. So, And then we're into, and that'll be the last person to write a script in the Moffat era before That's Moffat uh, yeah, finishes us off. Yeah. So yeah, crazy. I appreciate it. Gives me an excuse to go back and watch Survival again. Maybe I'll go watch that. It's really fucking good. Nice. It's a good master story. Oh, master story. Nice. So we we are going to be getting more of those. Yeah. Soon. Uh, yeah. One more thing. Michelle Gomez, great in that last scene. Yeah. Yeah. That I love the shot of like her from across the TARDIS console, like kind of distorted by the glass. Yeah. It's a really good like shot that makes you like I don't know what you're up to lady like and it's, I, good, it's really good I love that and I love how Peter Capaldi has played every scene with her this season where I'm not sure what he's afraid of if it's her or if it's him yeah. but he looks like kind of a scared little boy around her because I think he doesn't quite he just doesn't know what to do and that's the doctor usually knows what to do yeah so it's yeah. interesting yeah I'm really excited to see where they go alright 
Uh, that's Doctor Who. Doctor Who. Let's talk about Twin Peaks. Jonathan, how do we talk about this episode of Twin Peaks? Um, okay, spoilers from here on out. Twin Peaks episode 6 of The Return. I thought this was the best episode of the series so far, along with episode 3. Yeah, I would agree. Um, so yeah, the, the third one, which is where we got Cooper's trip to space. Utter insane Utter land. land. And like, like, makes the fucking Super Mario Odyssey trailer look like the production of like a totally sane, normal, stage yeah. stoic kind of team. Exactly. And uh, that's also the episode with, hello! Yes. And then this episode, I think, was on a similar part to that. It has... Some amazing scenes with Dougie and his family that I think go deeper than just the comedy. Yeah. And I found ethereal and beautiful. It has some fascinating stuff going on in Twin Peaks, including the most elaborate set piece we've had in this season so far, where a lot of things kind of converge and something very violent happens. Yeah. We had a midget stab a woman with a screwdriver. So that was interesting. I think it was an ice pick, technically. It wasn't an ice pick? Yeah. Okay, I couldn't quite tell. Um, we met Diane... We'll talk about right, that. Right, yeah, for a brief moment. We, yeah, so there's that. Um, a lot happened in this episode, and pretty much all of it was, I thought, pretty jaw-dropping. Just as filmmaking, yeah. but I think also in the larger arc of this Twin Peaks, you know, we are now a third of the way into this, and I thought momentum in, in this show is a hard thing to pinpoint. Uh-huh. But I felt like things were happening, if not always in a literal sense, in an emotional sense, that I found... Very moving, and I just, this was an amazing hour of TV. Yeah, it was in particular, I think what stood out to me is it's not just, like, each of the individual pieces were all really good on their own, but there's even when, like, because none of them directly connect in this episode at all. You have, like, the stuff with, like, the kid in the truck and all the shit that happens there. You have, obviously, you have all the stuff with Coop as Dougie Jones, and you have, like, the weird, like, assassin guy with the fucking ice pick. And, and all those little pieces, and then, like, a couple of smaller scenes, like, with Albert and Diane. But, like, none of those pieces directly connect with each other at all in any narrative sense. But the way it's all edited together and sort of orchestrated together gives you this, like, sense of larger purpose and, like, a larger message that I think, like, in a way you could just watch this episode without knowing anything and gain some sort of, like, really powerful appreciation of it just in terms of how the narrative is woven together, not in a like sort of logic way but in a like thematic and emotional way even more so than other episodes so far yeah. scenes in this episode breathe like it's almost 25 minutes i think before we cut away from vegas and dougie and then we um i mean it's and, and then it's it, yeah that's when we cut to albert and we have that great line from gordon cole i will be thinking of you as i drink this fine bordeaux yeah and we'll talk about another line in that scene in a minute but like yeah so we're with him for a really long chunk of time the whole extended sequence that climaxes with the um the kid getting killed by the truck yeah is of another very long series of scenes in twin peaks that are all very interconnected and come together you know so you have a lot of kind of lengthy set pieces here that i love uh and you have some you know shorter cuts in between and stuff but yeah, I, and it also brings a lot of stories to what will have to be a turning point. Even if it's a Lynchian turning point, which yeah. does not literally mean you're going to get all the answers you want next week. But yeah. Can we talk about the brilliance that is Dougie Jones? Yes, let's talk I, about I know Dougie we've Dougie talked Jones. about it a lot. This was particularly brilliant. Yeah. I mean, we start the episode back at the statue, right where we left off, um, with... <laughs> Cooper trying to get his arm out of his sleeve, which was an amazing bit of yeah. physical comedy. And uh, it's got this 
gorgeous jazz piece over that first scene that actually becomes a motif throughout the episode and for Dougie. It's like a theme for Dougie Jones that we haven't gotten yet. Yeah. And it's kind of mournful. And even though there are a lot of funny scenes here, like, um, God, let me see if I can find one of my favorite lines here. There's that scene where his wife, who I finally found her name in the credits, it's Janie E. Jones. There you go. Which is great. Um, where Janie E. learns about Jade the Hooker. Yeah. And, and he goes, Jade gives two, two rides. rides. I'll bet she, she does. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's oh, it's so funny. There's so many funny moments, but there's also this kind of slow, mournful quality to yeah. the Dougie Jones scenes this week, where I think it's hard to put any like singular piece of interpretation on all the stuff going with Zombie Cooper right now. Yeah, and I think it's probably foolhardy to do that. But I think there's a lot of possible interpretations, and there's a lot of ideas coming out of it. And one of the ones I'm getting more and more is that it's almost like Cooper has been sent into this very sad scenario and it's almost like he has to fix it. It's almost like a quantum leap story. Sure. But in a really weird Lynchian way where like we don't know the exact specifics of it but clearly by the time Cooper arrived Dougie Jones had pretty thoroughly fucked up his life and in some weird way being a complete vegetable is starting to put pieces together and we don't always know why. You know there's the very long sequence of him after seeing the Red Room, drawing yeah. on all those pieces. And I think it's a beautiful, beautiful scene. Can I tell you exactly why it's beautiful? No. no. Yeah. But it is kind of emotionally powerful, and there's something about just this emotive power coming from it where I think there is more to these scenes than just comedy. Not that I've ever thought they were just comedy, but I think there's a lot of different ways to interpret and enjoy them. Yeah, the one thing that it made me think about that I hadn't, considered much about the sort of the, the agent cooper character in this like new twin peaks stuff is like it especially hit me when he has the scene with the sun with like the potato chips and stuff Crazy. and you like it just made me realize like right like cooper lost his life like not he didn't die but he was taken out for so long that he missed his opportunity to make this family and like he's like this weird imposter in this family that like, and there's like these small tender moments, even like a couple of ones with the wife, even though she's obviously like very distraught by a lot of things going on. You do get this sense of family among them, but he doesn't actually belong. And that kind of hurts. It does. It's, I, there's this whole long sequence where it starts with Naomi Watts comes in and they're eating sandwiches together and he has the chips and the way Kyle MacLachlan uses those chips as a prop for about 15 minutes of this episode should be taught in acting lessons. Uh Like of how you use a physical prop in a scene because he sings through those chips. He gives the emotions of a musical number through how he slowly chews those chips, how he offers them to his son, how he holds them as he walks towards the stairs and they're like... The teddy bear he's holding on to because everything in this world is scary to him. But he has this bag of chips, for God's sake. It's weirdly beautiful. And that whole scene with his kid, poor Sonny Jim, uh, ends with that clapper scene. And it's great because Sonny Jim and his father are suddenly having fun doing the clapper. And then, of course, Naomi Watts uh, understandably gets mad because she gets the hooker pictures. So it's interrupted. Jane gives two rights. I'll bet she did. (laughs) Stop for a second. Naomi Watts is amazing in this episode. Yeah, Man, she has that scene later in the episode where she confronts the two blackmailing guys. That is such a fucking awesome scene. She's just on fire in this. Like, she came to this show to play. And she is doing fantastic work in 
kind of, you know, it's a thing Lynch loves to do where he takes these kind of archetypal characters or genres or things and then puts a weird spin on them. Naomi Watts was one of the best he's ever had at that in Mulholland Drive yeah. doing like the ingenue. And here she's doing it as like the put upon housewife. But it's not a version of that character you've ever seen before. And I, I think she's doing award-worthy work in this. I, I hope, you know, I assume Twin Peaks is going to get Emmy nominations next year because people in the industry are very influenced by David yeah. Lynch and Twin Peaks. And I think, you know, in a, in get, depending on how many episodes she's in, I think Naomi Watts would be a good person for, like, guest work because she's been on fire in these episodes. And this was yeah. her b- biggest, like, you know, showcase she's had so far. Yeah, definitely. It's something that, it like... Her being as prominent in this episode as she is makes me like feel like I really hope she sticks around for like the whole series because I yeah. think like she her there's something like there's something more to this character you know that we haven't quite seen yet yeah sure. and you know it's I've always been sad we didn't get you know multiple movies with Lynch and Naomi Watts because I think they were so great as a team in Mulholland yeah. Drive but we get this and that's enough like this is a and you can tell like. Yeah, I'll come out to Las Vegas for a couple of weeks and do some crazy stuff. This was a serious time commitment. Yeah. You know, Naomi Watts didn't just do this on a weekend, obviously. So, yeah, that's great. But, no, I speaking of Mulholland Drive, I definitely got a sense in this episode, a similarity to Mulholland Drive, where one of my favorite things about that movie is that it basically takes all these archetypal scenes of, like, the ingenue arriving in Hollywood and the audition scene and the scene with the assassin and all these right. different ideas and, and the lovemaking scene and, you know, like, the, the weird 70s exploitation lesbian drama or whatever, and he just puts a spin on all of them. And it's this interesting performative art throughout that movie. And I think, frankly, that's what the entire Dougie Jones story is so far. It's, you've got the American patriarch at work, you've got the, the home storyline, you've got a suburban crime drama going on, you've got extortion, all these things that we've seen in, frankly, soap operas and stuff before. And he's turning them on their head, in this case, because we have zombie Cooper wandering through this story. So a lot of the beats Cooper interacts with are fairly conventional at their core, but they're turned into something so strange and fascinating through this lens. Yeah, and so when I, you know, when I, 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 I still kind of understand why people dismiss Dougie Jones. It's not sure. what you necessarily come in wanting from Twin Peaks. Although I, I, this is better than I could have ever hoped for. Oh yeah, God, I love Dougie Jones. But like, I, I just when I hear people like, you know, why oh, isn't he Cooper yet? It's like maybe stop thinking about where you want this to go. And focus on where it is right now. Yeah, appreciate what it's doing instead of like trying to, wanting it to be something that it isn't. Because I don't think the show is killing time with this. No. God There's no. a lot going on in those scenes. Whether it's funny or whether it's weirdly emotional or whether it is these weird subversions and things, you know. It's clear David Lynch did not come into this to make a direct sequel to Twin Peaks. No. But whatever he's doing is is so far beyond what I could have imagined. Yeah, and I did like that in this episode we got the, like, I think a more clear sense of kind of where it's going. Like, there's this sense of progress with him. In particular, it's stuff like he walks slightly faster than he used to, and he's wearing his, like, uh, normal black suit when he goes back to the office later in the episode. Like, little things like that. He's certainly still, you know, there's the fucking great... Scene with him just like standing in the elevators, the doors open and close and open and close, and then he tries to walk through and the doors close on him. And he's just gets like, ugh, startled by it. So it's like he's still, you know, as you say, zombie Cooper, but you get the sense of him like kind of slowly adapting to his surroundings and he's a bit more sort of lucid, he's a bit more cogent. And then especially you get like that really weird but really good scene with him and the boss where the boss is like looking through all the pages and like, I have no idea what the fuck he's seeing in all those drawings, but there's some sort of connection is being made there. 
And and there's something about that of like a person like he's he like looks at him, he's like, Thank you, Coop. And it's like or not to like thank I'll you, Dougie. I have it somewhere. Yeah, and it's just like that is really there there's something about that that is like I kind of almost like devastatingly like heartwarming because of how long we spent with like him just sort of like wandering aimlessly in this world and nobody really acknowledging him in yeah. like a personal way. And it's like this one he gets this like real personal connection with someone. The the line is Dougie, thank you. Uh you've certainly given me a lot to think about. <laughs> and earlier in that scene, he's looking through and he says, I think you need some professional help, Dougie. And because um, this is an episode where people finally realize something is wrong with yeah, Dougie. Yeah, I really like that that cop like really earnestly was trying to help him. Yes. And, that, and that felt nice. Yeah. No, um, and yeah, because he's not doing anything dangerous. He's just being a weirdo. Yeah, yeah no. Um, but, but when he says that, the boss, um, Cooper says, help Dougie? Almost kind of mournfully. And he says it again later. And again, that's where I started thinking, maybe that's not a random utterance. Maybe there's something, some like mystical plan for this mm-hmm. of him kind of putting this family's life on track. Or I also like what you're saying of, you know, that thought of Cooper lost a life and he's kind of weirdly living one now. It's And he's like, he's just slowly putting himself back together, you yeah. know, and, and by helping people. Because that's also one of the things, you know, we know about Cooper is mm-hmm. like, he's this super nice guy that is going to try to help people in the most earnest, honest way possible at every given opportunity. Yeah. You kind of feel him sort of struggling to do that in the best way he can. Yeah. I really do want to talk about the scene where he's looking at the insurance documents and starts drawing on them. Yeah. It's a very long scene. You've got those glowing spots on the insurance forms and he starts making circles and then he starts drawing like stairs and then ladders and then he starts doing things with, it's always stairs, circles, and ladders. Yeah. And it definitely, because it's all about climbing, it made me think of the scene in episode three where he's up in space and it's all about kind of climbing up this, you know, and maybe that's too literal, but it's just, that scene is asking you to free associate and that's where I went. But like, nothing happens in that scene. He's drawing... He's, it's, 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 that whole scene is made out of almost nothing. It's just atmosphere and this weird kind of tension and intrigue and all tied together by Angelo Badalamenti, who has not really had a chance, I think, to flex his musical muscles yet on this show. But here, where he kind of builds this little jazz theme for Dougie, Zombie Coop, whatever we want to call him, and then it recurs later when the guy is looking over the forms... And just Kyle MacLachlan's performance. Yeah. He is absolutely transfixing and magnetic, even in those scenes where I have no idea what's going on in this guy's head, but his face is expressing and emoting so many things. It's an outstanding performance. Yeah. It, and it's something where, like, he kind of does so little, but he, what the little he does is so perfect. And yeah. Like, at every single moment, like, he builds this really whole perfect portrayal of this character like as bizarre as the state he is in is he's so consistent and perfect in that performance that you buy it 100% of the time absolutely um all right we get that abrupt cut to albert he's yes. in the car in the rain he's literally in seattle or something kind of pacific northwest maybe yeah. and uh he gets out of the car and he's got the yeah. umbrella and he shouts fuck gene kelly you motherfucker yeah. and I laughed so hard I literally hurt myself. It's really good. It's if that isn't one of the best lines of dialogue in any Lynch production, I don't know what is. It's so fucking funny. I Miguel Ferrer, rest in peace. Yeah. I'm so glad he got to deliver that line before he passed. It's yeah. It's an amazing thing. Anyway, he goes into a bar. This is the woman they were gonna look for at the end of episode four. Yeah. And woman turns around, it's Laura Dern in yeah. a blonde wig, and he calls her Diane. Yeah. 
and we assume this is the Diane that Kyle McLaughlin spoke to all those years ago on yes. his tape recorder. And the idea that that would be Laura Dern, kind of the ultimate Lynch muse, mm-hmm. is amazing. Yeah, and like the eventual like Blue Velvet, Kyle McLaughlin, Laura Dern reunion, yep. you know, that would occur. I just love, we're basically getting all of Lynch's greatest muses together in one episode, or in, under one roof. We have Laura Dern, we have Naomi Watts, we have Kyle McLaughlin. Yeah. We don't have Jack Nance because sadly he's dead. But, like, I want a scene with those three. Yeah. That's amazing. And just, again, that Laura, Laura Dern has a very active career that she would show up for this. That's awesome, you know? Yeah, and it's something where, like, my initial instinct would be that I would not want Diane to ever, like, show up yeah. in a physical form in, like, in, in, in Twin Peaks. But the way they do that scene and, like, the way that Laura Dern looks with, like, that wig and, like, this weird bar she's in, it's like, okay... Okay, I will go with you on this. If you're going to do Diane, it kind of has to be Laura Dern. There's just something about that that's so perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that she's going to be like some kind of key to unlocking this weird mystery is wonderful. Um, Have you seen Inland Empire yet? No, I haven't watched it yet. Okay. I've Um, been a bit busy with E3. No, I I haven't been able to jump into that particular insanity yet. I I totally understand. I mean, that movie, if you want to see her commitment to Lynchian weirdness... That is the movie. Okay. And of course she's also great in uh, in Blue Velvet. And I don't like Wild at Heart, but she's very good in that movie. Um, so I'm just excited to see her do more with Lynch here. You know? Yeah. So that's great. Uh, then we get to a really extended sequence in the middle of the episode that starts with that young guy from the end of episode five. Yeah. Um, who's like meeting with his drug dealer bosses. Now, in the credits, this guy is credited as Richard Horn. Okay. Which would make him either like... A kid of Ben Horn, probably too young for that. Or is he Audrey Horn's son? That's one way we could be going. That's possible, yeah. Uh, And this could be, that's how we'll bring Sherilyn Fenn back into the fold. Now, he has not been introduced as such in the show proper, but it is in the credits. Now people are saying, that's just sloppy storytelling. I would guess Lynch and Frost have a reason for that. I think there will be a moment where that is revealed. I don't think we actually need to know his identity yet for these scenes to work. Yeah. Clearly we've got a troubled young guy, dealing drugs... This scene is fascinating because we get that scene with the coin flip where uh-huh. there's this drug dealer who apparently has the power to make a coin flip in slow motion while everyone else moves in normal time. And then it falls and then there's a coin in the guy's mouth, but then another one falls in the guy's palm. And then he says, the dealer has the coin, says, this is you. He snaps it to the other hand, says, this is me. And it's heads I win, tails you lose. And then we just hard cut to Richard Horn, the kid in a truck. Driving and just crying, so disturbed by this crazy scene. It's like the most Mulholland Drive fucking scene. Oh yeah, that's not in Mulholland Drive. Like yep. it's so just like what is happening? That guy might as well be the cowboy. From, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's just like what the fuck. And then we cut to the trailer park from Firewalk with Me, right? Which I thought oh, yeah, was a deep yeah. cut. And Harry Dean Stanton is back. Yep. Love Harry Dean Stanton. Yes. He's been in several Lynch films. Also very good in Wild at Heart. Um, and reprising his role as the landlord, remaining wonderful. He has the amazing line, I've been smoking for 75 years every fucking day. Yeah. I love David Lynch's smoking fetish. It's so crazy. <laughs> he loves cigarettes yeah. so much. <laughs> anyway, so he's sitting on this bench, he's smoking, he's drinking coffee. He looks up at the trees. We get a very Terrence Malick-esque shot of the trees and the sun moving through them. And then we get this like crane pushing on his face as he looks up. It's just a great little shot, great little performance moment. Nothing's really happening, but we get the sense of this guy who's kind of like 
both out of sorts with the world, but also kind of emotionally in tune with it. Sure, yeah. And Harry Dean Stanton plays that very well. And it's a setup, I think, for what's coming. You know, and he sees this kid and his mother run by playing. It's just a nice little scene. And this is all intercut with that drug, the, the Richard Horn driving just like crazy, angry. He decides he's going to run a stop sign. And, I mean, did you expect these would intercut in the way they did? Not quite. Like, yeah. just because, like... Killing a kid is something that things very rarely do, like TV, movie, games, whatever. Like, it's it's pretty big, especially, like, like seeing it happen is something that things just don't usually go all the way for. I thought it was, like, he was almost going to get run over, but then, like, the, the Harry Dean Sand character or someone, like, pulls him back yeah. in the last second. Something like that. Nope. Yeah, no. And nope. It, it, but I was going to say, like, there's actually very rarely on this these six episodes so far, actual moments of convergence. Right. Where you have characters who are kind of kept separate and then actually clash. And you get that here. So I wasn't sure when he's driving, like, okay, is he going to uh. be near the Harry Dean Stan character? And once it got close enough, you, it, it's geographically they make it very clear. But for a while I was kind of wondering why they were intercutting. And then we get that and, yeah, they just there's a full shot where in plain view a kid gets hit by a truck. Yeah, going at, at full speed. Yeah. Yes, and, and that it kid is... is Definitely dead. Oh, yes, he's very dead. And, uh, yeah, and all this stuff, all the stuff from the Twin Peaks scenes just starts coming together. Because you also get, um, we had an earlier scene with this woman, uh, Miriam, at the Double uh, R Diner. Right, who, yes. likes, who really likes pie. I really like yeah, that I scene. Yeah, I forgot that scene. Yeah. It's a good scene. And Miriam is... Like the, the German lady that they yeah. got back. Yep. With that weird laugh. Yep. And Miriam is, is walking down the street, and she sees... Richard Horn in the car, so she like IDs yeah. him. So all these things from this section in Twin Peaks come together, and then it is just this like weird symphonic emotional moment afterwards, where Harry Dean Stanton sees this yellow light, kind of like those red room visions Cooper keeps seeing. It goes up into the sky and disappears, like it's the boy's soul leaving the body. He's weirdly in tune with all this. He goes over to the woman, puts a hand on her shoulder, just kind of trying to be comforting. It's they interesting. They just kind of look at each other, but neither yeah. of them says a word. It's all yeah. nonverbal, tremendously powerful scene. Yeah. Yeah, and then you just have all the people standing on the street corner yeah. just watching, like, crying, not knowing what to do. Yeah, and, you know, I think the revival, to me, the tone has been largely comedic in a lot of ways. Sure. But Twin Peaks, its original story point is the murder of a young girl. Yeah. It is a show that was very willing to cut to the deepest hearts of emotional pain, and it feels like, you know, I don't think this vein was opened at random. I'm very interested to see where it goes, but I thought that scene was very powerful in an episode w that was largely about cutting deep in different ways, yeah. you know? So, fascinating scene, and just the, the just sheer filmmaking craft on display throughout that whole sequence is out of this world. Yeah, and again, it's just the ways that it feels like, and like almost like this punctuation or something to... Again, in just like a sort of like abstract thematic or emotional sort of way, the stuff we saw with Dougie that dominated the first half of the episode. And like, again, it's not directly connected, but there's just this certain tone to it that feels like, like, I wonder how much of like, because it's something I've been kind of feeling with this Twin Peaks revival, but I haven't like felt it heavily enough to sort of like fully want to explore that yet because there's so much more we still need to see before like trying to explain it or like having the big theories or something. But part of it of, like, you know, David Lynch being away for so long, like, bringing back Twin Peaks after being gone for so long, and bringing, like, back all the old characters and stuff, there's, it is impossible to look at this and not think about how this has changed with, like, time and eras and how we're in this very different era 
of human history and American history and like what societies are like in different ways. And I feel like there's this certain callousness that you feel to the world in this revival of Twin Peaks that certainly was not present in or like the original Twin Peaks because of, like it wasn't just that it was the 90s. It was also that it was like this small town, this small close-knit community where there was this certain human warmth. Even when you have these dark secrets, there was this like sense of family and everything that was important there. And a lot of times in this Twin Peaks revival, it has felt cold in a lot of those ways, partially because you have, you know, uh, your main character being this like utterly like zombified kind of vegetable character, just wandering aimlessly throughout his life, not being able to interact with anything and nobody else noticing enough or paying attention enough or caring enough about him to really try to stop and help him. And like those things I feel like are starting to come, those themes are starting to come together more heavily, I think here with like, the way that Dougie is like trying to sort of find a way to have these moments with people and like slowly learning how to connect to people again. And then that punctuating with like this intensely human moment of people coming together over the most tragic thing that could possibly happen. And then that is then expanded upon with, I think like the ending of this episode is unfucking believable where you go back to the sheriff's office and you find out that, um, the new sheriff Truman's son committed suicide because he had PTSD and, like, that's just, like, dropped into such a casual way. And that one sheriff dude just turns it, turns it into a joke. And that's the end of the episode. Like, it, it hit me really hard. It's, it's a punctuation mark, definitely. Yeah. And, no, I agree with all of that. I think there absolutely are those, those themes in here that, you know, it's very intentional that we expanded past Twin Peaks and New Twin Peaks. And yeah. that, frankly, Twin Peaks the City is not the biggest part of this show so far. It does feel like it's the place where all these stories are heading. You yeah. know, and I do think that's a, that's a message that we could be getting here. We'll see how dark and cynical Lynch goes with this, but you could be having a theme where you know Twin Peaks maybe was this island under the world at some point, but it couldn't escape evil then, and it's going to be worn down the same way now because there are all these exterior forces that it cannot be isolated from. Yeah, and yeah, I I think it is exploring those ideas in all sorts of different ways. But you know, this is why when I see certain people online and critics just say. Oh God, the Dougie stuff. When are they going to get to the point? It's like maybe just stop and consider for a second that that is the point. Yeah, exactly. Like, like, like you have in, to be so arrogant to just assume that this is happening for no reason other than to like pad it out or something, or just yeah. for a joke. Like, if you treat it seriously for a second, I think it's obvious that there's more going on there. Engage with it. You don't yeah. have to like it, but engage with it on the terms it's setting. And the terms it's setting is not a strict promise of narrative coherency that you will get good Cooper and he'll go solve some crimes and drink some right. coffee. You know, not what we're getting so far. And I think if you engage with what's actually there, there's so much meat on these bones to pick apart. Yeah. Yeah. So a couple of other just quick points. I mean, the, the weirdest thing in the episode is we have that sheet with the black dot that the guy pulls out, the casino right. boss pulls yeah. out and it goes to this hotel room with this bald dwarf and he's playing with dice and stuff and he takes out this photo, and then this like pop music blares, and there's a woman that we don't know, I think, in one of the photos. I didn't recognize yeah, her. Yeah, I didn't recognize yeah. her either. And a picture of Dougie Jones, looking like a boss, by yeah. the way, with that yeah. hair. Old school Dougie Jones. Yep. OG. And then he just starts stabbing the photos. As soon as he starts stabbing, the music stops, because David Lynch. Yeah. And then later we have a scene where he is apparently going on a murder spree through an office, finds the woman, and in the most graphic thing to ever happen in the world of Twin Peaks, yeah. stabs her brutally to death with an ice pick. Yes, for like two minutes or something. Like, it, it goes on forever. And it's, yeah, it is 
really violent, and then a woman walks in and sees it, and he goes chasing over and kills, murders her, and ends up breaking his ice pick, and goes, oh, and throws it away. That is the best part of the whole thing, yeah. is he's, 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 his ice pick is bent, and he's sad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not sure where any of that is going, other than, I mean, there will be a confrontation with Cooper, yeah. but it's, you know, I actually think, I think these six episodes have shown there are not just lines being thrown out at random in the way some other Lynch productions do. Um, all of this is coming together. Yeah. But what I liked about it, particularly in this episode with those scenes, is that while I, like, obviously that is something that's going to be important later on, we're going to see more of that character, and obviously he's in some way going to confront Dougie, or maybe he's going to end up... What would be interesting is if, like, he... It was mistaken identity, and he went after Evil Cooper because Evil Cooper looks like Dougie Jones as much as Good Cooper looks like Dougie Jones, and yeah. that doesn't actually look like him that much, other than the obvious of the face. But everything else is like he's like fifty pounds lighter and has a completely different hair and dresses completely differently. But what one thing I really liked about this episode with those scenes is that it's one of those things where it's like even if that never comes up again, like weirdly in this episode, how with how it is edited together with everything else that is going on and like the violence there feels like of a piece of this episode in a way that like again in that kind of Mulholland Drive-esque of like this could I could just this could just be this scene in this episode and it never comes up again and it has contributed something of value in its own way I agree yeah there is this kind of sadness for the world permeating this episode and I agree I think that last scene talking about um Truman's uh one I thought they made better use of Truman's wife here as a setup for that And that, okay, they're actually having a lot of trouble at home because their son committed suicide over PTSD. Again, a thing we're bringing home to Twin Peaks. Um, the one other thing we didn't talk about in this episode is you get that scene with Hawk in the bathroom where he drops the coin. Right. It's got a Native American face. So, something about your heritage. He follows that. Then he sees the Native American like brand, what's it called? Nez Pierce Manufacturing on the stall door. The door's coming apart. He pries it apart and has several pieces of yellow note paper with handwriting. Yeah. And I kind of love that we didn't learn anything more about it because, of course, Lynch is going to make us wait. Yeah. But I, I can't wait to see what that is. So, yeah. And then uh, back to the Roadhouse for another music performance this week. We yeah. did not have that last week. At least not over the credits. We did have a performance. Uh, I like that band. I, I actually looked them up. They were good. Oh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, no, I, I really like those endings. And I yeah. like there's something cool about how the last week's episode did not do that and then we're yeah. back to it. Like, mm-hmm. there's something that feels very significant about that. Yeah. But you're right, I mean, these episodes, I think all of these individual hours work better as episodes than I would have thought. Yeah. They're clearly part of a whole. You know, this is going to be a very bingeable show. At the same time, I'm enjoying watching it week to week and letting these episodes sink in because I think they work as one-hour experiences. Yeah, because I think especially with, like, the best ones, like like episode three and now episode six, like, you say episode three of Twin Peaks and that gives me like a very specific impression of what that episode is and I feel like I'm going to have that exact same feeling about this episode and that's something that you know does not happen with like more serialized dramas that it's like you tell me like episode six of season three of Breaking Bad I'm like I don't know like that's actually one of the be- that's maybe the best episode of the show so yeah okay. that's one minute that's the one where Hank gets shot in the back and sure paralyzed no, but I like, agree with your general thesis. Like, but like, I would when I watched that show, I would never have known that. Okay. I would have had no idea which one was that happened in because yeah. it was like all those episodes bleed together into one larger narrative in a way that, like, with Doctor Who, obviously, it's like you tell me fucking like whatever episode from whatever season, and I know exactly what that is. With this, I feel like we're in a similar space because 
it's like because of the filmmaking and the editing and like how tightly it's structured, even if it is all even more so than something like Breaking Breaking Bad, it feels like it is one big narrative. Yeah, it still has this sort of like identity in in, in one hour chunks that is remarkable. Yeah. We will be back next week. We will talk more Twin Peaks. We will talk more Doctor Who. Yeah. The we'll, leftovers of E3 will be there. Yeah. We, we can pick over. So, uh, yeah, this is our longest podcast we've ever done. It was foolhardy to try to tackle Doctor Who, Twin Peaks, and E3 all in one episode, but fuck it, we did it. We did it. Uh, maybe this will be the last year we do this all in one episode. This is the last year we do this all in one episode. I all can right. confirm this. Okay. Uh, we'll see you guys next week. Fuck E3.